Chapter 13 The Alamo Position One of the strangest hallmarks of combat is that it is so chaotic that sometimes the turmoil it engenders in the mind never fully resolves. Soldiers can spend the rest of their lives trying to parse out a sense of exactly how a battle in which they participated unfolded, what came before, what happened after, and which events collided into one another simultaneously to create a tangled mishmash of confusion. Another salient feature of war is that it is often impossible to go back and fit the pieces of what happened neatly together. The absence of a comprehensive record, the fallibility of human memory, and the fact that the most important eyewitnesses to key events may have been killed, all of these elements can make it extraordinarily difficult to call any subsequent rendition of events definitive. It is my belief that this is the case with what unfolded at Keating, particularly during the initial attack. It's quite possible that at the heart of this battle there's a level of truth that is fundamentally unknowable. In light of that, perhaps the best thing I can do now, with the benefit of hindsight and the impressions that many of my fellow soldiers have shared with me, is to acknowledge that while I was dealing with my own challenges, a complex set of parallel events were unfolding, events that I had no knowledge of at the time, even though a number of them were about to smash up against me. In order to get to those events, I want to lay out a sense of what was happening beyond my immediate awareness. And perhaps the most effective way to do that is to take you into the mind of Andrew Bunderman, who, by virtue of his role in the command post, probably had the best overall picture of what was unfolding. While my comrades and I were engaged in half a dozen separate duels all across the outpost, the members of HQ Platoon, who were stationed inside the command post, were caught up in their own whirlpool of challenges, many of which were swirling around a single urgent and overriding fact. If Bunderman didn't figure out how to mobilize some assistance and swiftly hurl those assets against the enemy, our chances of surviving this ordeal were slim. At the moment, this goal was being thwarted by two problems, the most glaring of which was that Fritchie's mortars still weren't functioning. For the better part of the past forty minutes, the soldiers up at our OP had been withstanding withering machine gun and RPG fire while contending with at least one sniper. The fact that none of those men had been killed offered a testament to the advantage of holding the high ground. But that advantage was unexpectedly undermined when Staff Sergeant James Clark, who was probably the sharpest soldier in White Platoon, was hit in the chest with a round that went straight through one of his magazines. The bullet was stopped by Clark's ceramic chest plate, but not before striking a tracer round inside the magazine and igniting his vest. Suddenly, Clark found himself dealing with an emergency he'd never even known was possible. He was on fire, and if he didn't extinguish the flames immediately, they would ignite the remaining ammo on his chest and turn him into a Roman candle right there on the gun line. As Clark furiously patted down his vest, while continuing to return fire on the Mark 19 that he was manning, he realized that the round that was still lodged in his chest plate had come from the only place on top of the mountain that sat above Fritchie, a tiny auxiliary post that housed six members of the Afghan Border Patrol. Like the ANA soldiers down at Keating, these allies were supposed to provide additional support for Fritchie, and like their ANA counterparts, 
the Border Patrol soldiers had apparently abandoned their positions. In so doing, they had permitted their posts to be commandeered by a group of enemy fighters, who, as Clark could now see, were using the superior vantage to direct the bulk of their fire onto Fritchie's mortar pit. It also meant that Fritchie's attackers were now less than fifty yards from the perimeter. Clark, who was as competent and as cool-headed a man as you could wish for in a staff sergeant, called for the claymores on one side of Fritchie to be detonated, while simultaneously pulling one of his 240B machine gun teams off of his wall and sending them over to the mortar pit in the hopes of establishing some fire superiority in that sector. When combined with the assistance that Fritchie was finally receiving from the 155 howitzers at Bostick, whose shells were now exploding thunderously across the open ground on the southeast side of Fritchie, Clark had hopes of being able to get his mortar pit up shortly and start sending some rounds downrange in support of Keating. But for the moment, his team was still too preoccupied with defense to provide anything in the way of offense, a state of affairs that Jordan Bellamy, Clark's lieutenant who was in command of Fritchie, was now communicating to Keating. I still can't get to my mortar pit, Bellamy radioed to Bunderman. Okay, but the moment you guys can get there, I gotta have it, replied Bunderman. I gotta have it. With that, Bunderman turned to his second big problem, which was that although air support had finally arrived, the planes weren't yet able to engage. The first pair of F-15Es, the two strike eagles that had been ordered to Keating just as they were coming off of a night sortie, were now directly above the outpost. What's more, a priority target package, the set of coordinates that would help direct the laser-guided and GPS-guided bombs on board those fighter jets onto the putting green and the switchbacks, had already been selected by Bunderman and sent out to Bostick by Kaysen Schrode, who was in charge of artillery and air support. Unfortunately, however, moving this information from the Army to the Air Force involved a delay, that struck everyone inside the command post as understandable, but nevertheless maddening. Thanks to the mountainous terrain, it was impossible for the fighter pilots to radio Bostick and receive clearance for their bomb drops while they were flying directly over Keating. So the F-15s were forced to make a detour to Bostick to confirm their targets via line-of-sight radio and then return to Keating before they could release their ordnance. In the midst of a battle when a few seconds can make a difference between men living and men dying, a lag of even a minute or two can seem interminable. For Bunderman, who was listening to one sector of Keating's defense after another either collapse and fall back or go silent on the radio, the nine minutes that passed between the arrival of the first two F-15s and the release of their first bombs seemed like an eternity. When the bombs finally did land, the explosions were swallowed up by the roar of the enemy's incoming fire and never even registered among myself and the other defenders who were outside. Within the walls of the command post, however, the knowledge that the jets were unloading ordnance offered some satisfaction to Bunderman and his team. But their relief disappeared a few seconds later as the strike eagles radioed that they would have to disengage and return to base. They were extremely low on fuel. The handful of bombs that they'd managed to drop were in no way game-changers. They'd done little to deter our attackers, and virtually nothing to slow them down. And as if to underscore this fact, 
Kenny Days was now sending out his radio alert to let everyone know that we had Charlie in the wire, confirming just how thoroughly we'd been compromised. From the reports that Bunderman was receiving, he concluded that Keating had been breached in not one spot, but three. Somewhere between ten and fifteen Taliban had penetrated the Eastern Gate and were taking up positions inside the abandoned Afghan National Army barracks. On the opposite side of camp, a group of fighters had driven past the mortar pit, across the minefield of defunct claymores, and through the wall of concertina wire in the vicinity of the maintenance shed. And at more or less the same time, a third group had rushed the main gate and run past the Shura building. Having destroyed Hart's team and then forced Jones's team to fall back, elements from these latter two groups were now scurrying around the sector that we had just abandoned and, presumably, were preparing to attack the very center of camp. It was at this point that Bunderman decided it might not be a bad idea for him to change clothes. By now, he'd already taken the precaution of borrowing an extra set of armor from Schrode, whose bunk was at the back of the command post, and was wearing it over his shorts and T-shirt. But in addition to the fact that Schrode's gear was three sizes too big for him, Bunderman was clomping around in this oversized outfit while still wearing his flip-flops. The entire get-up struck him as ridiculous, so he asked one of the guys in the command post to go back to the barracks to grab his boots, helmet, and rifle. When his kit arrived, Bunderman was still wildly out of uniform, but at least he was geared for what came next. While continuing to man his radios and the SATCOM, he ordered guards posted on both the west and south doors. It was time to prepare for the very real possibility that the insurgents were about to assault the command post. In a situation like this, it turns out that the Army has a special code you're supposed to transmit that summons all available aircraft to drop whatever they're doing and rush to wherever the code originates. This is known as a broken arrow call, and it's reserved for a ground unit that finds itself surrounded and facing imminent destruction. When I later checked, I was surprised to learn that the call has been invoked only once, in November of 1965, when the U.S. 7th Cavalry, ironically, the very same unit that had fought under Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn 89 years earlier, was encircled by a regiment of North Vietnamese regulars in the Ai Drang Valley. Despite overwhelming odds, the commander of that unit, Colonel Hal Moore, and his men held out against repeated North Vietnamese assaults and managed to persevere. The reason I had to look all that up is that I'd never heard of such a thing before. Nor had anybody else at Keating, including Bunderman. If there'd been a memo on what sort of announcement you're supposed to send out just prior to having your teeth kicked through the back of your skull, nobody in Red Platoon had ever bothered to read the thing. In real life, whenever a situation skids out of control and you're a step or two away from getting totally shellacked, which was pretty much where we were headed in that moment, the kind of statement that goes out over the radio tends to be as blunt and as devoid of symphonic resonance as what Bunderman ordered sent up through the TAC chat. 6.50 a.m. Two Black Knight talk. Enemy in the wire! Enemy in the wire! As that call went out, Virtually every soldier in the center of camp was preparing to do the prudent and sane thing, which was to batten the hatches and hunker down. 
The single exception to this strategy was El Raz II, the battered gun truck at the westernmost end of the outpost, where Gallegos and his team were cut off from the rest of us and almost out of ammo. Instead of pulling further into their shell, they were about to do the opposite in the hopes of exploiting an odd opportunity that had arisen from Hart's failed rescue mission. Because Hart's stricken gun truck had served as such a powerful magnet for the fighters who were slithering through the concertina wire and the front gate, Gallegos's battle position underwent a brief and fleeting lull. The Humvee was still taking fire from the surrounding ridgelines, but for the first time in nearly an hour, it seemed that it might be possible to open a door on either side of the vehicle and step outside without instantly being shot to pieces from six different directions. Granted, this wasn't much of a let-up, and it clearly wasn't going to last. But it was enough to make Gallegos think that this might be their moment to make a move. And then something happened that drove any remaining doubt from his mind. Through the cracks and the bullet craters in the Humvee's front windshield, Gallegos and Larson both spotted a quartet of Taliban slithering over the top of the Hescos, roughly fifty yards to the west of them. These men had probably come up through the trash pit, and one of them was carrying an American M249 saw, a weapon whose distinctive profile is unmistakable. By the looks of them, all four of these men, who were sporting brown robes, chest racks loaded with bullets and hand grenades, and tennis shoes, were intent on pushing toward the center of camp, and there were undoubtedly more insurgents behind them. Gallegos had already framed up their exit plan, the key to which was that Larson and Carter would dismount on the left side of the truck and use their M4s to provide cover fire, while Gallegos, Mace, and Martin poured out of the right side of the truck and made a dash for the latrines. When they arrived, they'd immediately lay down enough fire to enable Larson and Carter to make the same run. From there, the team would split again and bound down to the Shura building. The other guys in the truck had all been polled to see if they were on board, and while everyone agreed that there was no way they could stay, nobody had been able to come up with a better idea for how to get out of the mess they were in. Hence, the only question was whether this was the time to launch. Hey, G, Larson asked Gallegos. Do we need to go now? Yeah, replied Gallegos. We gotta go. In addition to being the highest-ranking enlisted man in the truck, Gallegos had the most combat experience. Your call, dude, said Larson. All right, guys, it's now or never, announced Gallegos, turning to the men in the back seat and giving everyone a hard look. He received three crisp nods. Okay, let's go. During those final moments inside the Humvee, everybody was reasonably convinced that the plan was actually going to work. Gallegos and Larson seemed especially confident, and the three guys in the back seat picked up that vibe and fed off it. Their attitude toward the situation they faced could be best described as, Right on, bro. Let's get this done, and we'll see each other on the other side. The second the doors opened and they stepped out of the truck, that brittle sense of optimism shattered like glass. Because Larson was in the driver's seat, he posted up along the hood of the truck with the intention of engaging the snipers he'd spotted inside Ermul and along the putting green. At the same time, 
Carter was positioning himself between the front of the truck and the wall of sandbags. Alerted by their movements, the Taliban gunners who had been concentrating on Hart and his team abruptly switched their focus away from Truck 1 and swung back onto the crew of Elraz 2. The effect was immediate and devastating. In the same moment that Larson and Carter started laying down cover fire, an RPG struck a steel shipping container next to the gun truck and exploded. The blast completely enveloped Mace and Martin, coating both men with smoke and dust. Mace, who also took a full load of shrapnel to his legs and abdomen, was slammed to the ground while Martin started running, scrambled over a drop-off, and disappeared around the far corner of the latrines. I don't know what to do, cried Mace as he lay on the ground. Follow Gallegos, yelled Larson, who at this point had no idea that the impact from the rocket had all but demolished Mace's legs. As Mace struggled to obey Larson's command, Gallegos stepped over, lifted his injured comrade to his feet, and stumbled with him around the far side of the latrines. On the opposite end of the truck, Carter was poised and waiting for a signal from Larson to start his own run toward the latrines, when he heard a series of shots coming from the same spot where Gallegos and Mace had just disappeared. The next thing Carter knew, Gallegos was rounding the corner by himself. Mace wasn't anywhere in sight, and racing back to the truck as a Taliban gunner opened up on him from just above the mortar pit. As Carter watched, Gallegos took multiple bursts of fire to his chest, stomach, left arm, and right foot. When the first shots hit, he tried to return fire. He kept shooting as he was drilled by the second volley. The third burst put him on the ground. Meanwhile, one of the Taliban snipers inside Urmul drew a bead on Larson and shot him directly in the head. I have no idea what thoughts might have been going through Carter's mind in that moment as he scrambled back into the truck. But if it had been me, I know of at least one thing that I'd have been asking myself. How much time is left before they roll through me? That was one of the main questions that Bunderman was pondering as he stepped outside the command post for the first time that morning to get a first-hand view of what things looked like. The impression he got offered little more than a confirmation of the reports that he'd been receiving over the radio since the battle had kicked off. The entire camp was getting jackhammered from all sides, and that our perimeter was steadily compressing inward. Without massive air support, it was pointless for Bunderman to pretend that we could continue to defend our lines. As commander, he could therefore see that his only recourse was clear. Allow the outer wire to collapse, pull back to the inner HESCO barrier, and concentrate on defending Keating's core for as long as possible in the hopes that some robust air support would check on station before the Taliban ran us over. As it turns out, the Army has a name for the final defensive posture that's adopted by a unit which is facing the possibility of being overrun, and unlike the broken arrow call, most of us knew what this was. Fittingly, it's called the Alamo position. Bunderman was coldly aware that falling back to the Alamo position would leave nearly ten men, a fifth of his command, to fend for themselves. He also knew that most of those men 
were probably already dead. Within each of the three buildings where we would make our final stand, guys were now gathering up their remaining ammo, getting down on the floor, and aiming their guns at the doors as they prepared for a hand-to-hand fight for the final square feet of the outpost. Inside Red Platoon barracks, Raz turned to Kyle Knight, who had his machine gun aimed at the south door, and told him to kill anybody who tried to come through. Next door, the remaining members of Blue Platoon were gearing up to do the same in their barracks. But perhaps the most graphic indication of how far our backs were pressed against the wall was unfolding inside the aid station, where Shane Corville was ruefully casting his mind back to an exchange he'd recently had with First Sergeant Burton. Three or four days earlier, Corville had been part of a group of guys who were ordered to inventory all of the weapons in the arms room in preparation for Keating's decommission. As they sorted through the mix of rockets and guns, Corville had stumbled across something unexpected, a footlocker stuffed full of shotguns. He had no idea how they'd gotten there, but there were more than ten of them, and they were pretty sweet. Twelve-gauge pump-action Mossbergs with pistol grips and fourteen-inch barrels. And for no particular reason, other than that they seemed cooler than hell, Corville decided right there, on the spot, that he really wanted to have one, despite the fact that in a place like Keating, a shotgun was about the most useless weapon you could possibly think of. Hey, First Sergeant, Corville had called out to Burton. How about you let me grab one of these things? Negative, Burton had replied, shaking his head. If we ever get to where you actually need one of these motherfuckers, Doc, we're all going to be in a world of hurt. As the medics grabbed their carbines and leveled them on both doors, the memory of that conversation came back to Corville. Damn, he thought to himself. Wish I had me one of them Mossbergs right about now. Chapter 14 Light em Up As my comrades were busy fording themselves up inside the trio of buildings within the Alamo perimeter, I was making a run from the cafe to the command post, the structure that would be the most heavily defended, and thus the last to fall. When I burst through the door, I saw Bunderman standing there in the darkness. The generator was still down, with a battery-powered radio in each hand. Hovering next to him was Jonathan Hill, the sergeant who ran Blue Platoon. Both men were trying to make sense of the information that was pouring in from the radios, the SATCOM, and the TAC chat network. We have no indirect fire, Bunderman barked as soon as he saw me, which meant that neither our mortars nor Fritchies were up, and we're still waiting on full air support. Given that we were still on our own, the three of us needed to make some quick decisions about what to do next. But first, we had to resolve a fundamental disagreement over whether we were going to accept the mess we'd been shoved into or start shoving back. We need to hold our ground, dig in our heels, and wait for support, declared Hill. I didn't agree. In my estimation, hunkering down and waiting for whatever was coming at us might seem like a smart move on the surface, but it felt like a lousy approach, especially if the goal was not simply to survive, but to win. Plus, I didn't like where that road led, because we'd be ceding all maneuverability to the enemy while consigning ourselves to a passive role. If help didn't arrive in time, 
we'd be looking at hand-to-hand combat as the enemy systematically worked its way from one structure to the next, killing us off pocket by pocket. The last group of guys would wind up transmitting the grid lines for the center of camp and calling in a bomb drop on top of themselves, with the hope that one of them might survive inside the rubble long enough to be able to tell the story of what happened. Fuck that, I told Hill. We need to retake this camp. Okay, said Bunderman. What do we need to do? That question wasn't entirely necessary, because Bunderman already had a pretty good idea of what I was thinking. He was asking partly because doing so was in keeping with his inclusive style of leadership, and partly because he suspected, correctly, that he and I harbored slightly different notions of how to get to the goal that we shared. What we both had in mind was a counterattack, spearheaded by a single squad that would halt the Taliban's assault and set the stage for turning the tables on them. But while Bunderman wanted to go about this in a measured and methodical way, I was keen to get the first set of moves done in one go. Nevertheless, each of us harbored the same basic vision, at the heart of which lay a fairly simple idea that would require quite a bit of skill and a full shot of luck to pull off. Plus, each man who volunteered for this job would need a set of brass-plated balls. When Hill declared that he was game to give whatever I had in mind a try, the three of us turned to the map of Keating on the west wall and started walking through how it would go down. First, Hill would need to send a team from Blue Platoon to lock down the east side of camp by either clearing all of the Afghan National Army barracks or, failing that, blocking the pathways leading into the center of camp with anything they could find in order to slow down the enemy. Meanwhile, a team from Red Platoon would launch west with the aim of taking back the ground we'd lost. We were almost out of ammo, and we needed that to stay in the fight. So the first thing the guys from Red would do was make a push to the Hesco wall, about thirty yards from the command post, and then use that wall for cover as we forced our way to the ammo supply depot and retook the thing. Once we did that, we'd start kicking ammo back to the center of camp. Then we'd set up a pair of machine guns, one pointing across the river toward the Afghan National Police Station, the North Face and the Putting Green, the other looking uphill toward the maintenance shed, the waterfall and switchbacks, and most important, the area just inside the front gate. When those guns were in place, we'd start laying down some serious fire. Our next move would be to make a second push, this time from the ammo supply point to the Shura building. We'd enter and kill whoever was inside. Then we'd retake the front gate, close it down, and seal the thing off with claymores. And after that? asked Bunderman. Well, I replied, we'll figure out what comes next after we get all that done. As plans go, this wasn't super sophisticated, nor was it wildly innovative. In fact, what it really boiled down to was one of the first maneuvers that every soldier is taught within his first few weeks of joining the army, reacting to contact by setting up a support-by-fire maneuver. That's all it really was, although the support element was the key feature, which was the reason I then turned to Hill. When we get near the ammo supply point, we'll be rolling blind, I said. We won't be able to tell if there are any fighters around the Shura building or up by Gallegos's gun truck, 
so I need you to set a machine gun on our left flank to watch out for us. The machine gun team I was asking Hill to provide would need to set up somewhere around the chow hall so that they could look into and shoot up the piece of ground that me and my team wouldn't be able to see but would be charging toward during our two-part push to retake the ammo supply depot and the Shura building. Once we wrested back control of those structures, one of my machine guns would then be able to fire uphill toward a section of camp, the area between the mechanics bay and the mortar pit, that would be invisible to Hill's guys. Those two intersecting triangles of fire would transform the ground extending from our mortar pit to the front gate into a kill zone for any insurgent who tried to enter it. The crossfire would also enable the rest of my team to complete the final part of our move, hurling ourselves through the east door of the Shura building and seizing back control of the front gate. Hill and Bunderman nodded in agreement. Split your team, Bunderman ordered Hill, and put a machine gun up by the chow hall to cover Roe and his guys. As we confirmed that the plan was solid, Burton, who had been watching this exchange unfold, stepped over to our huddle. Hey, are you all right? He asked me. Burton had picked up on the fact that as we drew up our plan, I'd been shaking my wounded hand, the one that Raz had wrapped in a bandage a few minutes earlier, which now seemed to have gone numb. Can't feel my hand anymore, I replied. Let me see, said Burton, who started unwrapping the pressure dressing. As the bandage came off, I realized that Raz, who was an excellent machine gunner but a piss-poor medic, had basically put a tourniquet on my forearm cutting off the blood supply to my hand. As the feeling returned, Burton reapplied the dressing. Thanks for dressing me for school, Dad, I quipped as I prepared to push through the door and head over to the barracks to see if I could find some volunteers for this mission. I promise I'll be good. Just before heading out, however, there was one last detail I needed to take care of, something that connected back to Hart and his final radio transmission. One of the first things we teach young soldiers is that if you think you're going to have to make a run for it and you're going to leave some gear behind, it's critically important to make sure that your communications aren't compromised. The best way to do that is either by destroying your radio or zeroing it out, which entails erasing all the data inside it. Thinking back on Hart's final words, I realized that it was doubtful he'd had the time to take care of his radio. I also knew that the men who had taken out Hart had come through the front gate, where there was a second radio up in the guard tower, one that Davidson, the last guy who was manning that post, may not have managed to bring with him when he fled. Finally, I knew one other thing, which was that the guys who were doing their best to annihilate us had demonstrated intelligence at every stage of their attack. They had put together a complex and carefully choreographed assault, they had exploited every one of our weaknesses. They had exercised discipline and sound tactics. If they were smart enough to have done all of those things, they were certainly smart enough to grab hold of a radio and start monitoring the traffic in order to figure out what we were doing as we coordinated our next move. So we needed to cut them out of the communications loop, and the fastest way to do that was by calling for a net switch. When you transmit a net switch call, 
everyone who is listening immediately changes frequencies by jumping to a different channel. Anyone who is trying to eavesdrop but fails to make the jump is dropped from the network. It's an effective move, but it features one drawback. At this point, we had at least three separate groups of soldiers whose exact location and condition were unknown. Gallegos and his team were, I assumed, somewhere in the vicinity of their gun truck. Breeding's team was probably still up at the mortar pit, although we'd heard nothing from them for almost an hour. And then there was Hart and Griffin, about whom we also knew nothing. In total, there were almost a dozen of our comrades out there, and unless they were monitoring their radios carefully, they would have no way of knowing about the net switch. And once it had taken place, they'd be cut off. We had never agreed on a prearranged frequency to jump to. In other words, having failed to rescue these men, we would be severing their last line of connection to us. That sounds pretty brutal, but the possibility that the enemy might be able to listen to our plans and use that information against us was no less appealing. Plus, I reminded myself, any concerns about those guys getting booted off the net were negated by the fact that most of them were probably dead or in the process of dying. The choice was unpleasant, but clear. You need to call a net switch, I told Bunderman. He did so without hesitating. And with that, we cut them off. Then Bunderman gave me a crisp nod that said, in effect, go make something happen. When I look back on this part of our story now, I'm struck by two things the first of which is the harshness of some of the choices that confronted us, along with the speed and the cold sense of detachment with which we made them. It also gives me pause to take stock of the ferocity of our resolve during those moments. Odd as it may sound, I don't remember being scared or worried about dying, or even, for that matter, contemplating those things as possibilities. What I do recall is a sense of pure and absolute focus a kind of hyper-compressed fixation on a single aim, which was putting together a set of specific moves, a running combination of plays, that would enable us to regain the ground we'd lost and take back our fucking house. I remember something else, too, which was a sense that amid all the pandemonium and the confusion and the noise, it felt as if ten years of training and practice had fused together and coalesced into a single, laser-like sense of purpose. Finally, I had one other thought, a rogue idea hovering on the periphery of my mind, which was the notion that although we were girding to do what needed to be done all by ourselves, it sure would have been nice to have some help. More than anything else, it seemed to me, what we needed right now was an assist from the helicopter pilots in Jalalabad, the very same guys to whom... Just a couple of weeks earlier, we'd been planning to mail out a giant consignment of elephant shit. I suppose it's one of those poetic twists of fate that, as we were about to discover, they were doing everything possible to get to us. And by God, they were almost there. The first distress call from Keating had reached the command post of the 101st Airborne's Task Force Pale Horse at the Jalalabad airfield at 6.20 a.m., just as a group of Colonel Jimmy Blackwell's Apache pilots 
were sitting down to breakfast in the chow hall. They had already completed their early morning pre-flight briefing, and Ross Llewellyn had a spoonful of biscuits and gravy in his fist when the alert came through on a handheld radio that he carried with him. With that, everyone dumped their trays and headed for the door. There were four of them, and what was unusual was that each was a senior pilot with some very heavy combat experience under his belt. Llewellyn was a red-headed bear of a man who combined off-duty jollity with a sense of unflappable cool in combat. He was currently on his third deployment, having arrived at the 101st just before Pale Horse deployed to Afghanistan, and he served as the task force's master gunner. Together with his co-pilot, Chad Bardwell, Llewellyn had been in almost every major air engagement since they'd arrived in Afghanistan. As impressive as that was, however, Randy Huff and Chris Wright, the other two-man team, had actually been in all of those battles. Under normal circumstances, you'd never have a foursome of the most seasoned pilots all working the same shift. But they had all just returned from the States, late summer being the time when the older men in the task force who had families preferred to take their one-month leaves. And they decided to give a break to their junior colleagues, who had been working non-stop in their absence. That morning, the weather in the skies above Keating seemed perfect. But at Jalalabad, a different picture was emerging on the radar screens inside the command post, where Blackman and his team could see multiple fronts moving in from the west that would, over the next eight hours, usher thunderstorms, lightning, and a dense ceiling of low-hanging cloud cover into the surrounding mountains, first around Jalalabad, then at Lowell and Bostick, and finally over Keating itself. Their sortie consisted of two AH-64 Apaches. In an Apache, the senior pilot typically takes the back seat and is responsible for flying the aircraft, while his junior partner in the front seat is responsible for weapons and communications. This is generally the arrangement, although these roles can and often do reverse. The front seat man has a full set of flight controls, while the pilot in the back seat has complete access to the radio and the guns. Llewellyn would be piloting the first aircraft, with Bardwell in the front seat. Huff would fly the second, with Wright handling his weapons and radios. The plan was for them to head to Bostick first, in order to refuel, and proceed from there to Keating. But as they lifted off and started pushing their choppers up through the Kunar Valley, the radio updates they received on the developments at Keating made it clear to the pilots that things were rapidly getting worse. The perimeter's been breached, Colonel Brown radioed to Wright from the command post at Bostick about ten minutes later. They fired their final protective fire. You can expect to see enemy fighters intermixed with our guys on the outpost. With this news, the pilots decided on the spot that they would bypass Bostick and proceed directly to Keating by cutting straight over a series of high ridge lines to the southeast, which would bring them in on the backside of the outpost. The loss of their refueling stop would mean that they'd have less time to spend in the air once they arrived. But if they pushed their birds as fast as possible, this direct line would enable them to shave several minutes off of their flight time and get there sooner. As an added bonus, because this approach was outside their normal flight route, it might enable them to avoid the Taliban's early warning detection system, which consisted of spotters with cell phones on the valley floor and perhaps surprised the attackers before they knew what hit them. 
At 7.06 a.m., Wright contacted Brown for another update and was told that the Taliban were inside the camp. Anyone outside the wire is hostile, Brown said. You are clear to engage. Throughout the flight, Bardwell, who was in charge of communicating with the American forces on the ground, was making repeated radio calls to Keating and failing to raise a response. As frustrating as this was, it was nothing compared with the feeling he experienced when the Apaches cleared the final ridgeline at 7.10 a.m., and they saw the outpost splayed below. Oh, shit, said Bardwell. It's burning. The bottom of the valley was obscured by dense black smoke, while the outpost itself was in flames. From the air, the fire appeared so massive that it looked as if everything was burning. As the Apaches circled above, Bardwell repeated his radio calls at five-second intervals while wondering if it was possible that Keating had already been overrun and that none of the defenders had survived. He and Llewellyn both had a sinking feeling that they may have arrived too late. Roughly ninety seconds later, an interval that Bardwell would later claim was one of the longest minutes and a half of his life, he finally got a response from Bunderman, who had just finished up his powwow with me and Hill over how to retake the ammo supply point and the Shura building. Guns cold, declared Bunderman, letting the pilots know that Keating's artillery was still down. Anyone outside the wire is hostile. We're down to about two or three buildings. We have enemy inside the wire. We need you guys to work on taking care of people outside, and we'll kill everybody inside. Layered over the sound of Bunderman's voice, Bardwell could hear the roar of continuous gunfire. He was impressed by how calm Bunderman sounded. We need to know what building you're in, replied Bardwell. Can you recognize the front gate from where you are? asked Bunderman. At this point, the smoke from our fires was so thick that it obscured pretty much everything. Negative, replied Bardwell, who was peering through a screen connected to the target acquisition sensor mounted in the nose of his Apache. This device was essentially a black-and-white video feed, dubbed Day TV, that the pilots used to scan their targets on the ground. The system can be switched to heat-sensing infrared at night. Hey, we're not shooting inside the cop, barked Llewellyn, breaking into the same channel. We can't see well enough, and I don't know where they're at. No sooner had Llewellyn completed that sentence than Bardwell caught sight of movement on his day TV video feed along the far eastern side of the outpost just beyond the Afghan National Army barracks at the edge of camp. A line of more than thirty fighters was winding down the trail that descended from the diving board. They were clad in man-jams, and they were heavily armed with RPGs, AK-47s, and PKM machine guns. It was clear that the entire force was heading toward the breach in the wire where the Afghan army had abandoned their positions and left the camp wide open to attack. When the Apaches dropped down a bit lower, most of the insurgents halted in their tracks. Then, realizing they were caught, the bulk of them began running toward the outpost while a handful of others turned around and fled back in the direction they'd come. Hey, I got a full platoon-sized element moving toward your location, said Bardwell, a bit stunned by how many Afghans he could see down there. He had never observed that many insurgents at one time on his screen. In fact, 
Over the course of three deployments, he'd never once seen such a large force attacking a single static position. This wasn't the way that the Taliban would normally hit a compound, and he wanted to be absolutely certain that these men weren't Afghan allies who were helping to buttress Keating's defense. Do you have any ANA out there? asked Bardwell. No, replied Bunderman. Anyone outside the wire is hostile. Light them up. An Apache's 30mm cannon has two hand grips, one that operates the trigger for a laser, and the other connected to an M230 chain gun that is mounted directly underneath the nose of the aircraft and moved by hydraulic actuators. It is a fearsome machine that can fire at a rate of 625 rounds per minute. Those rounds, each of which is almost half the length of a man's forearm and twice as thick as his thumb, explode on impact, creating a lethal killing radius of more than ten feet. A single ten-round burst from the gun can cut down mature trees. Human beings don't stand a chance. Flesh shreds. Limbs are torn off. Torsos, heads, and bits of unidentifiable remains are hurled into the air and thrown a long, long way. At this point, both helicopters were circling the outpost in a left orbit and separated by a lateral distance of about 3,000 yards. Llewellyn and Bardwell were flying roughly 1,200 feet off the ground, while Huff and Wright were 500 vertical feet above them. Under normal conditions, Bardwell and Wright would have had a quick discussion about how to coordinate their respective sectors of fire, something along the lines of, Chad, you start on the south side, I'll start on the north, and we'll meet in the middle. At that moment, however, there were so many enemy, and they were so close to the wire, that both gunners had the same thought, which was to obliterate them as quickly as possible, starting at the bottom with the fighters who were closest to the perimeter and methodically working up the side of the mountain to take out the rest. So Bardwell and Wright seized the handles of their 30-millimeter cannons and sent a series of bursts directly into the insurgents. From their aircraft, neither gunner could discern what was happening, aside from seeing fist-sized clouds of dust erupting everywhere but they could hear and feel the power of the chain guns, which were mounted directly underneath them and which made their seats shake. Some 1,800 feet down below, the effect was brutal and exceedingly violent. Men who moments earlier had cohesion and purpose were reduced to bits of meat and ragged strips of cloth. There wasn't a man left standing. Each helicopter was carrying 300 rounds, and at the end of half a dozen trigger pulls, they weren't even close to going Winchester, which would mean they were black on ammo. Moreover, each chopper still had several 2.75-inch rockets packed with flechettes, along with its Hellfire missiles. So the pilots continued their orbits and scanned the ridge along the spur that ran from Fritchie to Keating, looking for muzzle flashes and tracer fire. Spotting somewhere between 40 and 50 separate locations with two or three enemy fighters, they got to work targeting as many of those pockets as possible before they ran low on fuel and had to return to Bostick. But they had already accomplished perhaps their most effective stroke of the entire day. If those four pilots had arrived five minutes later, the second wave of fighters preparing to storm the eastern side of camp would almost certainly have overwhelmed us and nobody would have survived.
Thanks to their ability to fly low and, when necessary, take a ferocious beating, the Apaches offer a level of support unequaled by any other aircraft. This would be the first of several times when they would save our bacon that day. But despite their marvelous advantages, the choppers were not capable of weeding out and eliminating the fighters who were already inside our wire. That task needed to be tackled by men who had their boots on the ground and were willing to engage in a direct eyeball-to-eyeball gunfight, inch by inch and shot by shot, for this contested piece of dirt. On that score, we were still very much on our own. By now, many members of Red Platoon who were not actively fighting on the perimeter or dead had holed up inside our barracks, where they were joined by some guys from Blue and HQ platoons plus a handful of extremely confused and frightened Afghan soldiers. It was an eclectic mix that included a number of our youngest and most traumatized soldiers, like Justin Gregory and Nicholas Davidson, along with some experienced hands like Kenny Days and Jim Stanley, the staff sergeant from Red, who had taken over as sergeant of the guard just before the attack kicked off. There were some aggressive badasses like Jones and Raz, and there were some guys like Kyle Knight, who fell closer to the timid end of the spectrum. Finally, there were also a few guys like Matthew Miller, a sergeant with headquarters platoon who had arrived at Keating less than 48 hours earlier, who were simply wondering how in the hell they'd gotten themselves into this fix. For the last 10 or 15 minutes, these men had been trickling through the door from every direction, driven inside by the knowledge that our defenses were breached and that our perimeter could no longer hold. Some were clearly freaked out, stricken with fear or shuddering on the verge of all-out panic. All of them knew that things were getting worse, not better. And not one of them, if you'd asked at that moment, would have told you that he expected to live beyond the next thirty minutes. It's pretty bad out there right now, Raz said to Armando Avalos, one of our forward observers. If you go out, you're just going to die. Most of these guys were lying on the floor with either a machine gun or their carbines, and when I burst through the door, they all looked up at the same time. Part of what defines an effective leader at the level of an infantry platoon is knowing that in difficult situations, actions carry greater weight than words. In that moment, I could not have asked these men to participate in a counterattack unless I demonstrated that I was willing to take part in it myself and run the show. We're taking this bitch back, I announced. I need a group of volunteers. Who's with me? During the pause that followed, the silent interval when the guys in that room stared up and took in what I'd just said, I'm pretty sure that each of them was convinced that I'd lost my marbles. Judging by the looks on their faces, their collective response seemed to amount to a single question. Are you freaking kidding then Raz, the former meth addict who had never finished high school and who had lived in people's basements until he joined the army, stood up, all six and a half feet of him. Half a second later, Danley, Jones, and Miller, the new arrival, rose as well. They were joined by Mark Delaney, a short young guy who was known for being fast and light on his feet. We'll follow you anywhere, declared Raz. What are we doing? five guys. I had my team. I gave them a quick sketch of the plan and where we'd be heading, 
the ammunition depot, the Shura building, the front gate, and I explained that we'd have some crossfire cover from Hill's machine gun team. Any questions? I asked. Uh, just one, said Jones, who had no idea that the locks had already been ripped off the ammo supply point. Do we need a key to get into the ammo shed? Stupid question, Jonesy, I replied, giving him the if-you-expect-an-answer-don't-ask-me-a-dumb-question glare that I reserve for my junior enlisted guys. No more hands were raised, so we moved on to the business of gearing up. By this point, we were out of ammo for the big machine guns, so most of us were down to our personal weapons. I'd handed the Dragunov off to Hill when I was inside the command post and now had an M4, which was what Jones, Danley, Miller, and Raz had too, although Raz also had a 203 grenade launcher attached to his carbine. The only person with anything bigger was Dulaney, who was holding a squad automatic weapon, whose chief advantage is its shockingly high rate of fire. Touch the trigger, and a saw will send out such a dense torrent of rounds, it feels like you've broken open the gate valve on a water main. Five M4s plus a saw would be a normal loadout for a standard six-man fire team. But for this job, it was way too light. If I'd had my way, every man on the squad would have been carrying a machine gun. Lacking that, I wanted at least one more heavy weapon. And at the moment, the only other guy in the barracks who had a saw was Gregory, who was sitting near the west door. Hey, Greg, we need an assault gunner, said Raz, who'd read my thoughts. You up for this? Honestly, no, replied Gregory, who seemed to be in a state of shock from the ordeals he had already endured. I don't know if I can do it. Then Jones stepped over to Gregory. Hey, dude, no worries at all, he said softly. Just swap out with me and we're cool, okay? So Gregory and Jones traded weapons. One last thing, guys, I said, pointing to the west door where we'd make our exit. There are no friendlies on the other side. Even if they're wearing an American uniform, do not hesitate to shoot first. Anybody you see in front of you is hostile. Roger that? I got five nods in response. All right, then. Let's roll. As I moved toward the door, there was one thing left unsaid a part of this mission that I hadn't bothered to mention in the briefing I'd just given. We were launching a counterattack for a range of reasons. To regain our ammo supply, to seal off our front gate, to push the Taliban back beyond the wire, to take back our house, and to unleash some intensely violent payback on the men who had slaughtered our comrades. But there was another objective as well, one that, in some ways, transcended everything else. It was well known that the Taliban placed great value on American bodies, which they removed from the battlefield and filmed, then posted the resulting videos on the Internet. If that happened with Larson or any of the rest of my team, those of us who survived would spend the rest of our lives trying to get those YouTube images out of our heads. For these reasons, we had to get our dead back too even if the effort to retrieve them might entail losing more guys, me included. Given what we stood for and what we believed in, we really had no other choice.
Part 4. Taking the Bitch Back. Chapter 15. Launch Out. It was probably somewhere just before 8 a.m. when we stacked up at the east end of Red Barracks, just behind the door facing the command post, and prepared to launch our counterattack. The battle was now nearly two hours old, and half a dozen of our men were dead, with another six still unaccounted for. By this point, the entire eastern side of the outpost was burning furiously, generating dense streams of black smoke that would help to conceal us as we made our run. My plan was for us to roll in a tightly packed mass, moving with an emphasis on speed rather than shooting accuracy. The order of the men, who was where and carrying which weapon inside the formation, was less important than violently closing the distance with the enemy and bull-charging them off of the ammo supply wall. The only nuance to this strategy was to make sure that Raz would be the first person through the door. The reason I wanted him on point, and he knew it, was that if we were hit by a stream of fire, his massive frame would serve as a shield and hopefully enable the men behind him to stay alive long enough to complete this phase of the assault. Here we go, doing it, Jones muttered to himself just before we pushed out. Let's see what happens. If this were a battle drill, we would have either been bounding in teams or performing a move called a rolling cover fire, which entails shooting and running at the same time. Since this was not a drill, and thanks to the fact that we had to pull this move off by ourselves with no support by fire, there was nothing to do except charge en masse, which was pretty much the crudest and least tactical maneuver one would care to imagine. To the extent that we even had a strategy— the theory was that if we encountered resistance, Raz would soak up most of the rounds, and as he died, the rest of us would throw his body into whoever was doing the shooting, then beat them to death with our carbines. From that standpoint, what we were doing wasn't really a military move as much as a gangster-style football play. It was also kind of awesome. Instantly, we started taking heavy fire from the switchbacks and the diving board, but the smoke, along with our speed, made it tough for those shooters to get a bead on us as we charged across the open area toward the Hescos that cut the camp in half along the edge of the ammo supply depot. When we hit that wall of Hescos, we banged a sharp right and followed the wall north until we got to the far corner, where we pulled up short. At the end of the Hescos was the Haji shop, the small five-by-eight-foot room that doubled as both the living quarters for John Deere the commander of Keating's Afghan security guards, and also the place where he sold cigarettes, chewing tobacco, pirated DVDs, and other items. As we got to the corner, I peered around and saw that the plywood door to the shop was closed. That wasn't good. If anyone was in the room, they would be able to shoot all six of us in the back as we were setting up our security. That threat had to be eliminated. The best tool for the job, by far, was hand grenades. Unfortunately, we'd used up all of ours, and the only way to get more was by reaching the ammo depot. So the Haji shop would have to be neutralized by hand, a task that fell to me and Delaney. Though I couldn't see inside, I was familiar with the interior layout. I knew that the ceiling was low and made of plywood, and that the walls were covered with blankets. I also knew that John's bed was on the right side of the room and that most of his stock was on a set of shelves to the left, 
along with his TV set, which sat in the corner. Finally, I knew there was a cubbyhole directly behind the bed with a couch beside it. That cubbyhole was my biggest concern. As Danny and I posted up on either side of the door, I gave him the plan. Look, I don't want to see any fancy double-tap stuff, I said. Raz is going to take care of the door, then you and me are going to spray and clear. We both start in the center. Keep your M4 on a three-round burst and work to your right while I go left. Anybody who's inside dies. Got it? He nodded. With that, Raz kicked in the door, then me and Danny entered and dropped to waist level, kneeling shoulder to shoulder. I took the center left, he took the center right. We opened up and took the room apart with our guns, destroying everything, including the TV. There was no one inside. Clear! yelled Danny. Phase one of our assault was in the bag. Before turning to phase two, we needed to set up a security team by placing our two machine gunners in positions that would enable them to cover as many sectors of fire as possible. I immediately put Dulaney on the corner of the Hescos that made up the west wall of the Haji shop. By kneeling down on one leg and using the corner of that wall to steady his saw, he could fire uphill toward the mechanics bay, the laundry trailer, the waterfall area, part of the switchbacks, and, off to his far right, a portion of the trench that led to the east door of the Shura building. This would enable him to shoot anybody who tried to move through the open area in the western side of the outpost. Directly behind Delaney, less than ten feet away, there was an eight-by-eight-foot window in the Hesco wall that formed the northern perimeter of the outpost. This opening, which offered just enough room for a machine gunner and his assistant, and which was normally manned by the Afghan security guards, was known as the northern fighting position. It commanded a view that included our helicopter landing zone, the rickety footbridge leading to the shoreline at the bottom of the north face, part of the Afghan security guard's checkpoint, and a good stretch of the road leading to Ermul, along with the north side of the putting green. That's where I ordered Jones to set up. Jones and Delaney were now posted back to back and facing in opposite directions so that their combined sectors of fire covered both the north and the south. When they were in position and ready to fire, they both called, Set! That was the signal for me and the rest of the guys to secure the ammo supply depot, just ten feet away. The doors to the ASP were partly open, and one of them still had a lock dangling from a broken clasp. Miller seized hold of the closest door and swung it all the way open, enabling me to step in with my weapon raised and ensure that no one was inside. Clear, I said. Time to reload. We started by plucking out a crate of fragmentation grenades and setting it beside Jones. Then we started grabbing whatever we thought we needed in order to beef up for our next move. This included linked machine gun ammo for the 240s, the Mark 48s, and the saws, as well as loose rounds for the assault rifles, snub-nosed 203 rounds for the grenade launchers, linked grenades for the Mark 19, and a bunch of Claymore mines, plus a couple of choice items like a pair of AT-4s, which Raz eagerly seized, and which would come in handy shortly. As we were getting our stash together, a line of guys from all three platoons suddenly showed up, courtesy of Bunderman, who had ordered everyone to hustle out of their barracks, and we started handing bullets and ordnance out in bulk. 
Here's 2,000 rounds of 7.62 for the Mark 48 machine gun. Here's a crate of linked 5.56 to the saws. Here's a case of Mark 19 ammo. Get this to Copus now. They disappeared into the enemy fire to make their deliveries, then swiftly came back for more. On his return trip, one of the ammo runners brought up a 240B machine gun, which we immediately swapped out for Jones's saw. Within a few minutes, we were feeling pretty solid. We had a medium-range light machine gun and a long-range heavy machine gun. We had as much ammo as we could possibly wish for, along with a couple of other items that could wreak some serious havoc. All we needed now was for Hill to finish getting his machine gun team in place up by the chow hall, and we'd be ready to make our next move. Suddenly, we heard a burst of fire, followed by a warning shout. We got guys! We got guys! yelled Delaney as he opened up with the saw. Three Taliban carrying AK-47s were making a rush from the area where the front gate was located, a kill zone that was invisible to us, but from which they should have been destroyed by Hill's machine gun team and racing toward the mechanics bay. They ran as fast as they could while Dulaney chased them with the tracer rounds from his gun. As the trio of gunmen disappeared behind the building, which was basically a large garage made of plywood, Four more insurgents popped up from behind the laundry trailer and the latrines, which was another area that should have been covered by Hill's team. It was clear that they were intending to set up their own support by fire so that their comrades would be able to assault directly into us. My gaze snapped back to the mechanics bay, where I could now see two of the three gunmen peeking their heads around the corner. Just then, Lakis, the Latvian first sergeant, showed up to see if there was anything he could do to lend us a hand. Once again, he was carrying his grenade launcher. Lakis, it's just plywood, I barked. Hit him with your 203. Without hesitating, he launched the first in a series of grenades into the mechanics bay. He didn't bother taking careful aim, preferring instead to start blowing holes through the walls. As each grenade penetrated the cheap plywood sheeting, we could hear the explosions inside. Puffed, ba wham. Puffed, ba wham. Puffed, ba wham. While Lakis sent out one grenade after another, Delaney started stitching a ragged line down the entire length of the building at waist height with his saw. The combined fire was so murderous that the insurgents on the other side of the structure flung themselves inside a pickup truck parked behind the building, but it did them no good. Although the truck was invisible to Lakis and Dulaney, the rounds they were putting out went straight through the mechanics bay and shot the truck to pieces. Later on, we would discover the interior and the sides of the truck smeared thickly with blood. All of this should have been satisfying, but I was appalled that the enemy was moving so freely through the sectors of camp that were invisible to us. The crossfire that should have cut them to ribbons hadn't materialized. Where the hell was Hill's team? As it turned out, instead of getting his machine gun in place up by the chow hall to cover our assault, Hill had been focusing most of his attention on securing the eastern side of the outpost. In some ways, this made sense. The Afghan National Army compound was now a raging inferno, and if that fire was not brought under control, it threatened to breach our final defensive perimeter and engulf the buildings inside the Alamo position. 
Hill was also concerned that Taliban fighters might be moving into that side of camp by using the smoke and flames as cover. Finally, he was worried that the Afghan army's ammunition stash, which abutted two of our barracks buildings, would cook off and blow up. To deal with all of this, Hill had sent Sergeant Eric Harder and a handful of Blue Platoon's senior-ranking soldiers toward the eastern part of camp, with orders to fight the flames and shoot any Taliban fighters they might see. Unfortunately, that plan had started to unravel when Harder and his team opened the door to the first building they needed to clear, the barracks for HQ platoon, and were greeted with thick clouds of smoke, indicating that the structure was already on fire. Finding no one inside, they'd moved through a narrow alleyway to the northeast, where they'd posted up and started shooting at shadowy figures inside the burning Afghan barracks, whom they'd assumed to be enemy fighters. When the flames became too intense, they rushed over to the adjacent building, where they feverishly gathered up whatever material they could get their hands on, bullets, radios, first aid supplies, and began ferrying those items back toward the center of camp. This might have been a good strategy if me and my guys weren't attempting to launch a counterattack in the opposite direction, the success or failure of which would determine whether we were able to retake Keating or got wiped out. Under the circumstances, however, putting out flames and preventing our valuables from getting torched was of secondary importance, a fact that Harder fully grasped, even if his boss didn't. Hey, let me get that machine gun in place for Roe and his team. Harder was now radioing to Hill. We need to move up to the chow hall. Each request was met by the same reply from Hill. No, you need to stay where you're at. Harder was clearly frustrated. He knew that we desperately needed some machine gun support to complete the next phase of our assault. Without effective cover fire from the chow hall, my own team would be dangerously exposed as we made our run toward the Shura building. Getting that gun in place was absolutely critical, and in Harder's view, the breakdown in communication between himself and Hill had now put me and my squad in peril. As if to underscore Harder's assessment, a group of Taliban attackers just outside Keating's northern perimeter were already running past the Afghan security guard checkpoint toward the front gate, with the clear intention of setting up a flanking maneuver that would destroy any attempt we made to retake the Shura building. Unfortunately for those enemy fighters, however, Jones had spotted their move and knew exactly what they were trying to do. By now, Jones had his machine gun poised inside the window that looked out from the northern fighting position. Scanning down the barrel of the Mark M240B, he had a commanding view of the entire north face, our helicopter landing zone at the confluence of the Lande Sin and Daria Kushtaz rivers, and the Afghan National Police Station. He couldn't see the front gate or the village of Ermul, which were both blocked by the Shura building but he was in a superb position to observe the open ground that the enemy fighters would have to cover if they wanted to send reinforcements through our front gate. So when he realized that a cluster of insurgents lay partially concealed in a variety of spots spread across his sector of fire, he started laying down the law. At the base of the putting green, roughly 200 yards away, was a large egg-shaped rock, behind which five enemy fighters were attempting to hide. When they realized that Jones had them in his sights, they broke cover and tried to sprint over a low hill that was strewn with small bits of shale in order to take shelter inside Urmul. 
Showing no mercy whatsoever, Jones ruthlessly picked those men off, directing an accurate five-round burst into each fighter before moving on to the next and dropping all of them in their tracks. It was impressive and devastating to watch, although the spectacle wound up creating an unexpected problem. In the process of getting Jones set up inside his HESCO window, I had ordered Danley to drop down beside Jones's shoulder and serve as his assistant gunner, which meant that he'd be feeding belts of ammo into the M240 to ensure that the gun didn't jam. Even more important, Danley was also supposed to be compensating for the fact that Jones had a dangerous blind spot. Thanks to the thickness and height of the HESCO barrier, on which his gun was set up, Jones could see only the far side of the road directly below him. The near side of that road, which ran along the outside of Keating, was invisible to Jones. Thanks to this dead space, any enemy fighters who skirted along the Hescos could sneak up directly beneath the window where Jones was set up and kill him. So Danley's primary duty was to prevent that from happening by peering over the edge and monitoring the dead space. Unfortunately, Danley quickly forgot all about this part of his job because it was so much more exciting to watch Jones's shooting and act as his cheerleader. Oh yeah, dude, get them fuckers! He exclaimed as Jones started obliterating the insurgents. Right on! Open that shit up! Jones, who was focused on shooting, had no idea that his assistant was paying zero attention to the dead space directly below him. Cool. Me and Danley got a pretty good thing going right now, he thought to himself, as he finished off the last fighter, scanned for another target, and caught sight of another Taliban team attempting to work its way toward the front gate. That comradely vibe was rudely shattered when Danley abruptly started calling out in a high-pitched voice, Hey, you there! Stop! he cried. Stop right there! What the fuck is he talking about? Jones wondered as he squeezed the trigger and started hammering down on the men in the distance. Jones wasn't the only one baffled that Danley, in the middle of a firefight, had suddenly started sounding like a security guard at a Costco parking lot. Right along the edge of the Hescos, where we were kneeling next to the doorway to John Deere's room, Raz and I shot each other a look of total bewilderment, and then we both rushed over and peered down into the dead space. Less than ten feet away, a Taliban fighter wearing a camouflage uniform was staring straight up at Jones with a wolfish grin as he unslung his AK-47 and took aim. Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Raz and I screamed at the top of our lungs as Jones, who now realized what was happening, struggled to muscle his machine gun over the edge of the parapet and lower the barrel far enough to shoot the man below while yelling at Danley to get out of the way. Meanwhile, Danley, who should have spotted this dude long before he'd gotten in position to waste Jones, but was still in the best spot to take care of the problem, stood up, aimed, pulled the trigger, and realized, too late, that he still had his safety engaged. In the half second that it took for Danley to click the safety off, the Taliban flicked his eyes away from Jones and snapped off a crisp burst. One of his bullets drilled Danley in the left arm, splitting open his triceps and shoulder like a ripe tomato, while another buried itself in Jones's helmet and snapped the Kevlar band on which his blood type and roster number were displayed. 
as Danily dropped to the ground, crying, I'm shot! I'm shot! Raz and I both reached into our racks, pulled out a grenade, and pulled the pin. Without needing to say a word, Raz dropped his straight over the wall. I tossed mine slightly farther out. Two seconds later, when they both detonated at virtually the same instant, shreds of camouflage clothing flew into the air, surrounded by a pinkish mist. Holy crap, did that just happen? exclaimed Raz. We looked at each other in astonishment, and then we both started laughing. By this point, Jones had confirmed that his head hadn't been blown off, but Danily was writhing with pain and covered with blood. Crouching next to him, I unzipped his aid pouch and reached in to pull out a pressure dressing that would stop the bleeding, but my fingers closed around something crinkly. When I withdrew my hand, I was looking at a packet of peanut butter crackers. In further confirmation of the fact that Danily was not our platoon's number one draft pick, he discarded his first aid kit to make room for snacks to munch on when he was on guard duty. It was one thing to pull this kind of stunt in training back in Colorado. It was something else entirely to do it in a war zone. Yanking a spare pressure dressing from my own pouch, I bound it tightly around his arm without caring how much it hurt, then stood him up and gave him a hard stare. He'd come within a frog's hair of getting Jones killed. Almost as bad, he'd allowed himself to get shot. See the aid station over there, I said, pointing east and giving him a shove. Get moving. Then, out of sheer disgust, I planted my boot as far up his backside as I could before turning around to deal with the business at hand. Despite Danily's incompetency, we seemed to be holding our own, at least for the moment. Delaney and Lakis were still going to town on the plywood-sided mechanics bay, while Jones was now back on his machine gun and concentrating on a pair of fighters whom he had driven from their cover near the Afghan police checkpoint, almost 200 yards away, and were now racing up the road to the north. Those guys had to cover about 500 yards before the road started to bend with the river and curved out of sight. Jones smoked the second runner in his tracks, but the fighter in the lead was quite a bit faster. He was just a few steps from getting away, running at a dead sprint, when Raz got him in the crosshairs of the scope on his M4. He shot once and saw the bullet kick up a puff of dust at the man's feet, adjusted, then fired a second time and dropped the runner like a sack of goat shit. It was probably the finest shot Raz had ever made. Meanwhile, Jones was taking a harder look at the police checkpoint, where the two insurgents had been hiding before they broke cover. The checkpoint was a stone and concrete cube with a flat roof, and it sat on flat ground and was backed by a sheer cliff that rose all the way to the top of the putting green. Just behind the building, the Taliban had set up a machine gun team. That team had a clear line of fire along the entire front gate area, including the guard tower on top of the Shura building, and thanks to the height of our Heskos, Jones couldn't get a clear shot at any of them. He had them pinned down, but no way of eliminating them. The best he could do was lay a barrage of raking fire over their heads. Hey, Sergeant Rowe, Jones called out. What's going on? I asked, kneeling down next to him. I got some dudes pinned down behind the checkpoint building, 
right underneath the tree next to that blue tarp. This was another example of how you really had to give the Taliban credit. Their gun emplacement reflected some careful planning, as well as a shrewd command of small unit tactics. Until we figured out a way to get rid of them, they would be able to put fire directly on the front gate. I turned to Raz, who was just behind me and Jones. Do you have any smokers for your 203? I asked. Hell yeah, I do. Okay, find out if you can put one on that gun, and then we'll see what the Apaches can do. After eliminating the 30 fighters with their chain guns, the Apache pilots had spent the past half hour orbiting the skies above Keating, staying high enough to avoid small arms fire from the ridgelines, then making selective gun runs on whatever targets they could spot. But unlike the large group of fighters they had eliminated on the eastern side of camp, the roof of the police checkpoint and the machine gun concealed beneath the tree were extremely hard to spot from the air. To solve that problem, I had in mind something called shifting from a known point. If Raz could put a smoke grenade within a few feet of the target, the bright-colored smoke spewing from the canister, green, purple, pink, or yellow, would offer everyone a hard point of reference. That, in turn, would allow us to walk the pilots directly onto the target via radio. It's an effective technique, in theory. But we quickly ran up against two problems. First, in order to reach the checkpoint, Raz would have to lean far out over the edge of the Hesco wall while firing through the branches of a tree that loomed directly above us. And second, it was taking too long to get the directions to the pilots because the information had to be relayed from me to the command post where Bunderman passed the instructions to at least one other radio operator until the message reached one of the two Apache gunners. Tell the pilot that where that green smoke is off to the southwest at 400 meters, there's a group of guys under the tree behind the rocks. I radioed Bunderman. By the time this information got to the Apaches, the grenade had burned off, and the smoke had already begun to dissipate. It also didn't help that the Apaches couldn't stay in one place. Ross Llewellyn and Randy Huff, the pilots, had to switch direction continuously in order to avoid the ground fire that was being directed at them from the ridgelines. Bunderman, who was monitoring the traffic on the fire's net, could hear how challenging this was for the pilots. We don't see the smoke. Fire another grenade. We cannot identify your target. Fire again. Realizing that our system wasn't working, Bunderman decided to cut himself out of the loop. Ro, I want you to switch to the fire's net frequency, he ordered. I turned the knob on the top of my radio to the number six position, which was preset to the fire's net. Next thing I knew, Bardwell's voice was coming directly into my earpiece. I was now in control of a four-blade twin-turboshaft AH-64 attack helicopter armed with a 30-millimeter chain gun. As that handoff took place, Raz was doing his best to get a smoker closer to the target. Knowing he was working at the extreme end of his 203's range, he aimed his barrel high in the air. We're about to fire again, I informed Bardwell. Raz squeezed off the shot, and we watched as the grenade sailed through the air and landed 200 yards away from the tree that was concealing the gun crew. Yellow, 200 yards south, I said. All right, we see it. Bardwell's bird was almost directly above us when he opened up with his cannon. 
Jones, who had his eyes locked on the target, was shocked as he watched the explosive-tipped 30-millimeter rounds obliterate not simply the fighters and their weapon, but the entire tree under which they were sheltering. The destructive fury was heightened by the chain gun's metallic whir, which made it sound as if the air was being chewed apart by a high-speed circular saw. Equally impressive was the deluge of several hundred brass cartridges that rained down from the sky and landed, hot and shimmering, on the ground around us. Damn, Jones thought to himself. That was completely insane. Raz, too, was impressed. Hey, Ro, he asked, turning to me. Do you think this is anything like what it was like in World War II? Nope, I replied, shaking my head. This is probably just a small taste of what it was like back then, brother. That was true. What was also true, and what I didn't say to Raz, was that regardless of how impressive that demonstration of air power might have been, the picture on the ground wasn't looking nearly as good. Despite the progress we'd made, our counterattack had completely stalled out. As the Apaches continued to orbit above Keating and scan the ridge lines for targets, the enemy on the other side of the river was keeping a low profile. But the larger picture in terms of where me and my team were, and where we needed to be, was disturbing. Hill's failure to get his machine gun in place meant that we'd lost not only our momentum, but also our violence of action, which is the physical and psychological drive that speed, surprise, and aggression can achieve. By this point, the enemy knew exactly where we were, and precisely what our next move would be. The longer we continued to delay that move, which would involve attempting to retake the Shura building and the front gate, the better their chances of stopping us. By now, my anger and frustration were starting to boil over. Each request I radioed for our missing support by fire met with the same response. Hill's team was still too busy battling the flames on the eastern side of camp to get his machine gun set up. I could even hear members of Hill's team calling over the Force Pro net for fire extinguishers so that they could try to save Blue Platoon's barracks before it was fully engulfed. From my perspective, this made no sense. If my squad failed to move within the next few minutes, the enemy gunners on the ridge lines would pin us down and we would be immobilized. And if that happened, it wouldn't matter whether our buildings burned down or not. Let the barracks burn! They're just barracks! I yelled into the radio. What the fuck happened to my machine gun? We can't move without it! If you don't get that goddamn thing in place, you're going to get me and everybody with me killed! The fire is a threat that needs to be taken care of, replied someone. At this point, what I most wanted to do was scream into the radio that if that machine gun wasn't in place within one minute, I would grab my gun, head over to the center of camp, and personally shoot anyone who had an extinguisher in his hand. What was becoming clear, however, was that the fire wasn't really the problem. Instead, the delay was rooted in the fact that Hill had not irrevocably committed himself, regardless of what it might cost, to securing the chow hall and getting his machine gun to where it needed to be. In 1958, a soldier named J. Glenn Gray wrote a book about soldiers in combat called The Warriors, Reflections on Men in Battle. Gray, who was drafted into the army as a private in May 1941, 
was discharged as a second lieutenant in October 1945 after having seen fighting in North Africa, Italy, France, and Germany. His book, which is both obscure and revered, touches on something that would later strike me as relevant to what was now unfolding at Keating as our counterassault came in danger of unraveling. Gray wrote with elegance and precision about how the essence of combat basically boils down to an exchange of trust between two men, or two groups of men, each of whom are providing support by fire for the other. This simple agreement, you will move while I shoot at the guys who are trying to kill you, then I will move while you shoot at the guys who are trying to kill me, depends on a willingness to place one's life into the hands of someone else, while in turn taking responsibility for that person's life in your own hands. When this pact is executed well, it is not only extraordinarily effective, but also tends to create a bond between the men who enter into it that may stand as the most powerful connection they will ever experience to another human being. There is, however, one thing that Gray doesn't explore in his book, which is what can happen when one of the two parties who are supposed to be working in tandem fails, for whatever reason, legitimate or not, to keep his end of the deal. That was what appeared to be taking place right then with Hill's machine gun team. The south side of camp, including the area around the chow hall, was being targeted by relentless fire from the north face, the putting green, the switchbacks, the waterfall, and the diving board. Stepping into that zone and laying down cover fire would have required a depth of resolve that blurred the line between flirting with suicide and having a full-on death wish. On the other hand, however, the five guys on my team had already demonstrated exactly that resolve. J. Glenn Gray didn't have anything to say about this kind of situation. But based on my own experience, I can state that when a support-by-fire pact is not upheld on the battlefield, it can generate the opposite of an unbreakable bond between men. What it triggers instead is a sense of rage and betrayal while, oddly enough, instilling an implacable determination to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Well, our machine gun just isn't coming, I thought to myself, as I listened to the continuing radio chatter about fire extinguishers. I guess we're going to have to make this happen on our own. I don't recall being especially disheartened as I scurried over to Jones, who was now paired up with Ryan Schultz, a sergeant with HQ platoon, who Bunderman had sent out to replace Danley. My mind was already focused on what we needed to happen next. You doing okay? I asked Jones. Just tell me what's going on, he replied. We're done waiting, I said. You and Schultz are going to hold your position and give us as much cover fire as you can while the rest of us push for the Shura building. Got it? They both nodded. One other thing, I added, as Raz brought over the first of three boxes of grenades that we'd fished out of the ammo depot. There are guys right on the other side of this wall, so every couple of minutes, I want you to pull the pin on one of these and just throw it down the street. That'll keep them from sneaking up on you. Then I turned to Raz, Delaney, and Miller. We're moving out, so grab as much ammo as you can carry, I said. It's time for us to retake the Shura building and the front gate. Lastly, I keyed my radio and took care of one final piece of business. One, this is two, I said. 
radioing Bunderman but skipping our official call signs in an effort to keep the transmission short. Then I invoked the expression we used when we needed to continue a mission. We need to Charlie Mike. The enemy is pinpointing us, and soon we'll be sitting ducks. I paused for a second to allow Bunderman to absorb this before continuing. I'm tired of sitting here waiting. We're moving. Negative red, too, spat Bunderman. Stand down. Do not move. It was pointless to argue, so I pulled one of the oldest and cheapest tricks in the book. Say again, I replied. You are coming in weak and unreadable. Bunderman repeated his order, and I deployed the same gambit. Then I reached down to my right hip, where my radio was attached to my vest, and rotated the volume knob to off. It was a bogus play, and to be honest, not a cool thing for me to pull on someone I respected as much as Bunderman. But it had to be done. There was no point in waiting any longer for a support by fire that simply wasn't going to come. The Shura building had to be stormed, and the only way that was going to happen, while we still had the ability to maneuver freely, was for the four of us to launch out and get it done. As we got ready to make our run, Schultz turned to Jones and asked, What are we shooting at? What are we shooting at? replied Jones. Any fucking thing I see, Schultz, that looks like it's moving and that looks like it wants to kill Roe and his guys. That's what we're shooting at. Chapter 16 Not Gonna Make It The distance from where we stood to the Shura building was no more than about twenty steps, but getting there would be tricky. First, we'd have to stack up on the southeast corner of the ammo supply depot, and then we'd race down a narrow alleyway between the wall of Hesco's on our right and a row of sandbags stacked three feet high on our left. At the far end of that alley was a door made of three-quarter-inch plywood that opened into the east side of the Shura building. It was our only way in. From the perspective of anyone who might be trying to defend the building from the inside, this alley served as a huge kill zone, the kind of choke point known as a fatal funnel, where a team of assaulters are forced through a narrow passage as they are silhouetted against their entry point. So one of the key questions we faced was whether there was anyone on the opposite side of that door. As I peeked my head around the corner, I could see that it was cracked open about six inches, just enough to allow a team of defenders to see if someone was moving down the alley toward them while still keeping the interior hidden to anyone looking from the outside. This could get bad, I said to the three men huddled in back of me on the near side of the corner. You guys trust me, right? We're with you all the way, said Raz. Delaney and Miller both nodded. I knew that aside from a handful of eight-by-eight posts that supported the roof, the space inside the Shura building was relatively open, but also strewn with a few significant obstacles. There were a dozen or so benches that were used for meetings with local Afghan dignitaries. Off in one corner, there was a treadmill and an elliptical machine that had been salvaged from the gym and were awaiting transport to Bostik as part of our pullout. If the number of fighters inside that space were equal to or greater in number than us, the close-quarters combat that would unfold inside that space would be savage and deadly. A four-on-four -four gunfight in a room the size of a one-car garage never ends well. Worse, if they had a machine gun pointed at that door, 
they would probably annihilate all four of us before we even set foot inside. There was only one way to find out what we were up against. Okay, listen up, I said. Here's how this is going to work. The basic plan was to nail the door with the grenade launcher and follow up with the machine gun. But the key to the whole deal lay in how we choreographed our move and the level of violence we achieved. Delaney, you've got the saw, so you're number one, I said, looking at my assault gunner. When we go through that door, you're going to be the first guy in the room. I'm going to be right behind you, and I'm going to push you in the back to make sure you get all the way in. All I want you to concentrate on is clearing the inside and killing anybody that's in there. Put your gun on full auto. Start left and sweep all the way to the right and just machine gun it all. Got it? He nodded. Miller, I said, turning to our new guy. You're going to be number three, which means you'll stack up right behind me. We will sweep up after Delaney. I'll move right and you move left. Finally, I looked up at Raz. With his massive height, he towered a full foot above me. He was at least eight inches taller than Miller and Delaney, too. That was a key element for what I had in mind, because I needed Raz to be able, if necessary, to shoot directly over our heads. You're the last guy in line on this one, Raz, but what's going to kick off this move is that you're going to peel around the corner first and put a grenade straight through that door with your 203. He nodded. While you do that, Delaney's going to lead out with me and Miller right behind. The three of us will enter, and then you'll pull rear security. Roger that, said Raz. As this entire exchange was taking place, I knew Bunderman would be on the radio, still trying to get me to stop. Okay, can I hit him with the 203 now? asked Raz. Do it. With his gun raised, he leaned around the corner and punched a grenade through the middle of the door. As the plywood exploded and the room beyond it filled with a ball of fire, Delaney hurled himself down the alley with me and Miller in tow. What happened next wasn't the sort of thing you'd find in a military textbook, because it was more of a rugby play, except with guns. We rolled in a tightly linked mass, back to back and stride for stride. I had the rear handle of Delaney's body armor firmly in my left hand, and was resting the barrel of my assault rifle on his right shoulder so that I could spray to the right as soon as I entered. Directly behind me, Miller was doing the same thing, but his weapon was resting on my left shoulder so that he could sweep in the opposite direction. The second Dulaney cleared the door frame, he started his sweep, and by the time he'd completed his rotation, he'd emptied an entire drum of ammo, 200 rounds into the room. Miller and I joined in as soon as we were inside, the noise we generated was deafening, which was disorienting enough. But as we fired, the room filled up with a mysterious white smoke. We hadn't anticipated the smoke. It was horrible stuff, blinding, impossible to breathe, harsh enough to make it feel as if we'd stormed into a factory that made pepper spray. By our second or third inhalation, it felt like our lungs had quit working. But we were fully committed and had no choice except to push through while we sputtered and gagged. Keep moving! Keep moving! I screamed at Delaney as I shoved him from behind. Can't breathe! gasped Delaney. Can't even see! I don't care! I yelled back. Keep going till you hit the wall or someone shoots you! Move! 
Finally, we made it to the west door at the far end of the room. There, just outside the door, and less than an arm's length away, a pair of AK-47s and a PKM heavy machine gun lay in the dirt. They had been abandoned just seconds earlier. The barrel of the machine gun, still cradled in its tripod, was pointed directly at the door we'd just come through. While Delaney and Miller dragged the weapons inside, I marched back across the room, where Raz was supposed to have posted up with his gun leveled into the alleyway we'd just run through to ensure that nobody snuck up and took us out from behind. Instead, he was crouched with his hands over his knees and vomiting on the toes of his boots. You motherfucker! I yelled. Did you fire a CS grenade through that door? A CS grenade contains tear gas. No way! It was HE guaranteed! He yelled back, using the term for a high-explosive grenade, which was exactly what he was supposed to have used. By this point, the room was starting to clear out, and we spotted the source of the smoke. By some weird combination of skill and dumb luck, Raz had managed not only to put his grenade through the door itself, but to send the thing all the way to the far wall, where it had center-plugged a twenty-pound fire extinguisher that had been sitting just to the left of the west door. The secondary explosion from the extinguisher, and the acrid waves of smoke that it generated, must have been a nasty surprise to the insurgents inside that room, supplying the extra kick that drove them from the building. I paused just long enough to glance at the destroyed extinguisher and the PKM machine gun that was now lying next to it. If those fighters had chosen to hold their ground and turn the full force of that gun on my squad instead of fleeing, they would have cut us to pieces. Raz had just saved all of our lives. We didn't have a chance to thank him, though, because the Taliban were about to turn things up another notch. Enraged over having been forced to give up such a key position, the insurgents now gave vent to their anger by shooting at the Shura building with everything they had. As the four of us set up points of domination at the entryways, two men to a door, bullets began thudding off the outside walls with dull slaps, while the entire structure shivered from the impact of dozens of exploding rockets. The intensity of this renewed engagement resembled the first few minutes of the initial attack, Crouched inside, it seemed as if the building was hit with some form of explosive every three seconds. It was dark inside that room. The wooden covers on the three windows on the north side of the building were fastened shut, and the air was thick with dust from the walls and the remnants of the smoke from the fire extinguisher. But as we huddled against the walls, holes began appearing as the plywood roof was shot to pieces, and with each new bullet hole, Another pencil beam of sunlight appeared, cutting a line from the ceiling to the floor and illuminating the swirling dust particles that were suspended in the air and vibrating with each new shockwave. The room took on the appearance of a grotesque dance club whose walls and floor coruscated with the light of a devil's disco ball. But even more striking, the thing that overrode both sight and sound was the overpowering smell. It was an odor I'd never before encountered, an olfactory assault composed of several layers. There was the sulfuric tang of gunpowder from the exploding rockets. There was the chalky odor of the chemicals in the fire extinguisher. And there was the smell of Kirk's blood, 
which had spread to form a dark and sticky pool on the plywood floor, just inside the entryway of the west door. I could taste that combination of sulfur and chalk and copper on my tongue. It was sharp and heavy, and it grabbed the back of my jaws in a way that made me feel like I was about to gag. The pungency seemed to underscore how tenuous and uncertain our grip on the building was. At this point, we were extremely vulnerable. With the west door that led to the front gate wide open, our standoff, the open stretch of ground in which we would be able to spot any attackers who were trying to rush us, was no more than fifteen feet. If the enemy decided to come at us with a dozen or more guys in a full-on sprint from the ASG checkpoint, just twenty feet away, they would be on top of us before we could react. In the hopes of slowing them down, we started tearing the room apart. The wooden benches, the chairs and tables, the raised area where the elders sat during our meetings with locals, we ripped all of it up with our bare hands and flung the scraps through the door into the open space leading to the front gate to create a makeshift barricade. At the corner of the gate, we also set up two claymores that we had brought from the ammunition depot, one facing toward the police checkpoint, the other pointing back up the road leading to the concrete bridge over the river. While the rest of the team finished strewing obstacles, I climbed the ladder to get a sense of what shape the tower was in and see if I could get eyes on the front gate. The turret was pretty banged up. The armor was pitted and grooved from the intense fire. The wooden shade structure had been blown to pieces, and there were hundreds of empty shell casings strewn in all directions. But the M240 that Davidson had abandoned seemed in good order, and there was even a bit of ammo left, totaling roughly seventy rounds. I peeked over the turret shield. Off in the distance, I could see muzzle flashes inside Ermul and all across the putting green. On the road nearby were several trucks that had belonged to the police. All of them were burning. There were also a number of bodies lying along the road by the bridge. My main concern was making sure that none of the militants were moving through the front gate. I didn't spot any live targets, but it was impossible to see if the enemy had stacked up along the wall directly beneath me without leaning out and exposing myself. Instead, I dropped a couple of grenades over the edge, then let off a quick burst with the M240 to confirm that it was still firing. Just before heading back down the ladder, I keyed my radio and called up Bunderman. So, hey, we're here at the front gate, and we got it closed down, I reported. I can't do anything else until I get some additional personnel out here. Roger that, too, he replied. Bunderman may not have been pleased by my behavior, which qualified as reckless and insubordinate. But he certainly wasn't upset with the results. We had access to our ammo. We'd locked down the front entrance, and thanks to the west doorway of the Shura building, which looked directly through the front gate and across the river, we now had a new and effective position from which to observe one of the enemy's primary strongholds. By leaving that door open and standing back in the recessed shadows within the Shura building, where the enemy could not see me, I could survey the entire putting green, and even more important, Ermul itself where the Taliban had firmly dug themselves into the houses and were still using this vantage to devastating effect. From almost every window of every structure in the village, I could see the muzzle flashes from AK-47s and machine guns. Between those buildings, 
Men were continuously darting in all directions as they delivered ammunition or scouted for a more effective angle of fire. There was so much activity that I found myself half-convinced that they were massing for an imminent assault on our western wall. But what made our present position so advantageous, and therefore part of the reason why the enemy was so furious, was that we could now provide grid coordinates for precise locations within the village, as well as additional feedback that would enable Bunderman to lay any form of ordnance directly on target. Given the intensity of the fire that was pouring out of Ermul, it was clear that there was only one way to handle the situation. Pulling out my map of the area, I noted the six-digit coordinates for the mosque and the mayor's house, then relayed them to Bunderman. Those grids are both located in the center of the village, I said. I need for you to level Ermul. Under normal circumstances, a request like that would have provoked a heavy pause, followed by a barrage of questions. Nobody authorizes a direct strike on a population center without at least demanding confirmation that there are no civilians inside the drop zone. Bunderman didn't even blink. Roger, he replied. Once again, it was time to call in the Apaches. It was now almost 10 a.m., and for the better part of the past hour, the pilots and gunners of the attack helicopters had been busy. Shortly after eliminating the machine gun nest near the Afghan National Police checkpoint, Ross Llewellyn had called bingo, meaning that he had barely enough fuel to return to base, and both pilots had turned their aircraft back down the valley in the direction of Bostick. While their birds were being refueled, Llewellyn and Randy Huff had raced into the command post to brief Colonel Brown and the rest of the operations team on what they'd seen from the air. Meanwhile, Chad Bardwell and Chris Wright helped the ground crew reload their chain guns with 70-pound boxes of 30-millimeter ammo and affix another suite of Hellfire missiles to the rails of each helicopter. The moment everything was on board, the two choppers were in the air and on their way back to Keating. Both aircraft were once again orbiting overhead, with Bardwell and Wright scanning the ridgelines and the main road for targets, when they received Bunderman's request to put a couple of hellfires into the mosque and destroy it. They spent several minutes circling while they made certain that they had identified the target and determined how best to engage the structure. It would not be easy. Given the mosque's location inside the narrow valley, the only way for the helicopters to get a clean shot was to make an east-to-west run which would expose them to one of the biggest threats in the entire area. Somewhere along the high ground between Fritchie and Keating, the Taliban had placed a Soviet heavy machine gun known as a DSHK. Nicknamed the Dishka, the gun throws out 12.7mm rounds at such a high rate that it can serve as an effective anti-aircraft weapon. It's more than enough to seriously mess up an Apache. Suspecting that they might actually be dealing with more than one Dishka, but unable to figure out exactly where the weapons were located and eliminate them, Llewellyn and his team tried in vain to come up with an alternate plan. When they finally realized there was no other way to get the job done, they set up by flying more than two miles to the east, then spun their birds around and embarked on a long, straight run that would take them down the valley, directly over Keating, and enable them to send several missiles directly through the east side of the mosque. Llewellyn's ship led the strike, 
and Bardwell, his gunner, would put the first missile on the mosque. As the Apache drew near the village, Bardwell spotted muzzle flashes sparking from virtually every window and doorway in the building. We're inbound with hellfire missiles, Bardwell radioed to Bunderman. We see the mosque and see the enemy fire. Huff was following directly behind, flying at a slightly higher altitude, and Wright, his gunner, was scanning for smoke from Bardwell's missile strike when he heard Llewellyn's voice on his radio. I got a hellfire malfunction, Llewellyn reported over the team's internal radio. I can't get my missile off the rail. Both pilots reacted instantly. While Llewellyn broke sharply to the left, Huff lined up so that Wright could take the shot. The bird was slightly less than 2,000 yards away when Wright got the mosque squarely in his sights and squeezed the trigger. As the missile released, Huff pulled back on his run and held the profile of the mosque so that Wright could keep his laser rangefinder locked on the mosque and guide the missile into the target. When viewed through the sensors in the gunner's seat of an Apache, a hellfire strike is not especially dramatic. As the missile plowed into the east wall of the mosque, the only thing that Wright could discern was a small puff of white smoke. Far more impressive was the Dishka round that, at the very same moment, slammed into the bottom of their Apache. The bullet struck directly under the pilot's seat, where it penetrated the forward avionics bay, severing a bundle of wires and destroying the bird's environmental control systems condenser. Inside the cockpit, Huff suddenly found himself staring at a bank of warning lights. He had multiple electrical system failures, and the Apache's automatic stabilator had quit. We're hit, Huff announced over the radio. Llewellyn moved his aircraft closer to Huff's to see if he could help assess the damage. In the meantime, Bardwell, who was still scanning the mosque, noted that the structure had not been completely destroyed and could, in theory, still be used as a fighting position. Eliminating the threat completely would require another hellfire. After radioing back and forth about the damage, both pilots agreed that Huff's stricken bird could remain airborne while Llewellyn took another shot with his second hellfire. Then Llewellyn would follow Huff back to Bostick for battle damage assessment and repairs. While Huff peeled away, Llewellyn lined up to enable Bardwell to take aim and fire. This time the hellfire got off the rail. With Bardwell guiding the missile in via his laser, it punched through the southern wall and demolished the mosque. As Bardwell confirmed the hit, Llewellyn was moving his bird behind Huff's so that he could cover Huff during the flight back to Bostick. In that moment, Llewellyn suddenly noticed a vibration in his pedals. A second or two later, his master warning system activated. The Apache was losing its utility hydraulics. Unbeknownst to Llewellyn, his bird had been hit by the very same dishka that had already nailed Huff. One bullet had passed through a tail rotor blade, while a second had drilled into the drive shaft cover, severing one of his hydraulic lines. Both of the damaged aircraft now had to beeline for Bostick. As they headed out of the valley, Llewellyn's thoughts stayed with the dishka that had come close to taking out both Apaches. He wasn't sure exactly where that gun was, but he could see that the general area did not afford a direct line of sight down into Keating. This meant that the dishka had been emplaced not with the aim of shooting at Keating's defenders, 
but instead to ambush any helicopters rushing into the aid of the outpost. That machine gun, Llewellyn realized with a chill, was also perfectly positioned to shoot down a medevac. There would be no way to get a chopper into Keating to extract the wounded, Llewellyn realized, until they located and destroyed the Dishka. While Llewellyn mulled this over, Wright was on the radio advising the command post at Bostick that they were returning to base with two damaged airframes, one that no longer had any hydraulics and another that was experiencing multiple electrical system failures. He requested that a repair team and two replacement helicopters be dispatched from Jalalabad to Bostick immediately. Several minutes later, both Apaches landed safely at Bostick but it would be more than an hour before Llewellyn and his team could get back in the air. Inside the Shura building, my team and I weren't privy to the drama that the helicopter pilots and their gunners had just endured. All we knew was that they were leaving. The Apaches had to check off station again, Bunderman informed me by radio. I'm not sure when they'll be back. This news was not well received. Every time the Apaches showed up, it felt as if our guardian angels had arrived, and perhaps the tide was about to turn in this fight. But the moment they peeled away, we couldn't help but feel abandoned and vulnerable. Absent the reassuring sound of their guns, the same set of urgent questions flooded back into our minds. Why did they leave? Where are they going? When will they be back? As I wrestled with those unknowns from my position just inside the west door, I happened to glance over at Miller, who was slouched by the other doorway with his weapon in his lap, staring listlessly at the floor. He'd handled the stress of battle well up to this point, but judging by his body language and his demeanor, it was clear that he'd now exceeded his tolerance for combat. Miller is 100% checked out. I need a replacement, I radioed to Bunderman and whoever you send, have him bring an IV with him. We need to get Miller rehydrated. A minute or two later, Raz crouched down next to me. We were no longer taking direct fire from the mosque, but we were still getting hit from every other direction. The walls continued to shake, and every minute or two another bullet drilled through the ceiling and buried itself in the floor, creating yet another pencil-sized beam of light. We're not going to make it out of here, are we? asked Raz, looking me straight in the face. I met his stare. We're doing all right, I replied. To be honest, I'm not sure that I believed that, but it seemed like the right thing to say. And perhaps it was, because right about then the east door swung open and Miller's replacement burst inside, carrying an IV bag, along with a radio strapped to his back, a notebook in his hand, and sticking out of the breast pocket on his uniform, a fistful of colored pens. Bunderman had just done us a solid. Armando Avalos, who we called Red Bull, was our best forward observer. Nobody at Keating was better at identifying target grids, running the necessary calculations, and calling in artillery and airstrikes where we most needed them. Avalos lost no time in getting down to business. Taking my position along the far wall, with its view through the west door, he spread out his maps, keyed up his radio, and swiftly called in a fire mission from Fritchie, where the gun crew had finally secured access to their mortar pit, 
and was now ready to start laying 120mm rounds anywhere we needed. Unfortunately, that didn't last long. During the initial attack on Fritchie, the ballistics computer in its mortar pit had been knocked out. After regaining control of the pit, the gun crew had attempted to jury-rig a fix to that problem. But the very first round that Avalos called in missed its intended target, the village of Ermul, by such a huge margin that Avalos wasn't even certain the shell had come from Fritchie. It landed less than thirty yards in front of the Shura building. Repeat, he said, calling for another round. When the second round exploded in exactly the same spot, he concluded that it was too dangerous to keep calling in fire missions from Fritchie. The odds of a mortar round landing on top of us were simply too high. So Avalos, who had unzipped his pants and was now attending to some important personal business by squatting on top of an empty box of fifty caliber machine gun ammo while continuing to work his radio, turned to a weapon system that was quite a bit more complicated than a single 120-millimeter mortar tube, but potentially far more devastating. Ever since the start of the attack on Keating, Army and Air Force aviation units at Jalalabad, Kandahar, and Bagram had been scrambling to respond. Over the past several hours, the commanders of those units had been assembling an airborne armada in the skies high above Keating, a dizzying array of fixed-wing attack and surveillance planes, each carrying an assortment of either weapons and bombs or cameras, video feeds, and electronic jamming technology. The sheer range and number of aircraft up there was matched only by the complexity of coordinating this mess and keeping its moving parts from smashing into one another. That task, which would directly affect whether we could continue holding out, was now being performed by a twin-tailed fighter jet that was never intended to serve as a flying air traffic control tower, and which was being flown by two guys whose nicknames were Ox and Finch. Chapter 17 Ox and Finch At 6.15 that morning, a pair of F-15E fighter jets on the tarmac at Bagram Airfield, just outside of Kabul, were ordered to get into the air and fly to the relief of Keating. In the cockpit of one of those planes was a captain named Michael Polidor, whose call sign was Ox. Sitting directly behind Polidor and serving as the plane's weapon systems officer, or WIZO, was First Lieutenant Aaron Dove, whose call sign was Finch. He was responsible for navigation and targeting from the back seat of the jet's cockpit. Their aircraft, which was identified as Dude 1, was armed with a 20mm machine gun and five 500-pound smart bombs, two laser-guided and three GPS-guided, plus one 2,000-pound bomb, all of which could be guided onto their targets from up to ten miles away. When Dude 1 reached Keating, Polidor and his wingman, Captain Justin Elliott, who was piloting the second F-15, were briefed by the pilots of another pair of F-15s, who were already in the air and just coming off of a night mission when they'd been summoned to Keating. Having arrived a few minutes earlier, those two planes had already dropped most of their smart bombs along the switchbacks. Running low on fuel, they returned to Bagram, while Polidor and Elliot saturated the switchbacks with additional bombs and conducted strafing runs with their cannons. As Elliot was dropping his first bomb, his fighter experienced a severe hydraulic failure 
which meant that he too was forced to return to base. It was then that Ox and Finch began to grasp the magnitude and severity of the assault on Keating. From his position in the rear of the cockpit, Dove stared into his targeting pod and counted as many as eight separate fires burning inside the compound, as well as dozens of rocket explosions. Along the surrounding hillsides and ridgelines, there were too many muzzle flashes for him to tally, but they formed a 360-degree ring of fire around the outpost. From Polidor's vantage in the front of the aircraft, it looked like the 4th of July. As bad as the situation appeared to be on the ground, the two pilots were no less struck by the confusion in the air around them. On the cockpit's radio, operators were simultaneously flooding them with information, questions, and requests on three separate channels. Meanwhile, additional aircraft were approaching from all directions. Llewellyn and his team of Apache pilots were on their way from Jalalabad. Taking off from Kandahar were several A-10 Thunderbolts, a relatively slow-flying twin-engine fighter known as a Warthog that is designed to provide close air support against tanks and other armored vehicles. More F-15s would soon be joining the fight from Bagram, along with a hodgepodge of drones and other aircraft. In short, a host of planes from the Army, the Air Force, and even the Navy was in the sky. And not all of these aviators could speak, either to one another or to their counterparts on the ground. Moreover, there was no one on hand to coordinate their movements. In the vernacular used by pilots, the section of a battle zone to which the aircraft providing close air support are assigned is known as the kill box. Inside this box, even minor communications glitches can result in bombs that are dropped in the wrong place, gun runs that target friendly forces, or mid-air collisions. The process of choreographing the mid-air dance within the kill box is called deconflicting the airspace, and that job usually falls to one aircraft that is responsible for operating the Airborne Warning and Control System, or AWACS. That plane, which is larger than a Boeing 707, is readily identified by the distinctive radar dome that is mounted above its fuselage and has a crew that specializes in the complex and potentially deadly task of providing air traffic control in a combat environment. Needless to say, this isn't the sort of endeavor that can easily be taken on by the crew of an aircraft that's not specially equipped to coordinate an aerial battle scene. A plane like, say, Michael Polidor's F-15 Strike Eagle, which, apart from its avionics and its electronic gadgetry, basically consists of a couple of fuel tanks and some horrifically deadly armaments strapped to a pair of Pratt & Whitney afterburning turbofan jet engines. What's more, stepping into this role on the fly, both literally and figuratively, wasn't something that either Polidor or Dove had specifically trained for. Nevertheless, someone had to do it, and despite the fact that this sort of thing wasn't exactly in his wheelhouse, there were a few elements that helped to stack the odds in Polidor's favor. The cockpit of an F-15 features a shockingly complex array of aeronautics sensors that are capable of delivering multiple streams of information about not only the fighter jet itself, but also its surrounding environment, enemy aircraft, targets, and weather, along with a host of other variables. Directly in front of both the pilot and the wizzo, and also stacked on both sides, are rows of screens that are aglow with incoming radar signals. 
Inside their helmets, there are three separate radio links, plus an intercom that they use to speak to each other. The multiple streams of data spew out with a speed and density that makes it feel like the informational equivalent of being hit in the face by a fire hydrant. It's far more than most ordinary people have the bandwidth to handle. As a fighter pilot, Polidor had been trained not only to process this sort of overload, but also to channel it into crisp decisions and responses. It also probably helped that while maintaining a 3.9 GPA as a cadet, majoring in astronautical engineering at the Air Force Academy, he'd played as starting goaltender on the school's hockey team. But more than anything else, what may have bolstered his resolve to step into an unfamiliar role had less to do with his skills and training and more to do with an idea. Back at Bagram Airfield, the 335th Fighter Squadron had a little sign hanging next to a door leading out to the flight deck that read as follows. The mission is an 18-year-old with a rifle. Everything else is support. Those words, which Polidor and his colleagues had to pass by every time they headed out to the tarmac, reminded them that they were a small, albeit vitally important, piece in an intricate machine. It was also an affirmation of a core principle, the notion that an aviator's sense of purpose lay in serving the soldiers who performed the dirtiest job in the military, and who, by dint of that, embodied the purest essence of war. An airman's highest duty lay in doing whatever was necessary to buttress the men with boots on the ground. That philosophy, more than anything else, helps explain why Polidor, after using up almost every armament and munition on board his fighter to pound the Taliban fighters on the switchbacks, immediately set about turning his strike eagle into a miniature version of an AWACS. Polidor's first task was to start deconflicting the planes that were arriving on station to ensure that none of them were attempting to fly through the same section of sky at the same time. So after setting himself up as command and control nexus for radio communications, he started separating out the aircraft and assigning them to different sectors. The key to this lay in what's called the stack a concept best grasped by imagining a massive cyclone spinning in the air near Keating. The top of that vortex was 30,000 feet high, and each thousand-foot layer, or window, beneath was reserved for a particular type of aircraft. The highest levels of the stack were slated for the surveillance drones and unmanned aerial vehicles, MQ-9 Reapers and MQ-1 Predators, that had started arriving from the airfields at Kandahar and Bagram as early as 7.20 a.m., and which Polidor placed by directing their operations teams, members of which were posted as far away as Creech Air Force Base, just north of Las Vegas, Nevada, to establish orbits between 25,000 and 23,000 feet. Below the drones, but roughly 50 miles away from the main stack, were three KC-135 stratotankers and a KC-10 extender, flying gas stations that would enable the fleet to stay aloft for many hours. Directly inside the stack, there was also an RC-135, a plane as large as a tanker whose crew had electronic warfare countermeasures that included the ability to selectively monitor and jam the cell phones that the Taliban were using to communicate. This hodgepodge, 
which arrived from airfields as far north as Kyrgyzstan and as far east as Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, would eventually grow to include a U-28A surveillance plane that would later provide reconnaissance for a special forces team that was set to be flown into the area shortly after nightfall, along with an AC-130H Spectre gunship, also known as Spooky, that was armed with, among many other features, a five-barrel rotary cannon that can fire 1,800 rounds per minute. Underneath all of this were the Strikers, the F-15s and the A-10 Warthogs that would conduct strafing runs and bomb drops. Finally, the very bottom layer, anything below 3,000 feet, was reserved for rotary. The Apaches that were conducting their gun runs and missile strikes, as well as the Black Hawks that were poised to swoop in to medevac our wounded the moment that we were able to regain control of our LZ. Communications were so tangled that it was twenty minutes before Polidor and Dove were able to figure out who was talking over the radio, where they were transmitting from, and what they were trying to say. Straightening out the mess and getting the stack sorted took the better part of an hour. One of the biggest challenges arose because the mountainous terrain blocked radio transmissions from the ground to any aircraft that did not have a direct line of sight with either Keating or Bostick. But even before they had everything under control, Polidor and Dove were grappling with the second part of their job, which involved coordinating airstrikes. This was every bit as complicated as building and managing the stack, and it involved plugging into the tail end of a jury-rigged chain of communication that started inside Keating's command post, where Bunderman was putting together a running list of targets that needed to be destroyed. I need for the A-10s to hit the entire north face. Let's get the Apaches to put a hellfire into the clinic to the east. Here's the grid location. I want bombs on these two TCPs along the switchbacks. Those airstrike requests, which were based on information that Bunderman was getting mostly from me, Avalos, and Adams, who was Blue Platoon's forward observer, were passed to Kaysen Schrode, who was with Bunderman inside the command post, and whose responsibility included handling all communications concerning air support. The unspoken message from Bunderman that accompanied each here-is-what-I-want and where-I-want-it request was, I don't give a shit how you make this work. Just figure it out. Part of Schrode's training, and a big reason why he was good at his job, had involved mastering a highly specialized system of communicating with the Air Force operators who assigned targets to the pilots conducting airstrikes. These operators are known as Joint Terminal Attack Controllers, or JTACs, and during the battle for Keating, Schrode was communicating with two of these specialists, Senior Airman Angel Montez and Airman First Class Stephen Kellums, both of whom were inside the command post at Bostick. Once the JTACs received the target coordinates from Schrode, they would relay the information up to Polidor. What all of this meant was that Polidor's Strike Eagle was now serving as a flying relay station for three different army bases, while simultaneously managing a multi-layered armada of 19 separate warplanes, each moving into and out of a battle space spread across 30,000 vertical feet of sky. Working together, Polidor and Dove had to lay out target coordinates and elevations, relay final clearance on airstrikes, and set priorities on which planes were assigned to which targets. 
They had to move aircraft up and down within the stack whenever a new arrival came on station. Each time the Apaches returned to the battle space, they had to lift the floor of the stack and push everything inside it up another 3,000 feet in order to allow the helicopters to move directly to their targets. And whenever a 2,000-pound bomb was dropped from a fixed-wing aircraft inside the stack, the Apaches had to be moved a safe distance away so that they weren't knocked out of the sky by the blasts from those enormous bombs. But there was much more. They had to make sure that everyone was able to pay a visit to the tankers before running out of fuel, and they had to handle any emergencies that arose within the stack. One plane's cockpit depressurized, forcing it to return to base. They had to cope with spotty communications as the radio signals linking them to Bostik and to other aircraft, especially the Apaches, were degraded by the mountainous terrain. They had to monitor the cloud cover, which was getting ever more dense, and the weather, which was rapidly deteriorating as a series of massive thunderstorms began moving east across the Kunar Valley, impairing visibility and eventually causing dangerous levels of ice to build up on the wings of the aircraft at the top of the stack. For jets that were jockeying to obtain fuel from the air tankers amid the worst parts of these storms, the rain and hail reduced visibility to as little as ten feet. They had to double-check grid coordinates to confirm that bombs weren't being mistakenly dropped inside Keating's perimeter. Dove discovered two such errors and directed the attacks to be aborted before munitions were released. They had to make sure that none of the bombs that were plummeting through the kill box accidentally struck another American plane. And while they did all of those things, Polydor also had to keep an eye on his altitude, attitude, fuel level, and a litany of other details as he attended, not incidentally, to the business of flying one of the world's most sophisticated jets. It's almost impossible for someone who hasn't sat inside the cockpit of a fighter to imagine the mind-boggling complexity of what Polydor and Dove were doing. And yet all of this was unfolding without a single soldier down on the ground at Keating, with the possible exception of Cason Schrode, having the faintest clue of what was happening. But what amazes me most is that this superbly calibrated, exquisitely tuned, and unimaginably expensive war machine this marvel of aeronautic engineering and communications wizardry and weapons technology was at the beck and call of one man with a radio strapped to his back, a sergeant from Stockton, California, who called himself Red Bull, and who, right now, more than four hours into the battle for Cop Keating, was calling fire missions through the western door of the Shura building with his pants around his ankles while he squatted over an empty ammo box and took a dump. The airstrikes that Avalos was calling in were impressive. Most of the targets on the putting green were more than 600 yards away, but the bombs that landed on the switchbacks in Ermul were far closer. About ten seconds before their impact, Avalos would give us a heads up by yelling, Splash out! When the bombs hit, the sound of the concussion and the blast of dirt and pulverized rock were immense. Those bombs were definitely having an impact and not just on the Taliban. As the intensity of the airstrikes increased, our confidence started to grow, too. Granted, we were still in big trouble. Half of the outpost was on fire. We had dead men scattered across a wide area whom we couldn't see or get to, and it still wasn't possible to extract our wounded. 
but for perhaps the first time since the attack had started. It felt as if we were hitting the enemy at least as hard as they had been hitting us. With Raz now concentrating on getting an IV line into Miller's arm and Avalos continuing to call in fire, things were under control at the Shura building. This freed me up for what I needed to do next, which involved dashing back to the other side of camp to put a special request in front of Bunderman. What I had in mind could have been relayed over the radio, but it was important enough that I wanted to drive the point home in person. When I walked into the command post, I shot Jonathan Hill a harsh look while tossing up my hands in a what-the-fuck gesture. Then I let the matter drop. We had more important things to worry about than his missing machine gun team, starting with the fact that we still had no idea where our lost comrades were. Seven men were now missing. Gallegos, Larson, Mace, Martin, Carter, Griffin, and Hart. Assuming that their bodies were still inside the wire, we had to find and retrieve them before they were taken by the Taliban. We need a plan, I said, turning to Bunderman. We have to figure out how me and my team are going to get those bodies back. At this point, I explained, there were only three men at the Shura building on whom I could rely. Raz, Delaney, and Avalos. In order to generate sufficient cover fire for my next move, which would entail pressing into the exposed sector on the far western end of camp, where I suspected that most of our dead were located, I would have to leave one of those men at the Shura building with a machine gun. A three-man team wasn't even close to what we needed to find seven dead and carry them back. I need more guys, I said to Bunderman. Who can you give me? Before I'd even completed the question, Bunderman was already shaking his head. He understood, probably better than anybody, just how far I'd pushed things by storming the Shura building without any fire support. He was glad it was done, but he knew that I'd gone well past the bounds of acceptable risk, and that me and my squad were damn lucky to be alive. Sending a tiny group of us even farther into the kill zone beyond the Shura building would be a bold move but if we got wiped out and all of our gains were reversed, it would also prove to be a colossally stupid move. Get back to the Shura building and hold your position until we can get a better handle on this situation, he ordered. I want you and your guys to hang tight and just keep calling fire. This wasn't the time to argue. And in any case, he was right. Roger that, I said, and raced back. When I arrived, the Warthogs and the F-15s were still conducting bombing runs on the switchbacks and the putting green. With the enemy gunners up there being subjected to such a heavy pounding, my concerns focused on the immediate standoff area surrounding the Shura building. Our visibility was so limited that it would be a simple matter for a small team of gunmen to move right next to our walls and stack up without us knowing. To ensure that didn't happen, we needed to start getting creative. The north side of the Shura building featured three small windows, each no bigger than two feet by two feet. There was no glass in any of these windows. There were simply rectangular holes in the wall, although each was protected by a wooden cover that swung inward and functioned as a kind of portal. Up to this point, we'd kept those shutters firmly latched, but now we started using them as part of a bizarre and deadly game conceived by Raz, Avalos, and me. We each selected a window and crouched next to it 
with a pile of the grenades that we'd collected from the ammunition depot. Each grenade had a three to five second delay before it exploded. Under normal circumstances, you would pop the spoon and wait one or two seconds before making your throw. The problem was that if anybody was on the other side of the wall, he'd have a few seconds to grab the grenade and try to hurl it back through the window or onto the roof. So every 30 seconds, one of us would pull the spoon and hold the live grenade in his hand for as long as he dared. Three seconds, four seconds, 4.49999 seconds, prior to grabbing the latch, yanking open the shutter, then chucking the grenade through the opening and slamming the shutter closed before the concussion sounded. We'd each select a window at random. Sometimes we'd open them in sequence. Other times we'd skip one. Occasionally, one of us would toss two or even three grenades from the same window before we switched. But in every instance, one thing remained constant. The guy with the live grenade counted down the seconds in the knowledge that if he misjudged and waited too long, it would explode in his hand and kill everybody inside the room. We called this grenade chicken, and I honestly can't say how long we kept at it, because the intensity robbed us of any sense of time. All I know is that we maintained the same rhythm, a new grenade once every thirty seconds, for what seemed like more than an hour, while we waited for Bunderman to let us know that he was sending out some more guys and giving a green light for our body recovery mission. Finally, the call came through, and when it arrived, it wasn't what any of us expected. Hey, Ro, you're not going to believe this, Bunderman announced. But I just heard from Red Dragon out at Elraz too. I was so stunned that I was at a loss for words. If what he was saying was true, Brad Larson was within 100 yards of where we were sitting, and he was still alive. Chapter 18 Alive Since shortly before 8 a.m., there had been no word from Larson's gun truck. The last anybody had heard from that sector was just prior to the fatal exfil when Gallegos had tried to use the diversion created by Josh Hart and his rescue team to stage a withdrawal to the Shura building. As a result, none of us had any clue of what had happened when Gallegos, Martin, and Mace tried to make their break toward the latrines while Larson and Carter laid down cover fire. We knew nothing about the RPG that had coated Martin in soot and destroyed Mace's legs and abdomen. We knew nothing about how Gallegos had picked Mace up and disappeared behind the laundry trailer, only to come tearing back a few seconds later and get shot to pieces in full view of Carter, who, together with Larson, was trying to provide cover fire for their escape. Nor did we know that Larson had been drilled by a Taliban sniper. All we knew was that there had been no word from anyone on the western side of camp near that gun truck, and from that silence we had assumed they were all dead. Not true. Unbeknownst to the rest of us, several members of that lost squad had managed to hang on, albeit just barely. The details of what they had endured were as dramatic and bloody as anything else that had happened so far, with the added twist that they were still in terrible straits, and that one of them had been wounded so badly and in so many places that the mission to try and save him, in the midst of a battle whose final outcome still hung in the balance, would take a commitment by every soldier who was still alive at Keating 
along with the pilot of every fighter jet, helicopter, and support aircraft, who was part of Michael Polidor's stack in the sky above. How all of this unfolded makes for quite a tale, but that's getting ahead of things. First, I need to tell you what happened after Larson, whose call sign was Red Dragon, got shot in the head. The bullet that was fired at Larson as he stood behind the Humvee drove into the lip of his helmet, where the Kevlar stopped the thing cold, although it left an indentation just above his left eyebrow and snapped his noggin back as if he'd been clocked in the face with a nine-iron. It was a shockingly close call. Half an inch lower, and the round would have blown straight through his left eyeball. Get back in the truck, Larson yelled to Carter. As both men moved toward the doors, Larson caught sight of a pair of Taliban gunners emerging from behind the generator that was attached to our cold storage shipping container, no more than twenty feet away. The first man had an RPG balanced on his shoulder, while the second was carrying a PKM machine gun. Neither of them had spotted Larson. He raised his carbine and shot both insurgents in the face. Then he climbed into the driver's seat of the truck and slammed the door. Gallegos was hit, Carter reported, as bullets and RPGs continued to slam into the armored Humvee. I don't know what happened to Mace or Martin. Larson didn't know what happened to Martin either, but he'd seen Mace absorb much of the blast from the RPG that had landed between the two men, and he'd also watched Gallegos drag Mace to his feet and hustle him behind the latrines. He was in the midst of explaining this when Carter who was sitting in the tactical commander's seat, spotted something moving on the far side of a pile of rocks, less than fifty yards away from the truck. It was Mace. He was crawling around the corner on his elbows and forearms, dragging his legs. I can see Mace. He's still alive, Carter exclaimed. Let me go get him. No, Larson declared. You're no good to him dead. Unlike Carter... Larson had spent enough time in combat to know that one of the best ways to get killed was by rushing out to rescue a wounded comrade or retrieve the body of a buddy who had just gotten smoked. Dead bodies attract more dead bodies was one of the many mantras that he and I often traded back and forth during our time in Iraq. Having seen this phenomenon unfold too many times with his own eyes, Larson had no intention of allowing Carter, whom he outranked, to step outside the truck and offer up another tempting target for the Taliban. Instead, he ordered Carter to make sure that the combat locks on the doors were engaged while he tried to raise Bunderman on the truck radio. Getting no response, Larson switched to another channel and got nothing there either. He tried yet another channel, then two or three more. Each attempt yielded the same result. Static. Larson had no way of knowing that while he and Carter had stood outside the truck trying to provide cover fire, the rest of us had jumped to a new frequency in order to ensure that our communications weren't compromised. Having missed the signal to jump, and with no way of knowing the new frequency, which was passed around the Alamo position by word of mouth, Carter and Larson were now out of the loop. Baffled that the radio seemed to have stopped working, and realizing that neither he nor Carter had a handheld unit, Larson gave up and turned to their next problem. 
The Taliban rockets had played havoc with the gunner's turret above the cab of the Humvee, and the hatch to the turret was now wedged open by a tangled rat's nest of wreckage that included the smashed 50 cal, a jagged piece of the housing that had been blown off of the cold storage Connex's generator, and a bunch of electrical wiring. With RPGs continuing to slam into the wall of sandbags directly in front of the truck, it was imperative that they find a way of getting that hatch closed and locked. Using Larson's Gerber, Carter cut through the wiring, then put his shoulder to the hatch and managed to force it up just enough to be able to shove aside the machine gun and the wreckage of the generator. That enabled him to slam the hatch closed. The locks refused to turn, so he tied down the lid with nylon parachute cord. With the hatch shut and the radio still refusing to work, there wasn't much else they could do. They could hear gunfire coming from the center of camp, but they had no idea whether their fellow Americans or the Taliban were doing the shooting. Occasionally, they could spot enemy soldiers moving around the Afghan police guard shack about a hundred yards away, on the far side of the river. But the moment they cracked one of the windows to get off a shot, the snipers in Urmul would start putting rounds through the gap. Even more worrisome, they were almost out of bullets. By this point, each man was down to less than half a magazine's worth of M4 rounds, about seven shots apiece. Knowing that they needed to conserve the last of those bullets, there was little they could do except settle into their seats and try to take stock of what had happened. Gallegos, perhaps the only member of Red Platoon whose size, strength, and fury rivaled Josh Kirk's, was dead. Martin had vanished, and Mace lay beyond their reach. No one at the command post had any inkling that they were alive, and Larson had been hit in his right arm and right shoulder, as well as having received wounds to his face and neck. The enemy had them surrounded. And as an added bonus, both men loathed each other because, as it turned out, Larson and Carter had some history between them, and none of it was good. The problem dated back to just before we'd deployed to Afghanistan, when they had attended sniper school together in Fort Benning, Georgia. There, friction had arisen over radically different interpretations of the school's rules and honor code, which Larson felt Carter had violated. The rancor engendered by this clash hadn't been especially problematic during our time at Keating, because with Carter being in blue platoon and Larson being in red, they'd had very little contact. But in light of how much the two men disliked each other, the irony of their current predicament wasn't lost on Larson. If there was one person in the entire outpost, Afghans included, whom he least wanted to be trapped with inside a stricken gun truck that had no radio, no machine gun, and a turret hatch secured with string, it was Carter. And yet, like it or not, there they were. But to Larson's credit, as much as he might have despised Carter, he would later be the first to acknowledge that his teammate was about to rise above his reputation as an oily, smooth-talking douchebag and find his center as a soldier. The transformation was swift, and it started when Carter glanced out his window and noticed, to his astonishment, that while they'd been fiddling with the radio and the hatch lid, Mace had somehow managed to drag himself from behind the rocks and was now lying about twenty yards away, close enough that they could actually hear one another. In fact, 
He was raising his head right now and saying something. Carter cracked his window just enough to be able to catch the words. Help me, cried Mace. Help me, please! In Larson's estimation, there was still no way for Carter to run from the gun truck to the area where Mace lay without getting shot to pieces. With Mace so damnably close, however, it was far harder for Larson to keep denying Carter's repeated requests that he be allowed to at least try. Things finally shifted when Carter announced that he was hearing something else through the crack in his window. It was the sound of a horn, and from what Carter could tell, it seemed to be coming from Truck 1, the Humvee that Hart had used in his failed rescue mission, which was still high-centered on the berm of rubble about five yards from the back of the gun truck where he and Larson were sitting. Was there a wounded man inside that truck? Martin? Hart? Maybe Griffin? Who was trying to signal for help? They needed to find out. So when Carter suggested that he step outside and clamber under their gun truck to see if he could spot anything, Larson gave him the nod. The moment Carter got out, he could see that his idea wasn't going to work. The tires on their Humvee had been riddled with bullets and shrapnel and were completely flat. There wasn't room for him to squeeze under the chassis. Under the truck's no good, he told Larson as he climbed back in. But truck one was only fifteen feet away, and its doors were open. Shouldn't he dash back and do a check for survivors? Larson had no idea that by now me and my team had reached the ammo supply sheds and were working with the Apache pilots to eliminate the enemy machine gunners on the other side of the Daria Kushtaz River and inside Ormul but it was clear that the Apaches had resumed making intermittent gun runs throughout the valley, and that the Taliban's fire died down each time the helicopters conducted another sortie. So he told Carter that he had a green light to go, but that he had to wait for the birds to return. When they heard one of the Apaches open up with its chain gun, Carter hopped out, dashed back to truck one, and jumped inside. No one was there, and the radio along with most of the cab's interior, had been smashed by an exploding RPG. There was nothing to explain what might have caused the horn to go off, except perhaps a short in the electrical system caused by the damage the truck had sustained. But Carter spotted a pair of items that could come in handy, an M4 and a saw. He grabbed both weapons and scurried back. When he arrived, they opened the drum on the saw and started delinking rounds. There weren't many left, but they were the same caliber as their own rifles. Along with the bullets in the extra M4, they now had enough rounds to completely fill one magazine. It wasn't much, but it might be just enough to allow Larson to cover Carter while he retrieved Mace. Mace is moving, Carter exclaimed. All right, he's been alive this long, said Larson. We gotta wait for the Apaches to come in again. While they waited they discussed how their next move would work. First, Carter would need to get to Mace and find out how badly he was hurt. Depending on how things looked, the best option might be for Carter to then drag Mace to a drainage gully that ran down from the mortar pit and tuck him under the concrete bridge that led across the river to the helicopter landing zone, where they would maybe have some cover. When the Apaches returned and the enemy fire again subsided, Carter got out for a second time and sprinted over to the rock pile where Mace lay.
Meanwhile, Larson exited on the driver's side with his carbine. Because he was down to just fourteen rounds, he refrained from shooting and concentrated on scanning Ermul, the switchbacks, and the waterfall area through the scope of his M4, looking for anything that might pose a threat. When Carter reached Mace, he found him lying face down, with Gallegos' dead body stretched out just a few feet away. Mace was mumbling and in shock. He had also lost a great deal of blood. When Carter rolled him over, the front of his shredded uniform was crimson-colored from the wounds to his abdomen and legs. His intestines were partially exposed. His legs were covered with bullet holes and shrapnel, and one of his feet had almost been severed at the ankle. In addition, pieces of shrapnel had penetrated his hip, buttock, and flank on the right side of his body, as well as his back and his right arm. Kneeling beside him, Carter got to work. Mace's left leg had been shattered. He had a compound fracture of both the tibia and fibula, so the first order of business was to get a tourniquet around the leg. Then he used a pressure dressing to pack the wounds in Mace's belly, and rolls of gauze and tape to plug up some of the larger holes in his legs. Finally, he snatched up a stick and used it to splint the damaged ankle. When he was finished, Carter took a moment to look over the concrete bridge twenty yards to his south. Then he told Mace to hold tight and dashed back to the truck to confer with Larson. The bridge was no good, Carter explained. Too exposed, not enough cover. The only safe place for Mace was inside the gun truck. All right, Larson agreed, but we need to do one thing first. Grabbing his multi-tool, Larson prepped the truck using an old trick that he'd learned from me back in Iraq. The seat rest in a Humvee is supported by four bolts, two on each side. If you unscrew the top two bolts, the seat will go all the way down, and you can turn it into a recliner, enabling a wounded man to lay almost flat. We used to call it riding gangster style. When the seat was ready, Larson again posted up with his M4 to provide cover, and Carter sprinted back to Mace. Reaching Mace, Carter picked him up and carried him over to a nearby rock ledge. Setting Mace on top of the rocks, he climbed up the ledge and dragged him the rest of the way to the truck. Then he picked Mace up again and lifted him through the front passenger side door. When Mace was settled in the reclined seat, Carter scurried around the back of the truck and climbed into the seat behind Larson. As he slammed the door shut, Mace turned his head and looked over at both of them. Say, do one of you guys have a cigarette? He asked. I could really use a smoke right now. In addition to his sense of humor, the thing that defined Mace was his tolerance for pain. Once, back in the eighth grade, He'd gotten tangled up in a scrum of kids during a football game and was tackled hard enough to break his femur. It was a bad fracture. The orthopedic surgeon would later say that it looked as if he'd been in a car accident going a hundred miles an hour. And to prevent the ends of the bone from severing his femoral artery, the paramedics were forced to set the bone right there on the field without any anesthetics. When Mace was delivered to the hospital, the staff in the emergency room couldn't believe that a thirteen-year-old boy could handle such agony. But he had. Even his mother was astonished by what he'd been able to absorb. Now that stoicism was about to be tested far beyond the limits of anything Mace had ever endured. 
He didn't cry out or scream, but Larson could see the torment etched in his features. The skin on his face had taken on a bilious shade of green, and his eyes seemed to swim inside twin pools of pure, undiluted suffering. To Larson, it seemed like the worst pain one could ever imagine, multiplied by a factor of ten. And perhaps the most awful part of it was that neither he nor Carter could provide the one thing that might have given Mace a dollop of relief, the only thing he asked for, a cigarette. Give me a cigarette, will ya? He kept pleading over and over. It just killed Larson that he hadn't brought any cigarettes or chew with him. But there was no way for him to get that across to Mace, who listened politely each time Larson told him that they were fresh out of tobacco and then plaintively put forth the same request. Please, dude, just one cigarette. Eventually, Larson gave up trying to explain things and fell back on small phrases of encouragement. You're tough. You're good. We'll get you. While he and Carter tried to figure out their next move. They continued to hear gunfire coming from the center of camp, but they still had no idea who was doing the shooting. It was quite possible, they reasoned, that some of us, HQ platoon, plus maybe a few guys from red and blue, were still alive and making a final stand. But then again, Maybe the Taliban had penetrated to the center of camp and were finishing off the last pockets of survivors. Or perhaps a group of our guys had fled beyond the wire into the hills and the enemy was now inside the camp shooting out at them. Isolated and cut off as they were, each of these scenarios seemed equally likely. And in light of those possibilities, it seemed that perhaps their only viable path of escape lay directly in front of them. Can you swim? asked Carter, staring through the shot-up windshield out toward the river. Larson was silent for a moment. The answer was an emphatic no. He couldn't swim worth a lick, even when he wasn't wounded in multiple places. Enough to survive, he replied. With that, they hatched a desperate plan in which they would wait until dark, crawl to the edge of the river while dragging mace, then slip into the current and allow it to carry them more than a dozen miles downstream to Lowell, an American combat outpost carved into a rocky spur beside the river. Needless to say, that plan had some serious drawbacks, starting with the fact that Mace was almost guaranteed to bleed to death within the first couple of minutes after entering the water. Soon thereafter, Larson would probably drown. A prospect that might sound slightly less unacceptable, he sardonically conceded to himself, if he could have one last dip of chewing tobacco. Eventually, they agreed that making a Huck Finn-style bid to reach Lowell was an asinine scheme. But they also knew that Mace, who still hadn't stopped campaigning for a cigarette, was suffering from massive internal bleeding and wouldn't last much longer. And so it was around this point that Carter decided that he needed to try to find out what was happening toward the center of camp, and determine, once and for all, whether anybody else at Keating was alive. I'm going out on a recon, he announced. If I'm not back in ten minutes, I either made it, or don't worry about it. With that, he was out of the truck, over the terrace, and running for the rocks by the latrines where he had picked up Mace. He passed Gallegos' body, then turned the corner of the latrines, paused, 
and scanned what lay before him. The first thing that caught his eye was Mace's M4, which was on the ground next to the laundry connex. He was about to make a dash for the connex when he glanced behind him and spotted something else. It was an E.F. Johnson lying in the dirt. An E.F. Johnson radio is a two-way, handheld, open-channel walkie-talkie that is neither coded nor encrypted. As such, it's not the sort of device you want to be using in combat, because the communications aren't secure. But at Keating, the maintenance crew really liked the E.F. Johnsons because they offered a simple way of talking to one another. Keating's chief mechanic, Vernon Martin, had carried one of these radios. Apparently he'd dropped the thing when he, Mace, and Gallegos had tried to make their run for the Shura building. Although it still wasn't clear what had happened to Martin, Carter had just found that radio. And in so doing, he had stumbled on perhaps the only communications link that had not been affected by the net switch. The critical question was whether anybody was still alive in the center of camp, and if so whether they were bothering to monitor Martin's frequency on the E.F. Johnson that was kept inside the chargers on the eastern wall of the command post. Carter snatched up the radio, keyed it, and heard nothing. He turned it off, then on again, keyed it a second time, and heard it working. This is Blue Four Gulf, he said, giving the call sign that identified him as a member of Blue Platoon. Is anyone still alive? In response, he heard a voice. He couldn't make out who it was or what was being said, but it was enough to send him racing back to the gun truck, where he handed the radio off to Larson. This is Red Dragon, said Larson. Red Dragon, this is Black Knight 7, replied First Sergeant Burton. What is your sit rep? Chapter 19 The Bone Inside the command post, Burton handed the E.F. Johnson off to Bunderman so that Larson could provide a brief situation report that included only the most important details. That Gallegos was dead, that Hart, Griffin, and Martin were missing, and that Mace was critically wounded and needed to be delivered to the aid station as fast as possible if they were to have any chance of saving his life. If I lay down a fuck-ton of fire, asked Bunderman, can you and Carter get him back here on your own? Hell yeah, replied Larson. We've got a litter right here, but we need a two-minute window to do it. All right, get him on the litter, said Bunderman. As soon as you hear a boom, start moving. Picking up an ICOM radio, Bunderman then called Jordan Bellamy up at Fritchie. The mortar crew there was still trying to calibrate their guns so that they could hang rounds accurately, but Bunderman didn't care about that right now. I need you to prepare to hit Ermool, he said. Which part? asked Bellamy. All of it, said Bunderman, giving him the eight-digit grid for the center of the village and specifying he use incendiary white phosphorus shells, which would cause whatever they hit to burn. Give me fifteen rounds from the 120 and fifteen from the 60. Roger, said Bellamy. Bunderman's next call was to me at the Shura building. They're going to try to get Mace out of there, he told me after passing along the astonishing news that Larson was alive, news that lifted my spirits and boosted my confidence in a way that nothing else could. If Larson is still in this fight, I thought to myself, we're solid. Can you provide covering fire? asked Bunderman. 
Yep, I confirmed. We can set up in the front and the rear of the Shura building. Okay, so what's going to happen is you're going to hear a boom, and then we're going to fire the 120s, he said. That's when I want you and your guys to push out and set your support by fire. Anything your team can shoot at the putting green or mool or the north face, do it. Larson and Carter are going to grab Mace and run. Roger that, I said. Then Bunderman summoned Hill, who was just outside the command center, and gave him the same orders, but with instructions for Hill's men to direct their fire at the diving board and the switchbacks. Finally, Bunderman put out a call to anyone listening on the combat net. If you have any sort of weapon system, it needs to go on target, he declared. I don't care what it is. I want everything we have ready to fire in one minute. It was a bold gamble. Every weapon inside Keating would open up at the same time in the hope that a massive barrage of outgoing fire would provide just enough cover for Larson and Carter to pick up Mace and complete an extended sprint over uneven terrain, weaving their way through ammo cans, rocks, and assorted pieces of wreckage across an unthinkably long distance, almost two hundred yards, from the far end of camp to the aid station, without being picked off. All of us assumed that the trigger for this move, the boom that Bunderman had referred to, would be the 120-millimeter mortar rounds from Fritchie. In fact, he had something quite a bit bigger than that in mind. Roughly five hours prior to the start of the attack on Keating, a captain named Justin Coolish pushed his throttles and started hurtling down a runway at Al-Udeed, an airbase in Qatar more than 1,300 miles southwest of Nuristan, at the controls of a B-1 Lancer. The Lancer is a supersonic intercontinental bomber whose size and power are enough to boggle the mind. On the ground, the aircraft sits higher than a three-story office building. Its wingspan is almost half the length of a football field. When fully loaded, it weighs nearly half a million pounds, and when it gets into the air, the thing can fly more than 900 miles per hour. Pilots like Coolish, who fly this plane, don't call it a Lancer, however. Instead, using a riff that derives from B-1, they simply refer to it as the Bone. The Bone also happens to carry the largest payload of any guided or unguided weapon in the entire Air Force inventory which means that it offers an unrivaled bouquet of options for an on-the-ground commander who was calling in an airstrike. Air Force crews sometimes say that the bone functions as a kind of airborne Dunkin' Donuts showcase of death, where the guys on the ground can browse through a menu of offerings and order up whatever they want. Regardless of whether you need a 500-pound GPS-guided bomb to demolish a building, a wind-corrected cluster bomb to rip the guts out of an armored column, or a standoff missile to take out a surface-to-air missile site from 50 miles away, a pilot like Coolish and his three-man crew, co-pilot plus two Wizzos, have got you covered. Coolish's bomber, whose call sign was Bone 21, was conducting a routine patrol and had already been in the air for almost eight hours when the call came through that Keating was in danger of being overrun and needed help. As Coolish swung in the direction of Nuristan, the Air Force controllers at Bostick asked him how long it would take him to get there. Thirty minutes, radioed Coolish, if he flew at maximum speed without his afterburners, but far less if he went supersonic. The catch? The bone would inhale five times as much fuel once it broke the sound barrier, 
and he would need to refuel pretty much the moment he showed up. Do it, replied the controllers. Kicking in his afterburners, Coolish pushed his bomber to 1.2 Mach. Meanwhile, Michael Polidor and Aaron Dove started rearranging the stack to make room for his arrival. Shortly after 10.30 a.m., as Coolish drew near the target zone, he and his crew started catching the radio traffic and were a bit stunned to discover how many aircraft were in the area. The airspace above Keating seemed to be packed with jets, so they knew that whatever was taking place on the ground was no ordinary engagement. When they finally got directly overhead and were able to pick up details of what was unfolding, they had the same reaction as every other pilot who arrived on scene that day. What struck Coolish most forcefully was how much of Keating was on fire. From the air, it looked as if the entire outpost was burning. The other thing they noted was that the weather was starting to change. At 10.39 a.m., the controllers at Bostick requested a weather check from any Predator surveillance aircraft orbiting inside the stack. One minute later, a drone with the call sign Cyjohn, which was working the airspace five nautical miles southeast of Keating, started receiving icing warnings on its sensors. At the same time, LeMay, the call sign for another drone in the area, recorded that heavy cumulus clouds were gathering everywhere. An early winter storm was starting to roll in from the east, pushing a wall of clouds laced with thunderstorms from 200 feet off the ground all the way up to 30,000 feet. When the storm kicked in fully, the ground would no longer be visible and any aircraft inside the stack would be able to drop only GPS-guided smart bombs whose sensors were locked onto coordinates provided by forward observers on the ground. As an added difficulty, the storm would force the stratotankers to move off about a hundred miles away, which would force the smaller jets inside the stack to fly farther in order to refuel. Fortunately, in addition to all of its other munitions, the bone was equipped with twenty precision-guided bombs known as J-dams. Twelve of those smart bombs tipped the scales at five hundred pounds apiece. The other eight were monsters that weighed two thousand pounds each and were as long as a pickup truck. Jammed with high explosives and encased in a metal housing that was designed to fragment into hot shrapnel, those bombs were collectively capable of blowing a sizable hole into the middle of the Taliban's assault, although there was a hitch that needed to be taken into account. When word reached Keating's command post that a B-1 was on its way, Bunderman told Schrode to break out the field artillery manual and pull up the specs on just how close they could drop those bombs without obliterating everybody inside the wire. The J-dams on board the Bone were equipped with GPS receivers in their tails, along with small steering mechanisms called servo motors that could redirect their flight path. Thanks to that guidance package, the bombs were supposed to be accurate to within 15 yards. This was an important consideration, because the normal rule of thumb during training is that you want to have a yard of standoff, the distance between the point of detonation and the nearest personnel, for every pound of explosives, because no one who is inside that radius and not under some sort of cover is likely to survive the shock wave and the shrapnel. This wasn't a training situation, however so when Schrode pulled up the information, he and Bunderman determined that they were comfortable with calling in an airstrike within 200 yards of the outpost, 
which they immediately passed along to the Air Force controllers at Bostek. Then Schrode and Bunderman performed a quick huddle to figure out exactly how far they wanted to push inside the zone of what is called Danger Close, the unspoken question between the two of them being, what's the closest strike we can call in while lowering the odds that any of us will survive by an additional 10%. One minute later, they sent word to Bostick that anything to within 100 yards of Keating was fair game. What Bunderman intended to submit was a request that a cluster of smart bombs be dropped between the putting green and Ermul. This, he envisioned, would serve as a kind of two-for-one special. In a single stroke, he'd terminate a swath of enemy gunners and RPG teams all along the spur that connected those two hotspots. And if he got extra lucky, those bombs might also take out one or two dishkas that the Taliban had placed along those ridge lines overlooking the village. Although these dishkas were in a different location from the heavy machine gun that had just succeeded in damaging Llewellyn's and Huff's Apaches, the pilots were also concerned about these weapon systems. Eliminating them before the helicopters returned to the battle space was a priority for Bunderman. The entire plan was already in place when the first sergeant handed over the E.F. Johnson radio and Bunderman learned that Larson, Carter, and Mace were alive. From Bunderman's perspective, the next step, using the Bones bomb drop as the trigger for a massive barrage of cover fire from red and blue platoons, plus Fritchie's mortars, so that Larson and Carter could make their run with Mace to the aid station, seemed like a no-brainer. By 10.56 a.m., the Air Force controllers at Bostick had radioed Coolish and his crew, who by now had topped off their fuel tanks and were ready to drop, to prepare to engage. One minute later, Coolish announced, Weapons away! And let loose six of the Bones smart bombs, all of them targeted at the putting green and the spur leading down to Ermul. As the bombs fell, Bunderman sent out a final warning to anyone who was listening on the combat net. Everybody get low, he ordered. This one's gonna be close. When you're less than 200 yards away from a massive bomb drop, the impact is unspeakably violent. The initial explosion registers as a deafening bolt of sound, but the auditory assault doesn't really matter, because the concussion that follows is so much more powerful. What's more, these two forces, sound plus shockwave, are stacked so closely together that you're barely aware of the distinction. What you feel, mostly, is a kind of vast pushing sensation, almost as if an ocean wave has struck you in the solar plexus and, through some strange trick of physics, is now passing through your tissue, your bones, your entire body. If you haven't experienced it directly, the effect is hard to imagine, unless you try to conceive what it might be like to be an especially tiny insect, a type of mite, say, huddled inside the bass drum of a heavy metal rock band. Wow, that was close, you say to yourself, as the first shock registers and passes. But damn, it was kind of cool, too, you think, as the last shock recedes. And then you're struck by a disturbing idea. Oh my god. Did I just die and I haven't yet realized it? As impressive and fearsome as all of this was, however, 
the thing that truly blew our minds was the visual impact of the bone's airstrike. When the bombs started falling, Raz and I were crouching on the floor in the middle of the Shura building, having already moved away from the walls on the theory that if the building collapsed around us, we'd have a better chance of surviving a hit from the plywood roof than if we were buried beneath the wreckage of the stone walls. This meant that we were staring straight through the west doorway, which neatly framed the putting green. The first bomb sledgehammered the top of the ridge directly above Ermul, blowing chunks of dirt, clouds of pulverized rock, and shredded bits of trees high into the air. The impact created an unearthly sound that was louder and darker and more menacing by far than any thunderclap that either of us had ever heard. And as the explosion unfurled like a crimson flower, we realized that we could actually see the concussion coming at us in an undulating pulse that was causing the air itself to vibrate. When the concussion struck the Shura building, it picked up the entire roof and slammed it back down while seizing all four walls and shaking them as if they were a cluster of dead leaves on a tree branch. The air inside filled with a cloud of deeply agitated dust particles. And as all of this was unfolding, the second and third bombs were now striking the putting green, to be followed in turn by the fourth and the fifth and the last. Crack-boom! 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 It was, quite simply, the most awesome thing that Raz and me had ever witnessed in our entire lives. And under any other circumstances, we would both have felt compelled to pause for a moment, to breathe in, and acknowledge the blunt and feral majesty of that awesomeness. But at that moment, I could also hear Bunderman on my radio giving the countdown to open up. Anyone who can hear this, give fire on three. One, two. Grab your 203 now, I yelled to Raz. Get out the back door and unload everything you've got. Without missing a beat, Raz dashed through the door, crouched down in the trench with his back to the east side of the Shura building, and began launching grenades backward over his shoulder in the direction of the north face. He pumped them out as fast as Miller, who had revived enough to serve as his assistant, handed them to him, not even bothering to look where he was shooting. Meanwhile, me and Delaney had sprinted through the west door and set up just outside. While Delaney let loose with his saw, vomiting out an entire drum of rounds into the putting green with a prolonged, vicious-sounding brack. I was burning through a belt of ammo on the PKM machine gun that had been abandoned by the Taliban concentrating on the switchbacks and Ermul. All across Keating, every man who could stand and shoot was springing from his position and doing exactly the same thing. Copus was pumping grenades into the diving board with the Mark 19 on our last remaining gun truck. Hill and the men of Blue Platoon were riddling the sides of the North Face and the switchbacks with every heavy machine gun and personal weapon they could lay their hands on. Even Big John Breeding and the two surviving members of his gun crew up at the mortar pit, who by some miracle had managed to re-establish radio contact, just as Bunderman was ordering every weapon system on post to open up, were putting out fire. Only much later would we learn that Breeding and Daniel Rodriguez had managed to retrieve the 60mm mortar tube from the pit and were now firing it, by hand, into the north face from inside their hooch.
And while all of this was taking place, the gun crew up at Fritchie was hurling mortars into the center of Ermul, accurately this time, as fast as they could load and shoot. The combined effect of all that outgoing firepower was something to behold. Bullets, grenades, and mortars were flying in all directions. None of us had the faintest idea how accurate we were or what sort of damage we might be inflicting on the enemy. But one thing that I can say for sure is that when Larson and Carter heard the barrage go off, they knew exactly what to do. Carter had been hoping for a brief lull so that he could prep the stretcher that we kept on the back hatch of the gun truck and clear a path for the first part of their run. But as soon as the last of the smart bombs from the bone struck above Ermul, Larson was yelling, Go, go, go! Jumping out of the truck, Carter kicked a few loose ammo cans out of the way, seized the stretcher, and raced over to the rear door on the passenger side, where Larson had the door open for Mace. Mace, you need to shift your legs, Larson ordered. We're going to throw you on this litter, and then we're going to run. As Mace tried to move, they pulled him from the truck and placed him on the stretcher. Larson tucked their weapons next to Mace, then grabbed the handles on the back end while Carter took the front. They had more than a hundred yards of open ground to cover. The terrain was uneven and would be swept by sniper and machine gun fire the entire way. Mace, this is gonna hurt like a motherfucker, Larson announced. Hang on, boy. With that, they started running. Charging as hard as they possibly could, they tried to keep to a straight line without any weaving or dodging, except for when they had to skirt around bomb craters or pieces of wreckage. It was pretty much exactly the same way that the other guys had carried Kirk on his litter three and a half hours earlier, except that there were only two runners instead of four, and now they had to cover more than twice the distance. Neither Larson nor Carter would remember much about that run, except that it was one of the hardest physical things that either of them had ever done, and that they hauled ass the entire way. They jumped straight over at least two dead Taliban soldiers, and somewhere between the piss tubes and the Shura building, they also encountered the body of an American soldier. It was Chris Griffin, who had given up his life while trying to rescue them. This was as far as he'd gotten when he was gunned down. They ran straight past him and kept going. As they peeled by us on the south side of the Shura building, I caught them out of the corner of my eye. From there, they traced a reverse version of the same route that we had taken when we'd fought our way to the ammo supply point, past Jonesy and his machine gun, past the demolished door to John Deere's room, around the end of the Hesco wall, along the side of Red Barracks, and straight through the white plywood door with the red cross painted on it, where Larson and Carter delivered up Mace to the medics by dropping to their knees on the blood-smeared blue linoleum floor of the aid station. The moment we got word that the litter team was safe, everybody ceased fire and ducked back inside for cover. As our shooting subsided, a stunned silence descended over Keating and the surrounding ridges. The fighting would quickly resume, but in the lull, as I crouched inside the Shura building and surveyed the mud and stone walls around me, I keyed my radio and spoke to Bunderman. I'm no structural engineer, I said but I don't know how much more this building can take. Well, do you want me to stop it? he asked. 
The bone had plenty more smart bombs, and Bunderman had every intention of using them. Nope, keep giving it, I replied. Let the building collapse around us and we'll figure it out from there. A minute or two later, I got another call from the command post. It was my best friend. Hey, brother, I just got patched up by the medics and I'm good to go, said Larson. Where are you at? We're out by the front gate, I told him. If you can make it here, we've got some more work to do and we could sure use a hand. We still had to take back the helicopter landing zone so that we could evacuate our wounded. We also had to find a way to venture out and collect our fallen brothers before the Taliban made off with their bodies. And while we did those things, our medics had to find a way of somehow keeping Mace alive. On a number of levels, this battle wasn't over yet. Part 5 Saving Stefan Mace Chapter 20 Go Get It Done Despite the twin hammer blows of the B-1 airstrike and the barrage of outgoing fire, the Taliban didn't take long to return to the business of trying to wipe Keating off the map. Within a few minutes of Mace's arrival in the aid station, the buildings in the center of camp were once again targeted by enemy gunners. Anyone trying to move outside those structures instantly drew fire from snipers, rocket crews, and machine gun teams. From inside the Shura building, however, it seemed to us that this onslaught was blunted by the increasingly aggressive air support that we were now getting. No sooner did the bone check off station than the sky above camp was playing host to a gaggle of warthogs. The snub-nosed A-10 attack jets would appear from out of nowhere, usually in pairs, and hit the ridge lines and mountainsides with long, metallic-sounding bursts from their 30-millimeter cannon, which fired four or five times faster than even the chain guns on the Apaches. They seemed to concentrate mainly on the switchbacks and the north face, homing in on targets that had been relayed from Armando Avalos, who continued to call in coordinates and strike requests. The helicopters were back too, sweeping through the narrow valley with a vengeance and directing their fire into any cracks and crevices where they thought the enemy might be hiding. And before long, just as soon as Justin Coolish, the commander of the Bone, was able to refuel his aircraft, Bunderman would be requesting another massive strike, this time using a suite of even larger and more destructive 2,000-pound smart bombs along the switchbacks. This furious renewal of the engagement by both sides gave rise to the unstated feeling, which we all shared, that the final outcome of this battle still hung in the balance and had yet to fully swing to one side or the other. It was amid this atmosphere of uncertainty that Larson showed up at the east door of the Shura building lugging an M4 that he'd snatched from God only knew where and as much ammunition as he could possibly carry. When he arrived, I tamped down the elation that arose inside my chest and kept things cool by giving him a quick man-hug, shoulders only. Even so, it was obvious that I was thrilled to have him back. Then we got down to it. The most important piece of information Larson had to share was that he'd spotted Griffin's body near the piss tubes as he and Carter had chugged past with Mace. That was less than thirty yards from where we were standing. If we acted fast, we could reclaim the first of our dead. Larson and Raz immediately volunteered to go get him, 
They got ready by dropping their ammo, weapons, and anything else that might slow them down. After they'd stripped off everything but their Kevlar body armor, they darted out the west door and sprinted toward Griffin while Delaney and I stepped outside and opened up on the putting green and the switchbacks with our machine guns. When they reached Griffin's body, they discovered that rigor had already set in, and he was as stiff as a board. While Larson picked up his legs, one of which had been badly broken and was now bent at an impossible angle, Raz seized his head and neck. As Raz started to lift, something shifted inside Griffin, and a gob of blackish-looking goo, as thick as molasses, erupted from Griffin's mouth and sprayed over Raz's face and arms. This was the first of several encounters over the next hour in which the members of my team would find themselves literally and figuratively touched by death and its aftermath in a way that was visceral, direct, and ugly enough to stay with us for the rest of our lives. In that moment, however, neither Raz nor Larson could afford to think about what was happening. They were too busy stumbling back to the Shura building while half-carrying, half-dragging Griffin's body between them. When they arrived, we all retreated inside and laid Griffin out on the floor. The damage that the bullets had done to him, the wounds in his cheek, the side of his skull and his neck, the large caliber holes in his thigh, was horrific and hard to take in. A few minutes later, Sergeant Jim Stanley and Damien Grisset, a specialist from HQ Platoon who was in charge of Keating's water supply, showed up with a stretcher to take him back to the aid station. Before leaving, Stanley and Grisset delivered some news. The fire that had started on the Afghan National Army side of camp had now spread to the point where Blue Platoon's barracks was about to go up in flames. Only the command post separated Blue's barracks from Red Platoon's barracks, which meant that there was a good chance that everything we'd brought from the States to sustain us during our year in Afghanistan might be on the verge of turning to ashes. Hey, Roe. Larson said softly. Mind if I run back and get my chew before it all burns up? Given that we were in the midst of battle, it's hard to imagine a more inappropriate request. But it's a testament to the peculiar chemistry of combat, the surreal and irrational way that it can blend high seriousness with the irredeemably banal, that I didn't blink an eye when he popped the question. All right, see you back here in a bit, I replied. And while you're there, see if you can grab me a can of Dr. Pepper, okay? Less than five minutes later, Larson was back, with a can of Copenhagen and a six-pack of Dr. Pepper. He'd also been thoughtful enough to snag my carton of camels, which meant that every man in the Shura building could now take a tactical pause to crack open a soft drink and grab a smoke. We all agreed that it was an excellent resupply mission and fully worth the risk of Larson maybe getting shot. As I opened up a can of warm Dr. Pepper and lit my first cigarette of the day, Larson and I huddled up to review what we knew about the locations of the rest of the men who were still missing. There was no mystery about Gallegos, who was lying on the north side of the latrines. But we weren't so sure about Martin. Larson was pretty confident that he had been heading in the direction of the Shura building when he disappeared, so our best guess was that he was somewhere between the latrines and the front gate. As for Hart, we were stumped. We were both fairly certain he was dead, but we had no clue where his body might be. All we knew for sure 
was that if we didn't figure out where he was and get to him, the Taliban would snatch his body up, and neither we nor his family would ever see him again. With that, I called an end to the break by pointing to the three windows on the north wall of the building and explaining to Larson how the game of grenade chicken worked. Keep chucking those grenades through the window while I link up with Bunderman, I said, as I headed for the door to make yet another run to the center of camp. I need to figure out how we're going to get our guys back. When I reached the command post, Bunderman pulled Hill and me together so that the three of us could take stock of where things stood. Keating was now split in half. Almost the entire eastern side was on fire, while we had no control over our western sector. Also, we still had one pocket of soldiers who were completely cut off. John Breeding and his two gunners, Daniel Rodriguez and Jan Patrick Baroga, remained trapped in the mortar pit, along with the body of Kevin Thompson. We agreed that we needed to tackle three things at once. While part of Blue Platoon continued to fight the fire that had all but consumed the ANA side of camp, we had to find a way for the other half of Blue Platoon and the surviving members of Red to recover our dead while simultaneously linking up with and rescuing the men in the mortar pit. The only way to accomplish that was to launch a second assault, in which we pushed, under massive cover fire, all the way from the Shura building up to the mortar pit, searching for and collecting bodies along the way. This called for a maneuver known as a bounding overwatch, in which two teams, one led by me on the right, the other by Hill on the left, would proceed uphill in separate stages so that whichever team was on the move would be protected with cover fire by the team that was stationary. To ensure that we were clear on this, Bunderman stepped over to the map on the west wall of the command post and used his finger to trace out exactly how the move needed to unfold. On Bunderman's command, my squad, which would consist of five guys, including me, would leave the protection of the Shura building and begin bounding uphill toward the first spot where we would have cover and concealment, which would probably be somewhere around the laundry trailer. When we were in position, I'd keep my radio and announce, Set! Then Hill's team, which was supposed to number six guys, including him, would make a dash from the tool shed toward the cluster of buildings around the chow hall. They'd bring a medium machine gun with them, and when they reached a place where they felt secure, Hill would call, Set. At this point, my squad would scan for Martin's body, and then make another push, with Hill's men providing cover fire. Farther uphill toward the latrines, where we'd set up again in order to cover Hill's men as they made a dash for the mechanics bay. We'd continue moving in this manner, first red, then blue, each side covering the other while everybody kept an eye peeled for Gallegos's and Hart's bodies, all the way to the mortar pit. Given how few men we had, there was little chance that we could successfully defend and hold the pit. So when we got there, we'd grab Breeding and his crew along with the body of Kevin Thompson, and everybody would peel back to the Shura building. Thanks to Hill's team, I'd have a solid wall of outgoing fire protecting my exposed right flank from any Taliban gunners trying to take us out from the putting green and the village of Ermul. Thanks to my squad, Hill would have similar coverage on his vulnerable left flank from any enemy fire sweeping down from the switchbacks, the waterfall area, and the diving board. And for an added measure of comfort, we'd all have an extra boost of suppressive fire coming from Copus, 
who had already been hammering away on his Mark 19 for what seemed like eight hours, and who would continue working his gun truck's grenade launcher like a gangster to cover our back end. In addition to good communication between me and Hill, one of the keys to pulling this off would be to make sure that the separate arms of the maneuver swung smoothly. So Hill and I would both put our best guys in the middle, in my case Larson, who would be on the left end of my squad, and in Hill's case, Harder, who would be on the right side of his team. As we pushed toward the mortar pit in stages, Larson and Harder would pass each other continuously, thereby serving as a kind of mobile hinge that would connect my team and Hill's. In addition to all of that, which was a lot, there was one other thing I would need in order to uphold my side of the deal. Most of the bodies, certainly Martin and Gallegos, and perhaps Hart too, would be lying farther toward the west, which meant that they would probably be discovered by my squad. With only five men, it would be impossible for us to fight our way uphill toward the mortar pit while simultaneously hauling those bodies back to the security of the Shura building. I'm going to need a couple of extra guys that can carry bodies, I said. Hill pointed out that HQ Platoon had several men who weren't actively involved in the fight, but were willing to help. Among these were Grissette and Private Kellen Kahn, a radio operator who suffered from a bad ankle. If Grissette and Kahn hooked up with Avalos, who was still out of the Shura building, they could form a three-man casualty collection team and take care of the job. With that decided, there wasn't much else to say. It was a solid plan. Now the aim was to make it happen as fast as possible. We have to get to our fallen guys before they get snatched, I said. We need to launch now. Negative, said Bunderman, shaking his head. My primary concern was retrieving our dead, but Bunderman was looking at a bigger picture that involved, among many other considerations, not making a bad situation even worse. His concern, and it was legitimate, was that if anything went wrong on this assault and we got cut off or lost more guys, there would be nobody left to pull us out. Get back to the Shura building and get your team ready, he said. Then sit tight and wait till I give you the word. I stared down at the floor in frustration, but didn't object because I knew that he was making the right call. We were gonna have to wait for the QRF. A QRF, or Quick Reaction Force, is a team of soldiers placed on permanent standby to respond to any emergency in their battle sector. They're equipped to provide either reinforcement or rescue, and they're poised to deploy with extraordinary speed, often within ten minutes or less. Earlier that morning, shortly after six, when our superiors at Bostick had received word that Keating was in danger of being overrun, one of the first things that they'd done in addition to scrambling all available air support, was to call for a QRF to be air-assaulted into Keating to bolster our defenses. Our brigade's quick reaction force consisted of two rifle companies from the 132 Infantry that were led by Captain Justin Sachs and two lieutenants, Jake Moraldi and Jake Kerr. That team, which consisted of almost 150 men, was spread between two neighboring outposts, Joyce and Fenty when they got the call to come to our aid. By 10 a.m., Sachs's entire force had been shuttled into Bostick on a series of Black Hawk helicopters and were waiting on the tarmac 
while Sachs, Maraldi, and the rest of his leadership team gathered inside the command post with Colonel Brad Brown and his staff to figure out the best way to insert the rescue group into Keating. Among the soldiers in that room, no one was more desperate to see the rescue get underway than Captain Stoney Portis, Keating's commander, who had been stranded at Bostick when the Taliban's attack kicked off. Portis had already tried to reach us by jumping aboard a medevac helicopter that had flown partway to the outpost before getting recalled because our landing zone was too hot. Now Portis was back at Bostick and eager to hitch a ride in with Sachs. At this point, the information available to the commanders at Bostick about the situation on the ground at Keating was sketchy. They knew that we had enemy inside the wire, but there was confusion about which buildings were still under American control and which were not. That confusion was exacerbated by how rapidly things were changing as we fell back to the Alamo position, then counter-assaulted to retake the ammo supply depot and the Shura building. The picture was further complicated by the fact that so much of the outpost was either on fire or obscured from above by thick clouds of smoke. As Sachs and Miraldi stared at the monitors displaying the live feeds from the surveillance drones, they scratched their heads in frustration. There was too much haze for the cameras to pick up much in the way of meaningful details, although one thing was crystal clear. Keating's landing zone was far too exposed to enemy fire to risk sending helicopters carrying the QRF directly to the outpost. In addition to those challenges, the planning team found itself confronting some severe weather issues. By now, heavy rain and thunderstorms were rolling through the Kunar Valley, greatly reducing visibility while encasing the mountaintops with dense cloud cover through which the helicopters would not be able to fly. Soon that storm front would be directly above Bostick. Within another half hour, it would be interfering with bomb drops and airstrikes over Keating. Based on these factors, the commanders initially found themselves debating two possible landing zones. One option was to drop Sachs and his rescue team somewhere above the switchbacks. A second possibility was to insert everyone onto the putting green directly above Ermul. Everyone was coming around to the notion that the putting green seemed like the best option when a pair of Apache pilots walked through the door and blew that idea out of the water. It was right around 10.30 a.m. when Ross Llewellyn and Randy Huff brought the two choppers that had been damaged by the Taliban's dishka back to Bostik and managed to land both aircraft safely on the tarmac. Neither helicopter would be able to return to the fight until a repair team that was now on its way from Jalalabad airfield was able to wire the machines back together. Llewellyn used this pause well. First, he borrowed a cleaning rod, the long metal dowel that infantrymen use for swabbing their rifles, located the bullet hole underneath the pilot seat of his Apache, inserted the rod into the hole, and then stepped back. The cleaning rod was now serving as a kind of crude arrow, pointing in the direction from which the bullet had come. After studying the angle of the rod for a few moments and retrieving his mental notes of exactly where his aircraft had been when it was struck, Llewellyn nodded to himself, satisfied that he had a fairly good idea of where that dishka was positioned. Then he caught up with Huff, and the two men headed over to the command post to see if they could offer any help in strategizing the air assault. When they walked through the door, 
the pilots took one look at the diagram that the commanders were working up and declared, in no uncertain terms, that somebody needed to come up with a better idea, unless the goal of this operation was to get everybody killed, in which case dumping the QRF on the putting green would definitely be a kick-ass way to go. As a new plan was being put together, two additional Apaches arrived at Bostick from Bagram Airfield and proceeded directly to Keating. Within a few minutes of entering the battle space, one of those helicopters was struck by Dishka fire. The damage, which was severe, forced both birds to break contact and return to Bostick for repairs, confirming Llewellyn and Huff's warning about the vulnerabilities of the putting green. After hearing Llewellyn and Huff's assessment, the command team switched gears and decided that the helicopters would shuttle as many men as possible into Fritchie, where the rescue force would consolidate and then walk down to Keating. The descent would take about four hours. If necessary, they would fight their way down the entire mountain. That was acceptable to the pilots. Fritchie's landing zone was large enough to enable three Blackhawks to land simultaneously. Based on the total number of soldiers they needed to insert, they calculated that it would take five separate trips, or turns, of three Blackhawks, with two Apaches flying in front and behind to provide gun support and hopefully prevent the heavily loaded Blackhawks from getting shot down. Time was not on their side. By now, the thunderstorms were directly above Bostick, and the sky had grown dark. The weather radar indicated that this particular storm system would be followed by a brief window of clear weather, after which there was another line of thunderheads that might force the helicopters out of the mountains and keep them grounded for quite some time. The good news, however, was that the two-man repair team that had been dispatched from Jalalabad to patch Llewellyn's and Huff's birds back together was just now arriving, and they had flown themselves up in a pair of undamaged Apaches. Dashing out to the tarmac, Llewellyn and Huff approached the repair team, John Jones and Gary Wingert, before they even had a chance to shut down their engines. Would it be cool, asked Llewellyn, if he and Huff were to borrow these two birds, while Jones and Wingert worked on the choppers that had been shot up by the Dishka? Sure, replied Jones. Next, Llewellyn placed a call to his boss back in Jalalabad, Colonel Jimmy Blackman, and ran the plan past him. Okay said Blackman, when he heard what they had in mind. Go get it done. When Llewellyn and Huff climbed into the replacement helicopters with their gunners, Chad Bardwell and Chris Wright, the blades were still turning. The same was true for the three Blackhawks sitting nearby, which were now fully loaded with twenty-one soldiers, including Saxe, Moraldi, and Portis. Now all they needed was a break in the weather. Shortly after 11 a.m., the sky cleared just enough that the commanders gave Huff, who would be in charge of this sortie, clearance to take off. There was still some doubt about whether the storm system would permit them to fly over Barry Kawat Pass, which they needed to clear in order to enter the Kamdash Valley. So Huff launched first so that he could survey the weather conditions on the far side. The trio of Blackhawks followed behind him, with Llewellyn's Apache bringing up the rear. Minutes later, when Huff punched over the pass, he could see cloud cover with lightning and rain throughout the entire valley. After he and Wright talked things over, however, 
they agreed that it was possible to complete the mission before the weather rendered flying completely impossible. With that, the five aircraft headed for Fritchie as fast as possible, ramming through high storm clouds that drenched them with snow and freezing rain. About halfway up the valley, they also started taking enemy fire, at which point the door gunners on the Blackhawks opened up and began shooting everywhere they saw muzzle flashes. Wright and Bardwell followed suit by laying down fire on those same targets with their chain guns. As they drew near Fritchie, Huff descended first in order to clear the landing zone. Then the first two Blackhawks touched down simultaneously inside an open area at the top of the ridge to drop their passengers off and immediately get back in the air. As they departed, the third Blackhawk landed briefly, then chased its sisters back in the direction of Bostick to collect another load of soldiers, plus a resupply of ammo and water. Meanwhile, Llewellyn wheeled north in the direction of Keating with Huff in tow. They had some unfinished business to take care of with the Dishka team that had nearly shot them out of the sky. As soon as the Apaches were back in radio contact with Keating, Bunderman requested that they place a couple of Hellfire missiles into a large rectangular building just down the road on the east side of the outpost. That building normally served as a clinic, but thanks to some communications that had been intercepted by the Electronic Warfare Boys, it was now believed to harbor some of the Taliban commanders who were coordinating the attack. As Llewellyn and Huff shot one hellfire apiece into the building, Llewellyn kept his eyes peeled for any sign of heavy gunfire coming from the ridges to the south of Keating. One of the few benefits of the worsening weather was that the dark skies now rendered muzzle flashes far more visible. Gunfire that would have been impossible to spot from above in direct sunlight now jumped out like neon against the surrounding rocks and vegetation. Llewellyn scrutinized the high ground between the top of the diving board and the switchbacks. Sure enough, right where he suspected, he spotted a telltale orange flash from the barrel of a dishka. I see you, you asshole, he said to himself, and immediately turned to attack. We've got him, he radioed to Huff. Cover us. Llewellyn's plan was to destroy the Dishka team with a salvo of rockets, which could be fired from the back seat where he was sitting. But as he made his approach and prepared to fire to the left, where he'd spotted the gun, Bardwell, who was in the front seat, caught sight of a second muzzle flash. I have another one! Bardwell announced, and opened up with his 30-millimeter chain gun. Meanwhile, their wingmen, Huff and Wright, had also opened up with their guns, but they weren't aiming at Bardwell's target or Llewellyn's. It was then that all four pilots realized that there was not one or even two, but three separate dishkas emplaced at the top of the ridge. After saturating the ridge line with gunfire and making multiple passes over the site, to scan for human heat signatures with their sensors, it was clear that they had obliterated all three gun crews. They weren't quite so certain about the weapons systems, however, which appeared as if they might still be operative. If so, and if the Taliban were able to get fresh crews up onto the ridge, those guns could still pose a devastating threat, especially to a medevac attempting to fly into Keating or on its way from the outpost back to Bostik with the wounded soldiers on board. Although the two Apache crews would have preferred to keep hitting the Dishkas until they were thoroughly destroyed, they were forced to break contact and begin making their way back to Barry Kawat, 
where the three Blackhawks, having now taken on their second load of soldiers at Bostick, were preparing to re-enter the valley and needed an escort into Fritchie. Just as they were about to turn away from Keating, Wright radioed down to let our command post know that he would be back as soon as possible. He was surprised to learn that whoever he was talking to, it was almost certainly Cason Schrode, still had his sense of humor. Oh, so the machine gun fire stops and now we can't get any love? Trust me, brother, we are only here for you guys, replied Wright, chuckling as the two Apaches made a beeline toward the pass. But right now we have to help the rest of your relief team get on the ground. This time the enemy knew they'd be coming, so when the Apaches linked up with the Blackhawks and headed back up the valley on their second approach, they had to weather an even heavier barrage of gunfire from the ground. Nevertheless, they managed to drop their loads safely at Fritchie. But now, another problem arose. As they pulled away, all five pilots could see that the clouds were closing in fast. They had just enough clear weather to make it back to Bostick. But once they arrived, the second wave of thunderheads would slam the door shut behind them, and they'd be forced to cool their heels on the tarmac until another window appeared. The chances of that next window opening up quickly were pretty much zero. Up at Mustang, an observation post that was perched on the ridges high above Bostick, the antenna were getting slammed by lightning. And several thousand feet above that, conditions were getting so bad that one of the surveillance drones, an MQ-1 predator with the call sign Kissling, was accumulating so much ice on its wings that its pilot, who was based in Nevada, would soon be forced to crash it into the side of a mountain. Judging by the weather radar, the soonest anyone could hope for another opening was at least an hour away, maybe even two. Until then, Justin Sachs and his rescue team would be on their own. It was now coming up on 1 p.m., and Sachs was confronting the sort of decision that no field commander relishes. His superiors had agreed that he needed about 150 men in order to get safely down the mountain and relieve Keating. Right then, he had less than a third of that. The prudent move, therefore, was to wait until the weather cleared and the Blackhawks could deliver the rest of his team. On the other hand, Sachs was acutely aware that Keating's defenders were hanging by a thread and that we badly needed his help. Even more sobering, perhaps, was that Sachs held in his hands the lives of Keating's wounded. There was simply no way to secure the outpost's landing zone without the additional manpower provided by Sachs's rescue team. And until that landing zone was opened up, there would be no medevac. Stony Portis was set on departing immediately, an impulse that was fiercely supported by every member of White Platoon, who were horrified by the radio reports they'd been receiving and were crawling out of their skin with worry about their brothers down below in Red, Blue, and HQ platoons. But Sachs, who had the final call, had to weigh the urge to relieve Keating against the duty to avoid getting in over his head and creating a second crisis on top of the first. Eventually, Sachs and Portis agreed that if the weather didn't improve and the rest of Sachs's men didn't arrive by 2 p.m., they would move ahead without them and hope for the best. 3,000 vertical feet below Fritchie, inside the Shura building on the north side of Keating, 
me and my team were anxiously awaiting word on when we could launch our next assault toward the mortar pit, and all too aware that each minute of delay lessened our chances of getting our guys back. We weren't privy to any of the details about the air assault that was taking place on the ridge above us, or the challenges that Saxe and Portis were up against. All we knew was that it seemed to be taking them forever. Finally, just after 2 p.m., Bunderman radioed to let me know that the quick reaction force had just left the wire at Fritchie and were on their way down the mountain. Red 2, QRF is leaving Fritchie, he announced. Prepare to launch and tell me when you are ready. Chapter 21 Mustering the Dead If you wanted to select the most likely place for an American soldier to get picked off by an enemy gunner from the ridges surrounding Keating, it would be hard to come up with a better spot than the thirty-yard stretch of bare dirt and loosely scattered pebbles that lay just beyond the south side of the Shura building. Inside this zone, the ground was open, the terrain sloped uphill, and the entire space was exposed to direct fire from virtually every sector. Nobody in his right mind would voluntarily step into that killing ground. Yet that's exactly what was required of the men who would spearhead the push to recover our dead and rescue our team at the mortar pit. Our right flank would be formed by Stanley and Dulaney, with Dulaney and his saw on the far end, because I wanted the weapon that could inflict the heaviest casualties to shield us, as much as possible, from the Taliban gunners who'd be trying to take us down from across the river in Ormul and far up in the switchbacks. Larson and Raz would take the left flank, while I'd be directly in the center. From there, I could serve as command and control, directing our movements while simultaneously communicating with Bunderman back in the command post. Redcon 1, I radioed to Bunderman, a code that signaled we were ready to launch. Roger that, replied Bunderman, who waited until Hill confirmed the same. Then Bunderman called the launch. Red, move, he ordered. Go, I yelled. And with that, the five of us burst through the west door of the Shura building and moved out into the killing ground. The moment the Taliban realized what we were doing, their gunners opened up and we began taking heavy fire. The first shots came in from Ermul and the waterfall area. Then, all of a sudden, the switchbacks and the putting green kicked in, followed finally by the north face. Hundreds of bullets ripped up the dirt around our feet, while multiple RPGs snaked in, pulling their trails of white smoke behind them and exploding on all sides of us. The incoming fire was dense and intimidating, but we had the jump on them, and before the enemy gunners could get a solid bead on any of us, we'd sprinted across the open ground and were stacked in a line against the first available cover. Directly to my left was Raz, and beyond him was Larson, who was crouched behind truck two at the far left of our line. Stanley was to my immediate right, and beyond him, Dulaney was butted against the wall of Hesco's that made up Keating's outer perimeter. From there, Dulaney was unleashing wicked-sounding bursts from his saw toward the switchbacks. Each of us was spaced fifteen meters apart to ensure that an RPG could take out only one of us at a time. From my position in the center, where I was huddled on the south side of the laundry trailer, I glanced to both sides to confirm that all four of my guys had secured solid cover before keying my radio. 
Set, I yelled, alerting everyone on the combat net we were in position and that Hill's team now had a green light to start their move. Then I glanced directly behind us and spotted something that left me disoriented and confused. Thirty yards to our rear, Hill was standing in the west door of the Shura building. I spun and looked to my left, where a line of six men should have been charging uphill toward the chow hall. They were nowhere to be seen. Hill wasn't even remotely close to where he was supposed to be, while the assault that he should have been leading seemed to have disappeared. What in God's name did he think he was doing? The moment I raised that question in my mind, I understood that the answer, whatever it might be, simply didn't matter. Perhaps Hill had failed to grasp how this maneuver was supposed to work. Maybe he thought he was doing some good by shooting directly over our heads rather than providing crossfire support, which was what we needed in order to keep moving forward. Or perhaps he was reluctant to order his men into the teeth of the same murderous barrage we had just run through and risk losing all of them now that the Taliban gunners were wise to what we were trying to pull off. Regardless, it made no difference. The only thing that mattered was that me and my team were on our own, with no supporting fire whatsoever, and highly exposed to the enemy's guns from virtually every quadrant. Right then, the prudent move, indeed the only option that qualified as a smart play, would have been for us to withdraw. But if we pulled back to the Shura building, it was unlikely that we could launch out a second time after having telegraphed our move so clearly. Having lost both momentum and surprise, we would have squandered our best chance of retrieving our dead. And that was a price I wasn't willing to pay. Hey, we're already committed, I yelled out to the guys on either side of me, while deliberately avoiding any mention of the fact that we had no flank support on our left. We can't sit here, so we're going to do this in teams. Every man knew what this meant. We would split in half and execute the same maneuver that we'd been planning to conduct in tandem with Hill's team but within a narrower area and without nearly as much protection. We gotta push now, I barked, turning back for one last glance at the Shura building to confirm that Hill and his team weren't moving, and it was then that something caught my eye. It was the body of an American soldier, tucked underneath the east side of the laundry trailer. We'd found our mechanic, Vernon Martin. Ducking under the trailer, I could see that Martin was lying on his stomach with his feet facing me. There was no sign of his weapon. Reaching out with both hands, I grabbed the handle of his body armor just below the back of his neck, pulled him out, and gave him a once-over. He'd been hit in the leg, probably shrapnel from the RPG that had exploded inside the turret of Gallegos' gun truck, and he had placed a tourniquet over the wound with a strip of olive-colored cloth. That had slowed him down enough to prevent him from covering the final patch of open ground between the laundry trailer and the Shura building, so he'd crawled underneath the trailer in hopes of staying hidden. Once there, he'd had nowhere else to go as he succumbed to his wound, dying isolated and alone. Glancing downhill toward the Shura building, I keyed my radio, called up Avalos, and told him that he needed to launch out with his body recovery team to collect Martin. The job that we'd given Avalos and his helpers, Grisette and Khan, was both dangerous and exceptionally unpleasant. 
Thanks to the massive effort that's required to carry a dead body over uneven terrain, they would be forced to leave their weapons behind. What's more, in order to move as fast as possible and hopefully avoid being shot, they also would not be bringing a stretcher with them. Avalos and Khan were the first to make the dash up to the laundry trailer. When they arrived, they took hold of Martin and immediately started running downhill as fast as they could, dragging his body through the dirt and rocks. It was an appalling way to treat anyone who had died, much less a person they both had known. But they had no choice. The Taliban gunners fired at them the entire way in the hopes of taking one or both men out. As they reached the entrance to the Shura building, they were met by Grisette, who was horrified by what he had just witnessed. As two of the few African Americans at Keating, Grisette and Martin had been close friends. They'd leaned on each other for support, and they'd confided in each other when they needed advice or a sympathetic ear. Now Grisette's buddy was being yanked through the dirt like a tin can tied to the bumper of a car. Man, he cried out to Avalos in anguish and disgust. Not my boy. Little did Avalos know that within the next few minutes, he would be treated to the very same horror with a fallen soldier whose friendship and support he had known. While all of this was unfolding, I was yelling, Go! And my five-man squad was making our next push, which would take us uphill another forty yards from the laundry trailer to the latrines, where we would once again have some cover. Larson and Raz went first, racing madly and followed by Stanley, Delaney, and me. When I arrived, Raz was moving toward the door to the latrines while pulling a grenade from his vest pouch. Raz, I barked, please don't frag the shitter. He turned around and shot me a look of pure confusion. If you throw that grenade in there, I explained, the explosion's gonna blast through the open space at the bottom of the building and probably kill us all. Oh, roger that, he said. Plus, we're all gonna get covered in shit, I added. So just enter and clear, okay? Thank God I'm not the one in charge here, he muttered, as he stepped up, yanked open the door with his weapon raised, and found himself staring down the barrel and directly into the face of an Afghan man. It was Ron Jeremy, the interpreter, or Terp, as we called him, who had tried to warn us, just before 6 a.m., that the Taliban were about to attack. Since then, he had been crouching inside one of the latrine stalls with his legs pulled up to his chest, which is why he could now barely walk. One way of gauging the intensity of combat, a crude but revealing index of the psychic hold that it can take on those who are swept into its dark energy, is to consider what was going through Raz's head in that instant. A part of his mind, of course, fully recognized Ron, a man whom we all knew and liked, and who had done his best to prevent us from being obliterated. But another part of his mind, the part that was connected to the hand that Raz now had wrapped around the trigger housing of his rifle, registered only one thing, the figure of a man from Afghanistan. And the main thing that Raz wanted to do right then, the only thing he wanted to do, was to shoot this fucker in the face and wallpaper the inside of the latrines with his brains. Part of what made Raz such a superb soldier was that he maintained his violence of action during a firefight by refusing to pause or hesitate. That sort of momentum and focus is essential 
because sometimes it's the only thing that can propel a man through a set of obstacles and bring him out on the other side. But for reasons that even Raz didn't fully fathom, something that would later leave him puzzled and curious, he did hesitate, just long enough to allow a mildly disturbing question to break the surface of his thoughts. This dude standing in front of me is a Turk, not a Taliban. So if I shoot him in the head, will I get in trouble for that? Better to ask for permission first. Can I shoot him? He begged me, still glaring down the barrel of the rifle at Ron. No, Raz, I yelled. Well, I had to ask. Raz sighed as he lowered his weapon, seized Ron by the shirt, and yanked him outside. I really, really wanted to. We're not allowed to shoot the Terp, at least not till we figure out what side he's on, I said, turning to face Ron. Where the fuck have you come from? I demanded. I was needing to take a shit at 6 a.m., he explained. And since that time I am hiding inside. I paused, thought about that for a second or two, then looked downhill across the open ground toward the Shura building. Well, if you survive this long, I'm pretty sure you can make it back on your own, I told him. You can't stay here, and you can't come with us. So you know what, Ron? You better start running, and you better run like hell. Like the porn star who bore his nickname, Ron was short and fat and covered with hair. As he took off at a furious waddle, he looked pretty much exactly like a hedgehog trying to run on its hind legs, a spectacle that caused all of us to start laughing. We were still cackling, and Ron was still running, when I glanced around me on both sides and realized that we were missing somebody. Where the hell's Larson? I asked. Everybody shot me a blank look and shook their heads. Red Dragon, come in, I said, keying my radio. Red Dragon, where are you at? No response. Oh no, I thought to myself. We just lost our first guy on the assault. Furiously scanning the ground around us, I suddenly caught sight of a figure in an American Army uniform, crumpled in a ditch about twenty yards away on the south side of the latrines. He was lying face down and clearly dead. Get your team up here. We've got another body to bring down, I radioed to Avalos. Then I resumed screaming for Larson. My closest friend was still missing, but we'd found Gallegos. Back at the Shura building, Grisette was still distraught over the savage manner in which Martin's body had been treated. Seeing how upset he was, Avalos didn't think that Grisette was in the right frame of mind to run back through the gunfire and subject Gallegos' body to the same treatment. It's just going to be us, Avalos said, turning to Khan. On the count of three, we go. One, two. This time, they faced an even longer sprint. Within the first few yards, Avalos had left Khan, who was somewhat overweight and out of shape, far behind. By the time Avalos made it to the corner of the latrines, where I pointed him toward Gallegos, he was on his own. Khan had been forced to pause and take cover on the north side of the latrines. When Avalos reached the body, he realized that Gallegos could not have picked a worse spot to die. Without any assistance, 
it would be virtually impossible for Avalos to heft the biggest man at Keating to the lip of the ditch. Complicating things still further, one of Gallegos's legs had become wedged between some rocks at the base of the ditch in a manner that would make it even harder to extract him. Finally, the Taliban gunners on the waterfall area and in the switchbacks had now caught sight of Avalos and were directing a significant portion of their fire toward him. Initially, Avalos was so shocked to see Gallegos dead that he barely noted the RPGs and the machine gun fire because, just like Grisette and Martin, Gallegos and Avalos had some history between them that made this loss personal. As two of the only Hispanic guys at Keating, they shared a powerful bond at the ethnic and cultural level. But their connection went even deeper than that. Back at Fort Carson when they were first getting to know each other, Gallegos had sort of taken Avalos under his wing in the way that an older brother or a cousin might. In the process, Avalos had seen a different side of the harsh and belligerent badass from Tucson, a side that the rest of us were barely aware of. The November before we'd deployed to Afghanistan, Gallegos got word that Avalos, who was single, couldn't afford to fly home to California to be with his family during Thanksgiving. So Gallegos had insisted that Avalos join him, his wife, Amanda, and their small son, Mac, at their home in Colorado Springs. Toward the end of that evening, the family had showed Avalos a Christmas stocking that they'd made for him and were planning to hang above their fireplace. In Avalos's mind, the unspoken message from Gallegos was, Hey, you don't have to be here for Christmas, but if you don't have anywhere else to go, there's a place for you here, and you will be welcome. Since then, they'd been tight enough that Gallegos had shared his feelings about some hard turns that his life had taken, which included a divorce from Amanda and being passed over for a promotion. Avalos had been there to listen and the trust between the two men had grown even stronger. In fact, only about a week earlier when they were sitting in one of the gun trucks in the middle of the night pulling guard duty, they'd had a conversation about what might happen if Keating was overrun and one of them didn't survive. For reasons that seemed strange at the time, but that now made Avalos wonder if his friend might not have had some sort of weird premonition about what was about to go down, Gallegos had tried to make a joke about how, if he was killed, he'd make absolutely certain that he died in the most difficult place for the rest of the platoon to get to him as a kind of final gesture of defiance. Upon hearing that, Avalos had decided that he didn't find the joke very funny, and he'd resolved to make his friend a promise. No matter what happens, I'm going to be there for you, he pledged. If I'm alive, regardless of where you're at, I'm going to come get you and I'm going to bring you back. Now, as Avalos recalled those words, he realized that in order to keep his promise, he was first going to have to survive by bunkering down and riding things out until the Taliban gunners turned to other targets, which meant that he was going to have to call upon Gallegos for one last favor, something that neither of them could have anticipated. Scrunching down on the ground next to his friend, Avalos hoisted Gallegos's body and draped it over himself as a makeshift shield to protect him from the bullets and the jagged pieces of shrapnel that were now caroming off the rocks and drilling into the sides of the ditch. It was an ugly thing to do, using your dead friend as body armor.
but it was the only option he could think of to stay alive and complete his job. Several minutes passed before the gunfire seemed to shift away from the ditch. When it did, Avalos shuffled out from beneath Gallegos and cautiously poked his head over the top of the ditch. About twenty yards to his north, he spotted Khan and motioned for him to lend a hand. Khan raced over and jumped into the ditch, and together they were able to hoist Gallegos out. Then both men began dragging Gallegos down toward the Shura building. As they disappeared downhill, I was still crouched on the north side of the latrines and continuing, without success, to call out for Larson on the radio. Unbeknownst to me, Larson's final bound had taken him to a point that was just a few yards below the mechanics bay, where he'd sought cover by ducking inside a connex that we'd been planning to use to backhaul equipment to Bostick. As I called for him on my radio, I moved around to the east side of the latrines, which brought this connex into my field of vision and enabled me to look through its doors. He was crouched inside with his gun in one hand and his radio in the other. From the earnest manner in which he was scanning the North Face while trying to talk into his radio, it was clear that he hadn't considered the possibility that by placing himself inside a steel-sided structure like a connex, he'd cut himself off from all electronic communication. Get your ass over here, I screamed, motioning furiously with my arm. What's up? he asked in confusion when he arrived, still oblivious to the fact that his move inside the shipping container had left me convinced that he'd gone off and gotten himself smoked. What the fuck were you doing over there? I demanded. I was trying to make our link up with Blue Platoon, he exclaimed. Where the hell are those guys? Don't worry about them, I replied. We're kind of on our own right now. By this point, me, Larson, Raz, Stanley, and Dulaney were tucked behind the north side of the latrines. For the moment, this offered some cover, and we felt reasonably secure. But without any support by fire from Blue, we would be horribly exposed, and dangerously far from any assistance, as we tried to cover the final fifty yards of ground leading up to the mortar pit while simultaneously scanning for Hart. Moreover, if we did find Hart, it would be impossible for us to provide effective suppressing fire to protect Avalos and his recovery team as they made their way up from the Shura building for a third time, and then attempted to drag Hart back. Knowing that we were stretched too thin and poised on the threshold of overcommitting ourselves, I keyed my radio and called up the mortar pit. Just before we launched this assault, I'd spoken to Sergeant Breeding for the first time since the attack had kicked off. For the past eight hours, he and his crew had been hunkered down inside their concrete hooch, unable to reach their guns in the pit or even extract the body of Thompson, their slain comrade. During much of that time, they had also been cut off from all communication until Breeding managed to jury-rig an antenna and re-establish a working radio link. When he and I spoke, I'd urged Breeding to hang on because we were on our way, and I'd assured him that when we reached the mortar pit, we'd get him, his men, and Thompson's body back down to the center of camp. Now it was time to have another talk with Big John. Look, I got some bad news, I told him. I'm sorry, brother, but we don't have the manpower to complete this final push. We're not going to make it to you. Breeding didn't miss a beat. Don't worry about it, you did what you could he replied evenly. 
You do what you gotta do to take care of your team down there, and we'll take care of ourselves up here. We can hang on a bit longer, and if they come for us, we're gonna take a bunch of them out. Before we signed off, I reminded Breeding that the QRF was already on its way down from Fritchie, and that their first stop upon reaching Keating's outer perimeter would be the mortar pit. I also told him that as soon as we got back to the Shura building, my squad would break a hole in the southwest wall of the building and set up a machine gun to look directly over the top of the pit, so that we could waste anyone who even thought about trying to come at him or his guys. I don't know whether he appreciated those assurances, but as I heard the words coming out of my mouth, I could barely contain my disgust and shame. Earlier that morning, I'd failed to uphold a pledge to a fellow soldier when I'd been forced to retreat from the generator without giving Gallegos the cover fire that I'd promised him. That man's corpse had just been used as a human shield, dragged the length of a football field, and was now lying on the floor of the Shura building while I fumbled to explain to yet another soldier who needed my help why I was breaking my word. The whole point of this mission, the thing that had justified the risks we'd taken, was that we were supposed to grab everybody and bring them all back. Instead, we'd managed to snatch only two bodies while leaving behind a trio of surviving soldiers, plus a third body. On top of that, we still didn't have a clue where the fourth and last body might be. I suppose I could have laid some of the blame for this on the shoulders of Sergeant Hill. But as I signed off with breeding and ordered my team to begin displacing back to the Shura building, the person I was most enraged at was myself. In war, you play for keeps, and because of that, there are no second chances and no do-overs. The calculus of combat, at its most brutal essence, is binary. You either overcome the hurdles that are flung in front of you, and you figure out a way to make things happen, or you don't. It's a zero-sum, win-or-lose game with no middle ground, and no points for trying hard. The bottom line was that I'd failed. And when me and my team completed our withdrawal and stepped through the Shura building, the knowledge of that failure added another layer of bitterness to the taste and smell of blood and gunpowder and death that clung to the air within that building. Once we were back inside the Shura building, the first order of business was to break open a portal in the southwest wall and set up a saw to keep watch over the mortar pit. As soon as that was taken care of, I radioed Breeding to let him know that the gun was in place. Then I made another dash back to the command post to let Bunderman know where things stood. At this point, my main concern was the lingering question of what had happened to Hart. After filling in Bunderman on where we'd searched and how much terrain we'd covered before falling back, I laid out what I thought we should do next. My guess is that there's an 80% probability that his body is no longer on station but we need to be sure, I said. I want to put together one more recon push. No way, he replied, shaking his head. We've pushed our luck a little bit too far already. With that, Bunderman ordered me to get back to the Shura building, make sure that the front gate was fully reinforced with concertina wire, and sit tight until the rescue team arrived from Fritchie. When they got down the mountain, he said, we could resume the search for Hart. It was a solid decision, and probably the right one. But when I returned to the Shura building, I wasn't able to shake the feeling that there was something terribly wrong 
about the fact that we still didn't have everyone accounted for. It was right about then that Larson buttonholed me with a request. He wanted to conduct a solo reconnaissance run to look for Hart one last time, and he needed me to give the nod. My first reaction was that this was a lousy idea. I was okay with sending out a squad of men who could support one another, but one guy all by himself? That sounded ludicrous. Larson, however, had no interest in taking no for an answer. Hart, he pointed out, was not only one of our own platoon, a compelling reason by itself, but he'd been lost while trying to rescue fellow members of Red, including Larson himself. Plus, there was the fact that Larson had been training up Hart in the same way that I had once trained up Larson, by taking him under his wing and teaching him not only how to perform, but also how to think, which meant that Larson had some insight into what was probably going through Hart's mind during his final moments, where he was trying to get to, how he intended to do that, and therefore, where he might now be. On and on Larson went, relentlessly trotting out one point after another, until finally, and ironically, he'd worn me down in much the same way that Hart had done a few hours earlier, when I'd reluctantly green-lighted the rescue mission that had cost him his life, and thereby set up the argument that Larson and me were having right now. All right, you can go, I conceded. But you need to make sure you get light, and you need to hustle. With that, he started stripping off all of his gear. Weapons, ammo rack, body armor, anything that might slow him down. When he was down to his t-shirt, pants, and boots, he stepped to the side of the door, waited a few seconds for the fire to abate, and broke west. This wasn't a dash-and-pause sort of venture, but a full-on, all-out, heels-on-fire sprint in a massive loop that would take him all the way from the front gate to the laundry trailer, the latrines, and Gallegos's gun truck before he cut east toward the mechanics bay, then headed back past the shower trailers and the piss tubes to finish off by darting through the east door of the Shura building. The assumption behind this planned route was that when Hart had fled to his immobilized gun truck, he was almost certainly headed toward the tool shed and the chow hall. If that was the case, and if Hart's body hadn't yet been snatched away by the enemy, he was now probably somewhere west of the mechanics bay. Larson started taking fire the second he hit the ground. But just like in those football games back in Iraq and at Fort Carson, he was unbelievably fast. So fast that the gunners who were trying to hit him never got him locked in their sights, and thus never even came close to anticipating the way he cut and swerved and dodged. He was lost from our sight the moment he passed the shower trailer, and from there we had no idea how he was faring. But three minutes later, he appeared around the defunct Afghan army mortar pit and whipped back to us as bullets lamely kicked up dust several yards behind him. When he came through the door, he fell to his knees, gasping for breath, and shook his head in answer to the unspoken question of whether he'd caught sight of Hart. Nothing. Staring out toward the front gate and the river beyond, I shook my head in frustration. It was as if Hart had vanished into thin air. Or, much more likely, the Taliban had swooped in, scooped him up, and were now spiriting his body into the hills. That prospect was horrifying enough that once he caught his breath, 
Larson started campaigning for permission to conduct a second run and do the whole thing all over again, but cutting an even wider circuit and exposing himself to even more danger on the slim chance that maybe Hart was still out there somewhere. No way, I said, and this time there would be no arguing. Among the many low points we experienced that day, this was surely one of the lowest. After all the effort we'd expended and the risks we'd taken, Hart was still missing, and Breeding and his team were still trapped at the mortar pit. Meanwhile, one hundred yards to the east of the Shura building, a separate struggle was still being fought as Keating's medics desperately battled to save the life of a gravely wounded Stefan Mace, before the wildfire that had already consumed the entire eastern half of the outpost spread to the aid station itself and burned the thing to the ground. Chapter 22 Conflagration Nowadays, when I cast my mind back to the battle for Keating, I find myself increasingly convinced that the drive to save Mace, a campaign that was fought against almost insurmountable odds, amounted to a kind of separate and miniature war of its own, a small battle that unfolded inside the frame of a larger one, and, by dint of how hard it was fought and how much Mace meant to all of us, would color the feelings of everyone who was there that day and survived. More than anything else that took place inside that miserable outpost, the story of what happened to Mace would come to define our understanding of whether we lost, whether we won, or whether the final outcome fell through some weird crack leading to a dark space that partook of both victory and defeat, while amounting, in the end, to neither. Earlier that afternoon, when word had first reached the aid station that Mace was still alive, Doc Chris Cordova and his trio of medics, Shane Corville, Cody Floyd, and Jeff Hobbs, were still dealing with multiple casualties, the most urgent of which was the Afghan National Army soldier we called RPG Guy, who had just been brought in with a severe gunshot wound to his left leg that had severed an artery. Floyd was applying a tourniquet to stop the bleeding when the news arrived over the radio that every gun inside Keating needed to go on target so that Mace could be run down to the aid station. To prepare for Mace's arrival, the medics immediately started moving some of the wounded outside to the protected space in the cafe area. Then everyone hunkered down and braced themselves as the ordnance from Justin Coolish's B-1 bomber began striking the putting green. To the men inside the aid station, the impact of that airstrike was every bit as dramatic as it was within the Shura building or the mortar pit. As the thunderous concussions reverberated across the battle space, the shock waves shook the walls of the building violently enough to rattle medical supplies off the shelves and even knock down the picture of the Hooters chick. Although the Ziploc bag containing the Russian tennis star's perfumed panties remained fixed to the west wall. Shortly thereafter, Larson and Carter whooshed through the door, bearing the stretcher with mace on board. No sooner were they inside than the medics took over. They placed him on the table, and all four of them got to work. As Floyd started cutting off Mace's clothes and exposing his injuries, they got their first glimpse of what they were up against. The penetrating shrapnel wounds to his abdomen and his right torso had not only torn apart a portion of his bowel and his right adrenal gland, but had also shattered his pelvis. He had nine pieces of shrapnel in his lower back, 
and another nine had lodged themselves in his hip, buttocks, and thigh. Thanks to the gunshot wound in his left leg, he had compound fractures of his tibia and fibula. There were multiple lacerations to his legs and arms, and his right ankle was attached to his leg by only a small piece of tissue. He was barely conscious, and thanks to the amount of blood he'd lost, there was no distal pulse in either his upper or lower extremities. In short, he was a mess. When they finished removing his clothes, Floyd put a new tourniquet on his leg, while Hobbs replaced the stick that Carter had placed on his ankle with a plastic splint. Meanwhile, Cordova and Corville were focused on the formidable challenge of getting a line into one of Mace's veins, so that they could start pushing fluids and medication into him. Unable to raise a vein in his arms or legs, they tried his hip, and then went for his neck. When even that failed, they opted for a fast one, the same flashlight-shaped multi-needle device that they had used hours earlier on Kirk, and drove it into his sternum. That line held up long enough for them to run almost an entire bag of Hextend into him, which would help expand the volume of plasma in his bloodstream. But just as the bag ran dry and they were preparing to put in another, the fast one line failed, forcing them to resume the search for a vein. Their luck was no better than the first time, so now they switched to a spiral-shaped needle that corkscrews into a patient's bone marrow, inserting it just below the knee on his right leg. Unfortunately, this second line permitted only a slow drip. If they were to have any hope of stabilizing Mace, they'd need to do more. But just outside the walls of the aid station, another problem had reared its head, one that might force them, at the worst possible time, to move their patient to another location. The aid station was about to catch fire. For the past several hours, the intensity and danger of the fire that had started on the eastern side of camp inside the Afghan National Army compound had swung back and forth. A mid-morning effort to stem the advance of the blaze by several members of Blue Platoon had had little effect. By 11.30 a.m., the fire was generating enough heat within the ANA compound that the ammunition that the Afghan soldiers had abandoned in their barracks buildings was cooking off and exploding. Soon the flames were spreading into the American sector, first to headquarters barracks and then to Blue Platoon's barracks. But shortly after noon, as the frontal system that had delayed the rescue helicopters at Bostik reached the skies over Keating, it looked as if a light rain might help extinguish some of the flames. Within the hour, it was clear that this wasn't going to happen. By 2 p.m., the flames that were consuming Blue Platoon's barracks were generating so much smoke that Copus, whose gun truck was stationed just outside the northern wall of the barracks, could barely see or breathe. As Stanley dashed out to the Humvee, started the engine, and moved it twenty feet to the west, the chow hall and the supply room were engulfed in fire, and the flames began chewing their way across the camo netting above the alley, separating blue barracks from the command post. When the command post started filling with smoke, First Sergeant Burton ordered everyone inside to prepare to evacuate. With the electricity still down, there was no point in bringing the computers, so the command team simply snatched up all of the maps, along with any radios that were still running on battery power. Then they jumped buildings and set up a new command post in Red Platoon's barracks, where they resumed calling in airstrikes and coordinating with the rescue team that was making its way down the mountain from Fritchie.
When word reached the medics that the command post was going up in flames, Corville stepped outside the aid station to gauge how much danger they were in. He was shocked not only by the proximity of the fire, but also by the heat that it was giving off. He noted that the flames had leaped onto a new section of camo netting, which connected the command post to the aid station. It's gonna spread, he muttered to himself as he pulled out his pocket knife and slashed at the netting to cut it away. While he was completing that task, Burton approached with some disturbing news. If we need to, we're gonna have to push all of you guys up to the mortar pit, said Burton. Stand by. This made absolutely no sense to Corville. Why in the world would they try to move their patients to a section of the outpost that was still cut off by enemy gunfire? Moreover, it would be terrible for Mace. Man, the last thing we need to do right now is to move Mace anywhere, he thought to himself as he dashed back inside. By this point, Doc Cordova had already ordered a partial evacuation of the aid station. While all the ambulatory Afghan patients were told to start moving toward the Shura building, litter teams were now on standby to shuttle three gravely injured patients who were unable to move under their own steam. Meanwhile, Floyd was packing supplies they would need to take with them. In Corville's mind, there had to be a better solution. Ducking back outside to see if he could come up with a plan, he noticed that the primary threat to the aid station was a tall pine tree adjacent to the command post that was burning furiously. Within a few minutes, it would enable the fire to jump to the aid station. He also noticed that there was a small orange and white chainsaw sitting nearby. Hey, Corville called out, turning to Ty Carter, who had done some work felling trees before he joined the military. Can you cut down that tree with this chainsaw? Yes, replied Carter. Do it, said Corville. With that, Carter got to work, making a series of wedge-shaped cuts along the base of the trunk in the hope that they would induce the tree to fall toward Blue Platoon's barracks and away from the command post. As the saw chewed through the wood, Burning embers from the branches overhead rained down on his head and back, interfering with his concentration. It also didn't help that he was exposed to enemy fire from the north face. In the end, Carter miscalculated badly enough that when he finished his final cut and stepped back, the tree toppled in the opposite direction from what he was intending, falling across the alley on the west side of Red Barracks and clipping the roof of the abandoned command post. In the process, the branches swept across a trench that ran just outside the southwest corner of Red Barracks, nearly killing Justin Gregory and Nicholas Davidson, who were posted inside it with a machine gun. As Gregory and Davidson stumbled from under the burning branches, looking like a pair of pack rats caught in a brush fire, Carter took stock of what he'd done. The tree hadn't landed anywhere close to where it was supposed to, but it was far enough away from the aid station that it could no longer serve as a bridge for the flames. Mission accomplished, more or less. By now it was 3.30 p.m., and the command team inside Red Barracks was letting our superiors at Bostick know that with most of Keating on fire, the entire troop was holed up in the last three hard-walled buildings in the center of camp. One of these buildings was the aid station, which Carter's cockeyed lumberjack move had saved, and inside of which Doc Cordova and his team had resumed working on their most critical patient, whose condition wasn't looking good.
during the mad scramble to contain the fire, Mace had taken a sharp turn for the worse. It was after 4 p.m. when Cordova noted that, despite everything they'd tried so far, Mace seemed to be sliding downhill. His vitals had not improved, and his mental status was diminishing. All signs pointed toward one fact. If Mace was to have any chance of surviving, he would have to be evacuated to Bostick, where there was an advanced field trauma center. With that in mind, Cordova sent Corville over to the new command post to press Bunderman on when he thought a medevac would be able to fly into Keating's landing zone. Bro, how long before we can get a bird? asked Corville. It's not going to happen until after the relief force gets down, replied Bunderman, referring to Justin Sachs's rescue unit, which was still making its descent from Fritchy. Plan on sometime after dark. Translation, Mace wasn't going anywhere until at least 7 p.m. How much longer has he got? asked Bunderman. Right now, probably two hours at the most, said Corville, as he headed back to the aid station to give Cordova the bad news. The challenge before Cordova and his team was to figure out how to take the amount of time Mace had left and double it. Right then, Cordova knew, Mace's most critical need was blood. He'd already lost a horrific amount of it, and he needed the oxygen-carrying red blood cells, along with their clotting agents, that weren't being supplied by the fluids and the hextend that they'd injected into his system. Fresh blood typically is not stored in aid stations at remote combat outposts like Keating, mainly because there's no way to keep it refrigerated without a steady supply of electricity. But Cordova knew that there was one other source he might be able to tap. Although it's highly unorthodox and less than ideal, direct blood transfusions from one soldier to another have been done on the battlefield since before the Second World War. Cordova had never attempted such a thing himself but he'd been trained on how to do it. What's more, the unit that had been stationed at Keating prior to our arrival had left behind a buddy-to-buddy transfusion kit. Say, what did we do with that blood kit? Cordova asked Corville. We threw it away yesterday when we were cleaning out the aid station, replied Corville. Yet another reminder that the preparations to shut down Keating had robbed them of critical supplies precisely when they were most needed. Cordova swore. But wait a second, Corville exclaimed. Yesterday was Thursday, right? Yup. So that means today is Friday. Uh, yeah, replied Cordova, staring in confusion as Corville disappeared out the door. Because Friday is the Muslim day of prayer, the local laborers at Keating weren't scheduled to collect the trash and take it up to the burn pit for another 24 hours, which meant that the garbage bag into which the blood kit had been discarded was almost certainly sitting just beyond the door on the west side of the aid station. A few seconds later, Corville was back inside with the trash bag and dumping it out onto the floor. No blood kit. Undeterred, he ran back and grabbed another bag. This time the kit tumbled out. Now they confronted another hurdle. What the hell was Mace's blood type? His dog tags, which displayed the information, didn't seem to be around his neck. After several anxious moments of rummaging through what was left of Mace's clothing, Floyd managed to find the tags inside one of his pockets. Type A positive. 
A quick survey of the aid station revealed three people with the same blood type. Floyd himself, plus Hobbs and Cordova. They assembled the transfusion kit, while simultaneously drawing a unit of blood from Floyd, and then they attempted to shunt Floyd's blood into mace, using the line that they had already placed in his right leg with the corkscrew-shaped needle. By this point, however, the flow through that line was far too slow. So they hooked up a power infuser to the blood bag, hoping it would help push the fluid through at a faster rate. When that failed to make a difference, there was yet another problem to solve. We need to get a better fucking line into him, said Corville. Corville looked everywhere for a vein he could tap, finding nothing. Then, by some miracle, he spotted a promising spot in Mace's arm and got a needle in. Ecstatic, he ran some normal saline through the line to ensure that they had a good flow. But just as they were switching from the saline bag to the blood bag, Mace, who had been moving in and out of consciousness, jerked his arm and yanked out the IV. Cursing in frustration, the whole team started looking for a new site for the IV. After several difficult minutes, Hobbs found the solution by getting a needle directly into Mace's external jugular vein. And with that, Floyd's blood finally began passing into his body. The effect was remarkable. Even before the first bag was empty, Mace's vitals were looking better and his mental status had improved. He began making jokes and grousing about the pain in his shattered left leg. He also returned to the subject that he'd been fixated on back when he, Larson, and Carter were trapped in the gun truck. Dude, he said to Corville, can I get a smoke? No worries, replied Corville. As soon as we get you out of here and you're through surgery, we'll get you set up. Come on, man, Mace pleaded. Just one cigarette, please. There was no way in hell the medics were going to thin his blood with nicotine in the middle of a transfusion. But they were absolutely thrilled that Mace was pestering them. Although within a few minutes of the first bag finishing off, he again started to fade. Time for another bag of blood. Hobbs sat down and let Cordova take a unit from his arm. Then the same procedure was performed on Cordova, the last man in the aid station with A-positive blood. With each additional unit that he received, Mace would revive briefly, then start to fade as soon as the bag had drained. He never gave up on his jokes. He declared he was worried about being less of a man after having received blood from Floyd, who was often teased for being skinny and frail-looking and he badgered anyone who would listen to give him a cigarette. The skin on his face, however, was whiter than a blank sheet of paper. To the medics, it felt like Mace, and they with him, were oscillating back and forth like the pendulum on a slow-moving clock, swinging toward life and then back toward death on a twenty-five-minute cycle. The only thing that seemed certain was that Mace didn't have much time left. They had to get him on a chopper, and out of Keating soon. As the third bag was being administered, Corville dashed over to the command post to get a list of all the other soldiers at Keating who had A-positive blood. One of the names on that list was Bunderman's, so Corville immediately sat him down and shoved a needle in his arm. It was 6.38 p.m., and Bunderman's blood was just starting to draw when some news arrived from the rescue team. 
They'd run up against a few delays, but they'd sorted them out and made good time. They were nearly there. When Captain Justin Sachs's quick reaction force had departed from Fritchie at 2 p.m., he and his men anticipated that it would take about four hours for them to reach Keating, partly because Sachs decided that for the upper part of the journey, they would avoid the existing trail and bushwhack. This would slow them down, but it would also make it harder for the enemy to set up an ambush. As they launched out, the big question on everyone's mind was whether they would encounter resistance along the way. If so, their plan was to do whatever was necessary to overcome that opposition and keep moving down the mountain, but it would take even longer for them to reach Keating. Just before they left, several of the aircraft circling above were called in to conduct airstrikes in the hope that saturating the terrain with bombs and gunfire would help clear out any enemy and disrupt whatever plans they might be trying to put in place. The Apaches unloaded a slew of white phosphorus rockets to mark the area, at which point the A-10s conducted multiple gun runs across the southern mountain wall. After that, the Apaches returned to unload a bunch of their high-explosive rockets and flechettes, and then for good measure, they took a few passes with their 30-millimeter chain guns. As Sachs and his team descended the ridge where Fritchie was perched, it wasn't long before they encountered evidence of these airstrikes. Trees had been riddled with shrapnel or splintered to pieces by the bombs and the gunfire. There were also large open areas where the vegetation had either already been reduced to ash by the white phosphorus or was still burning. Progress was slow because the terrain was so steep. The intermittent rain didn't help either. The ground was rapidly turning slippery. But they pressed on, moving as quickly as possible while keeping a close eye for any signs of an ambush. Shortly after the halfway point, they were skirting around the edge of a piece of open ground when one of Sachs's men, Specialist Kyle Barnes, spotted two Taliban crouched behind some rocks. One of the insurgents, who was holding a radio, had been severely wounded. Most of the flesh had been stripped from his right leg and was in the process of bleeding to death. The second insurgent died when Barnes emptied his 9mm pistol into the man's chest. Both of the Taliban were well-equipped. Between the two of them, they had an RPG launcher, two assault rifles, chest racks with magazines, and several grenades. Sax's men gathered up everything they had and resumed moving. Within another hour, they'd reached the top of the switchbacks, where they started encountering dead insurgents in large numbers, pockets of five or six men at a time, eventually totaling somewhere between fifty and a hundred. Here, too, they got their first glimpse of Keating, although the lower part of the mountain they were descending was obscured by the smoke and haze from the outpost's still-burning buildings. At this point, Sachs split his team in two. One rifle squad was ordered to keep watch at the top, while the second proceeded the rest of the way. As the lead squad continued down, the men who were staying behind to perform overwatch were able to pick up the radio traffic inside Keating including a call from Doc Cordova. Anybody else got A-positive blood? I need to know, announced Cordova. Come to the aid station if you do. It was shortly after dusk when the lead squad rounded the final switchback and came around the back side of the mortar pit, where Breeding and his men were waiting for them, having wrapped the body of Kevin Thompson in their poncho liners 
and placed him on a litter. Then everyone descended the ammo can staircase and stepped into Keating proper. While Breeding and his team continued on to the aid station with Thompson, Sax's squad gathered by the mechanics bay to meet with Eric Harder and work out how we would hand over our defensive positions to Sax's team. That's when Harder, in the gathering darkness, tripped over something on the ground and stepped closer to investigate. It was the body of Josh Hart, lying face down in the dirt, next to the massive boulder where Truck One had sat before he'd climbed into the thing and launched his rescue bid. He had come full circle and arrived back at almost exactly the same spot from which he'd started his mission to save his comrades who were trapped in Elraz too. With the discovery of Hart's body, another circle was also complete. It was just before 8 p.m., and for the first time in the 14 hours that had passed since the attack began, we finally had full accountability on all of Keating's soldiers, who was dead, who was alive, and where everyone was at. As they gathered up Hart and prepared to take him down to the aid station to join his six fallen brethren, I found myself wishing that I could head up to the mechanics bay to pay my final respects. Unfortunately, that wasn't going to be possible, because I had just been given the order to move out across the concrete bridge spanning the Daria Kushtaz River and secure the landing zone so that we could get Mace on his way to a proper medical facility before we lost him, too. Inside the aid station, Mace, who was lying on the table under a blanket while the transfusion line continued feeding the blood of his comrades into his neck, was showered with so much attention that it seemed as if he'd become something of a celebrity. The medics were monitoring his condition continuously. Every five minutes, Floyd took his vitals and never left the patient's side unless another medic was standing by. Meanwhile, any soldier whose business took him anywhere near the aid station made a point of popping through the door to say hi, ask how Mace felt, and tell him what a total badass he was. One of those well-wishers was Raz, who swung by to find out if Doc Cordova was still looking for A-positive blood, and, if so, to donate some of his own. Cordova, who was standing right outside, told him they were doing good on blood. They'd just pulled a pint out of Bunderman, and the medevac would be on its way soon. How's he doing? asked Raz. He's doing good, man, replied Cordova brightly. Go in there and talk to him. He wants to hear from you guys. By now they'd started getting some morphine into him too, so Mace was feeling pretty dopey. He also had an oxygen mask over his face, which made his voice sound hollow and far away. But despite that, and despite the horrific wounds that Raz knew were underneath the blanket, it was the same old Mace. Hey, dude, Mace said weakly. Any chance you got a cigarette on you? Raz was pretty sure that was the last thing Mace needed right now, so he shook his head and moved on to other topics. The lame bantering that soldiers trade among one another when the air between them is filled with things that are too serious and too heavy for anything else. Raz knew that as soon as the medevac arrived, Mace would be whisked off on the first leg in a series of flights that would take him through trauma centers and hospitals at Bostick, then Bagram, followed by a stop-off in Germany, before his final destination, 
which would almost certainly be Walter Reed in Bethesda, just outside of Washington, D.C. Raz also knew that it would be a long time before they saw each other again, assuming, of course, that Raz managed to survive the remaining eight months of the deployment without getting killed. And he knew that, thanks to the extent of Mace's injuries and the many obstacles on the long road of recovery that lay ahead, the pain and the surgeries, the physical therapy and the psychological challenges, Mace might not be quite the same person he had been when they met again. But one could always hope. Hey, good luck, man, said Raz, as word arrived that the chopper was inbound. It was time to start getting the patient prepped for his flight and moved out to the landing zone. Take it easy, and I'll see you down the road. All right, dude, replied Mace, clasping his hand. I'm gonna miss your saggy balls. Always the jokester, Raz thought to himself as he walked out, shaking his head. He's sort of right about my balls, though. They do kind of sag more than they should. The helicopter that was tasked to extract Mace was a UH-60 Black Hawk whose pilot, Carlos Hernandez, had served as a tank gunner before earning his wings with Army Airborne. Hernandez and his crew had been champing at the bit since word of the attack had first reached Jalalabad, where they were based, early that morning just after sunrise. The bird had launched immediately and made a beeline for Bostic, where Hernandez picked up a handful of soldiers, including Stony Portis, our stranded commander, who was desperate to get to Keating. But shortly after getting airborne again, he was denied permission to land at Keating and ordered to return to Bostic, where he and his crew sat on the helipad with rotors spinning, waiting for clearance. While they waited, they'd anxiously monitored the radio traffic, as Doc Cordova called in one casualty report after another and submitted repeated requests for a medevac. Five or six times, Hernandez received clearance, only to subsequently be ordered to shut down because the landing zone at Keating was taking too much fire, or, later in the morning, because the Apaches were getting hit by Dishka fire. Captain Brendan McCriskin, the flight surgeon on the medevac, was so infuriated by these repeated delays that at one point during the day, he was on the verge of storming into the command post and pushing for clearance. McCriskin had backed away from that impulse only after speaking with his friend Ross Llewellyn and learning that the Apache pilots were fully expecting to be shot out of the air each time they returned to Keating on their next sortie. Finally, after many hours on edge, the medevac received approval to launch and Hernandez got in the air, flying under night vision capability with two Apache gunships escorting them in. As they raced toward the outpost, McCriskin and his medic scrambled to set up IVs and get their equipment in order. Meanwhile, down on the ground at Keating, me and five other men, including Larson, moved through the front gate, sprinted across the concrete bridge over the river, and secured the landing zone. Hernandez pushed his Black Hawk as fast as it would go, but as he neared the battle space, he was ordered to hover at 10,000 feet, while the Apaches swept in to confirm that the area was clear. Then Hernandez took them down, corkscrew fashion, while peering through the haze that the smoke from the fires created on his night vision goggles. By now, Mace, who had been wrapped up with a hypothermia kit to keep him warm, had been moved on a litter to the Shura building and then across the bridge to the LZ. The final bag of fresh blood, Bunderman's, 
rode alongside him on the litter. Directly behind him were two other litters with the most gravely wounded of the Afghan soldiers. The medevac touched down at 8.07, and Hernandez kept the blades turning while the chopper was loaded. He was on the ground for less than four minutes as the litter teams carried the patients down a steep incline at the edge of the landing zone and placed them on board. Then Hernandez lifted off, put the hammer down, and started hauling ass toward Bostic. As we watched them go, our sense of relief at seeing Mace finally get on his way was mixed with something else. Something that didn't quite feel like victory, but was perhaps the next best thing in line. We'd lost seven men that day, not one of whom we'd had a prayer of saving. But Mace was different. We'd been allowed a small measure of control over what happened to him, and we'd used that in some extraordinary ways. Out of thin air, we'd somehow managed to conjure a series of miracles that had involved plucking Mace from the battlefield, running him through a hail of gunfire, and perhaps, most improbable of all, keeping him alive with our own blood using a tool that we'd retrieved from the trash. And despite the horrific odds that had been stacked against him surviving any one of those stages, much less all of them, he was in good hands now, with an excellent chance of making it. If Mace managed to pull through, his survival wouldn't make up for having lost those seven men whose bodies were now awaiting transport out of Keating on the next set of choppers. But that loss was certainly colored and, to a certain extent, counterweighted by the fact that more than half of those men had perished while trying to save Mace, while the rest of them had given their lives to the larger defense of Keating and their fellow soldiers, Mace included. It was 8.11 when the Black Hawk lifted into a night sky filled with the smell of burning pine pitch and smoke wafting through the moonlight. Mace's life wasn't worth more than the men who died. But saving Mace helped to anchor their deaths with meaning and context in a way that mattered hugely. It's almost impossible to overstate the difficulty of trying to provide trauma care to a gravely wounded soldier from the inside of a roaring Black Hawk when it's pitch dark. Nine months earlier, when McCriskin had arrived in Afghanistan and started flying missions as a flight surgeon, he'd assumed that this would be the most challenging environment he could imagine in which to practice medicine. What he'd discovered since then was that actually doing it was ten times harder than anything he'd conceived in his mind. Perhaps the biggest difficulty was simply seeing your patient and trying to figure out what he might need in order for you to keep him from dying before the chopper reached its destination. You were wearing your helmet and your night vision goggles, plus almost fifty pounds of gear and protective clothing. You were maneuvering within an impossibly cramped space, with only inches to spare, as the helicopter threw itself through viciously tight turns and banks to avoid fire from the ground. Thanks to all the vibration and noise, it was almost impossible to feel your patient's pulse. You couldn't listen to his lungs, and you could barely hear what he was saying. McCriskin called this sensory-deprived medicine, and one of its most important tools, he'd found, was his pen light, which he gripped between his teeth and which provided a dime-sized speck of illumination that offered just enough light to assess Mace. McCriskin could see that Doc Cordova had done a stellar job of keeping his patient alive. 
and there wasn't much in the way of additional service which he could now perform. Mace had a good IV line running through his neck and three good tourniquets in place on his legs. He was getting oxygen, and the wounds in his belly were dressed. All McCriskin could really do, as he crouched above Mace's head in the dark, was to hook him up to a cardiac monitor, replace his IV bags, which were nearly empty, and check his tourniquets to make sure they were secure. The one additional thing he was able to do was talk with his patient. Mace was in the late stages of severe hemorrhagic shock from the amount of blood that he'd lost. While his heart was racing, his blood pressure was as low as McCriskin had ever seen in a person who was still alive. Nevertheless, Mace was conscious throughout the brief flight, and he was alert enough that he was able to pepper McCriskin with questions. He wasn't concerned about himself, his wounds, his prognosis, or what would happen to him when they reached Bostick. The only thing he wanted to know was how we, his friends back at Keating, were doing, and if we were okay. When McCriskin assured him that we were all fine, Mace looked up at him with relief, and then offered a brief sit-rep on himself. I'm not in any pain, Doc, he reported. I'm not in any pain. At 8.21, barely ten minutes after they had left Keating, the Black Hawk touched down on the helipad at Bostick, and the medical team flipped into overdrive. The trauma crew who grabbed Mace off the helicopter were so eager to get him into the aid station that they almost dropped his stretcher right there on the tarmac. Within 60 seconds, they had him inside the trauma tent and undergoing an initial evaluation by a nurse and his surgeon, Major Brad Zagel, who made the call to wheel him into surgery immediately. Within another two minutes, McCriskin, who had trundled behind Mace at every stage, was helping to get him intubated and under anesthesia while the surgical team prepared to operate. Just before Mace went under, he seemed to experience one last period of lucidity and had a brief chat with McCriskin. Again, he wanted to confirm that the guys back at Keating were okay. When McCriskin assured him that we were doing great and mostly just worrying about him, Mace smiled and asked McCriskin to let us all know that he was doing fine. I'm almost done over here. My tour is almost over and I'm going home soon, said McCriskin. You want to meet up when we get back to the States? I'll buy you a beer. Mace said that he would. What kind of beer do you like? asked McCriskin. Cora's light, replied Mace, somewhat sheepishly, and closed his eyes as the anesthesia pulled him under. Chapter 23 Farewell to Keating Odd as it may sound, one of the few members of Red Platoon who hadn't made a specific point of dropping by the aid station before Mace departed from Keating in order to shake his hand and wish him luck was his very best friend. That's the exact opposite of what you might expect. But as it turned out, there was some sound reasoning behind it. At 7.39 p.m., a solid half hour before Mace's medevac arrived, Zack Kopis was finally relieved of his duty on the Mark 19 grenade launcher. At that point, he'd been standing inside the turret of El Raz 2 almost continuously for more than 13 hours. During that time, he'd been carefully monitoring the reports on Mace through his radio, so when he finally stepped down from his gun truck, he knew that the picture was looking pretty good. Good enough, in fact, 
that Copas started having second thoughts about heading over to check in and say farewell. He wanted to, of course, but the more he thought about it, the more worried he became about the possibility that if he enacted some sort of goodbye ritual, he might wind up jinxing Mace's chances. Plus, they would certainly see each other again, maybe even at Bostick, if Mace's surgery went well enough that they decided to keep him there for a bit before sending him on to Bagram. So in the end, Copas decided that the best thing for him to do was to avoid counterweighting Mace's luck and his karma with any action that might suggest, however faintly, that he and his friend wouldn't be meeting up and soon. Instead, Copas decided to focus on doing the one thing that, in his estimation, Mace would value more than having yet another dude drop by to ask how he was feeling, which was to gather up the personal effects that meant the most to him, his laptop, his iPod, his uniforms, and his pictures of his family, and make sure that all that stuff got onto the medevac so that it traveled with Mace, wherever he might be headed. With that in mind, the first place that Copas headed after he climbed down from his gun truck was over to Red Barracks, where he dropped by Mace's hooch, grabbed his backpack, and started stuffing items into it. When he was through, he handed everything off to First Sergeant Burton, and it was then that he discovered that although he'd been relieved of his position on the LRAS II, his duties were far from finished. Okay, Burton said to Copas and Chris Jones, who was standing nearby. Let's get our heroes out of here. The task that Jones and Copas were being handed would involve hauling the bodies of the slain Americans out to the landing zone and getting them ready to be loaded onto a series of helicopters that would be arriving to take them to Bostick shortly after Mace's helivac departed. By this point, Doc Cordova had formally pronounced death on all seven men, and his medics had packaged their bodies for transport by placing five of them in body bags and wrapping the remaining two, Thompson and Hart, in plastic poncho liners, because they didn't have enough bags on hand to accommodate them. The corpses had then been shuttled from the aid station to the Shura building by members of Blue Platoon. It would be up to Copas and Jones, together with a few guys from Justin Sachs's rescue unit, to carry them the rest of the way out to the landing zone. When they got to the Shura building, Copas and Jones found the bodies piled alongside one wall. There was no way of telling who was who, except for Thompson, who was so tall that his boots stuck out from the end of the plastic wrapping. They also found something else, a large puddle of blood on the plywood floor, onto which an Afghan soldier was in the process of pouring fistfuls of dirt in an attempt to absorb it. Assuming that the blood belonged to Kirk, Jones suddenly felt himself overcome by a wild and implacable sense of fury. Fuck you! he screamed at the bewildered Afghan soldier. Don't put that dirty fucking dirt on that man's fucking blood, you motherfucking fuck! Clean that up now, or I will fucking kill you! While the Afghan prudently withdrew, Jones blinked a few times and took a deep breath, stunned by the heat of his own rage. Then he and Copas got to work. Like the men whose bodies they were carrying through this final stage of their time at Keating, each trip from the Shura building through the front gate and across the bridge over the river was different. Gallegos was so heavy that Jones, whose back was injured, had to strain himself to avoid letting the body bag drag over the rocks. Hart was wrapped loosely enough 
that the prop wash from one of the helicopters peeled back the plastic and exposed his face. And Kirk was so cumbersome that one of Sax's soldiers who was trying to lend a hand lost his grip as they were placing him on board and dropped one end, a mistake that so enraged Raz, who was also there to help with the loading, that he threatened to punch the guy in the face. The helicopters touched down and took off in a line. The first two removed our dead and our walking wounded. Then came the Afghan wounded and the Afghan dead. Each aircraft also dropped off a consignment of supplies, gear, water, ammo, fuel, and batteries, before taking on its load of passengers. This continuous shuttle of supplies in one direction and bodies, dead and wounded alike, in the other, was confusing and exhausting for Jones and Copus. It also made for some surreal moments, perhaps the strangest of which occurred when they looked out at the landing zone just after one of the helicopters had taken off and realized that there was a body bag sitting in the middle of it. Appalled by the possibility that one of his fellow soldiers had been left behind, or far worse, had somehow fallen out of the sky, Jones tentatively picked up one end of the bag and experienced a sense of horror as he realized that the contents were bending and shifting in a way that no human body should. When they pulled back the zipper, they discovered that the bag was filled with boxes of ammo. Apparently, the crew at Bostick was unloading the bodies, then repurposing the bags and sending them straight back to Keating, without stopping to consider how this might look to someone on the receiving end. On and on it went, one chopper after another. And throughout the whole process, as Copus and Jones concentrated on their loading, Larson, Grissette, and I stood just beyond the landing zone, performing overwatch to make sure that the area was secured. As the evening wore on, we lost track of how many sorties came and went. It was draining to still be on duty, but in some ways we were grateful for the assignment. During the intervals between one chopper and the next, the three of us were able to sit there in the darkness, thinking about all that had happened that day, and talking quietly about what had gone down and what lay ahead. The one subject to which we kept returning was revenge. We still had the better part of a year left in our deployment, and each of us seemed to draw comfort from the idea that this might offer enough time for us to pay those bastards back for what they had done to our friends. After the last of the birds departed, we were finally able to stand down. Sax's two rifle companies had already taken over Keating's defensive positions so that none of us needed to stand guard. This meant that we were free to bed down for the night, although there was initially some confusion about where, exactly, we should do that. Most of the barracks buildings had been completely destroyed, while a sizable section of Red's quarters were now serving as the new command post. So, with no better plan, each man headed off in whatever direction he thought best. A lot of the guys in Blue Platoon wound up on the cafe outside the aid station, where they did their best to keep warm by bundling into whatever extra clothing they could scrounge from the soldiers who hadn't lost all their possessions and gear to the fires. Meanwhile, my guys in red scattered. Jones racked out on a shelf in the ammo supply room, just above Copus. Larson leaned against the outer wall of our barracks, not even bothering to remove his body armor. Raz did the same up at the mortar pit, 
and I ended up crashing inside our barracks on top of the small card table on which we had played countless games of spades and dominoes. As the night deepened and the outpost settled down, one of the few places that still saw activity was the aid station, where Cordova and his medics, in an effort to prepare for a counterattack first thing in the morning, were doing their best to clean up and restock whatever supplies they might need to tend to a new flood of wounded. Thanks to the damage that had been done to the generators, there was neither electricity nor water, so they worked in the dark with their headlamps, picking up blood-soaked scraps of clothing and stuffing them into trash bags, then swabbing down the floor with curlix padding. They ended up smearing streaks of brownish-red blood all over the blue linoleum tiles. Illuminated in the flittering beams of their headlamps, the aid station looked as if a deranged artist had crept inside it to create a ghoulish fresco of death. Sometime after 10 p.m., Cordova, who had now been up for more than 36 hours, went off to bed. Soon he was followed by Floyd, Cody, and Hobbs, which left Corville all by himself, sitting in the darkened room, cleaning his rifle, and listening to shine down on his headphones until the door swung open and Bunderman walked in. Some things never change, thought Corville. Even now, the aid station was the place where a guy came when he needed to get something off his chest. While Corville ignited two MRE heaters and made each of them a cup of coffee, Bunderman talked about what had happened. He talked about how Blue Platoon had lost two of its members, while HQ and the mortar crew had lost one each, but that it was his platoon, Red, with three dead and one still fighting for his life on an operating table in Bostick, that had been hit the hardest. He talked about how his rightful place during the battle, the place where he always stood for every engagement, without exception, and where he should have been that day, was out at Gallegos's gun truck in the center of the battlefield the place with the finest visibility and vantage, where he could have seen what was going down while participating in the actual fight. He talked about how he should have led the counter-assault to retake the ammo depot and the front gate and the Shura building. And most of all, he talked about how truly sick he felt about holing up in the most heavily fortified building inside the wire, running a bunch of radios, while fifty soldiers stood up and gave everything they had to ensure that, if it came to it, he would have been the last man to perish, when what should rightly have happened, what he would have preferred, and what was his duty as the leader of his platoon, was for him to have died first. After taking all this in, Corville did what he could to remind Bunderman of the other side of the picture, the side that everyone else saw and knew to be true, which was that Bunderman had risen to the role that had been handed to him and that he'd performed with incandescent foresight and skill. That he had done far more good inside the command post than he ever could have out on the periphery of camp, because if it hadn't been for his leadership in the command center, none of us would have made it through, and all of Keating, including the room they were sitting in, would have been under the control of the Taliban. Corville said all of that, knowing that the weight of its truth meant little to his lieutenant, in comparison to the far greater weight of Bunderman's conviction that he had failed to perform to the fullest measure of his calling as a leader and, in falling short of that mark, had also failed his men, men for whom he was responsible, men who were directly under his care and who were now dead.
They talked far into the night, until the magnitude of Bunderman's exhaustion finally overtook his sense of guilt and self-recrimination, and he was forced to head off to get some sleep. That left Corville once again by himself. But instead of following Bunderman's lead, he decided that he had one last thing to do, which was to pad around camp and make sure that every man in the troop had taken off his socks before going to bed so that his feet could dry out. Corville was loath to wake anybody up, so he did his best to slip everyone's socks off while they were still asleep. Most of the guys were racked out deeply enough that they never even noticed. Indeed, a handful of them were so still that Corville found himself checking their breathing and their pulses to confirm that they were alive. But one or two sat bolt upright as soon as they realized that someone was messing with their feet. What the fuck are you doing? demanded Jones. Just taking your socks off, Jonesy, said Corville softly. You can't sleep with them on. As Jones lay back, muttering to himself in confusion, it occurred to Corville how absurd it must seem to these men, after everything else that had happened since the attack broke out, for a medic to be obsessing about such a trivial detail. Corville himself wasn't truly sure why he was performing this task except perhaps as part of an effort to impose a tiny return to something resembling normalcy in what had otherwise been a day of virtually uninterrupted horror. Regardless of the reason, he kept at it, moving through the darkness and carefully placing the socks he removed next to each sleeping figure. As he worked his way through camp, he was vaguely aware that far above him, somewhere up there in the moonlit sky, there were aircraft moving about. He could hear the dull roar of jets, the sharp-edged clatter of helicopter rotors, and occasionally the sound of something else. A metallic whir from the gun systems on Spooky, an AC-130H that was pinning down the coordinates of any handheld Taliban radio in the surrounding mountains and unleashing a burst from its 30-millimeter auto cannon with a chilling moan that sounded like, Wah! unbeknownst to Corville or anyone else on the ground at Keating. Something else was afoot, too. Around 1 a.m., a sortie of four Chinooks loaded with 130 Special Forces soldiers, a combined unit of Americans and Afghans, headed from Bostick to Fritchie. There the commando team disembarked and melted into the hillsides, where they would spend the rest of that night and the next several days engaged in a cave-by-cave and village-to-village sweep looking for the men who were responsible for the attacks at Keating and Fritchie, and systematically eliminating them. Meanwhile, the four Chinooks returned to Bostick, where a pair of them were tasked with the final mission of the battle. When they lifted off the helipad at Bostick, they were carrying Keating's dead to Bagram, the first in a series of journeys that would eventually take Josh Kirk and Justin Gallegos, Kevin Thompson and Michael Scusa, Vernon Martin and Chris Griffin and Josh Hart, all the way to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, where their bodies would be autopsied before being sent off to reunite with their families across the United States. But in addition to those Chinooks, there was another helicopter that was carrying one other body, although most of the guys at Keating, including me, wouldn't hear about that until we awoke from our collective stupor. On the morning of October 4th, the sun rose at 5.51, 
just a few minutes later than it had come up on October 3rd. And for Zach Kopis, this event, the fact that the sun had actually decided to rise, was perhaps the only thing that those two mornings had in common with each other. At the combat outpost where Kopis awoke, there was no possibility of a hot breakfast, because the chow hall was now a crumbling pile of still glowing ash and embers. There was no anticipation that he might be able to skim through the pages of a magazine, or do anything else for that matter, from the turret of his gun truck, because his armored Humvee had been shot to pieces. And there would be no hot shower for himself or anybody else, because there was no water in camp, and because the showers, along with the latrines and the command post and the gym and pretty much everything else, had all been destroyed. Nevertheless, Copus did his best to rally his mood and brace for the day, as he gathered his gear and prepared to head out to perform whatever duties the first sergeant or anyone else might think up for him. And it was then that Armando Avalos, who was passing by on some task of his own, turned and remarked in the most casual way one could imagine. Hey, I don't know if you heard yet, but Mace didn't make it last night. And then, as if this were just any other piece of news, Avalos kept on walking and headed outside, leaving Copus to stand there and stare at his boots and blink hard while trying to square this information up with everything else that he'd heard about Mace prior to that very second, about how things were looking good and how the medics were feeling so positive about his chances, about how, once Mace got into the operating room, everything was going to be good because it's there, in the OR, where they can fix all your problems, and how it was the job of keeping him alive until he actually got there that was supposed to have been the hardest part. And most of all, he thought about how all of this information had enabled him, Copus, to put his worries about Mace to rest and get some sleep, in the knowledge that everything was going to be cool, and that all of this had underscored that Copus had made absolutely the right call in opting not to say goodbye to the closest friend he'd ever had. A moment later, Jones walked in. Hey man, are you good? He asked guardedly. Somehow Copus managed to stammer out that Mace had died. Yeah, Jones replied gently. I know. Then he walked out too. I am not going to tell you what happened to Copus after that, not specifically, except to say that the information he was struggling to take in drove him to his knees, and that when he buckled to the floor, he stayed there for a very long time. In some ways, Copus still hasn't gotten up off that floor, and neither have the rest of us, because that's what Mace meant and continues to mean to the guys who were his friends and who had tried harder and given more to save his life than we'd ever tried or given at anything in our own lives. Instead, I will tell you how things ended with Stefan Mace. It was just after 9.30 p.m. when the med team at Bostick carried Mace into surgery and put him under anesthesia. By this point, more than twelve hours had passed since he'd received his first wounds, and the effects of that delay were evident the moment that his surgeon, Major Brad Zagel, opened him up. Zagel, who had graduated from West Point and trained at Walter Reed, could see that much of the tissue in his bowel appeared to be dead, 
too much time had passed without a supply of oxygen-rich blood for the cells to survive. The left side of his colon and most of his small bowel were perforated with holes, and he was bleeding internally near his right kidney. Zagel got to work, doing his best to stop the bleeding and repair the damaged abdomen. But thirty minutes into the operation, Mace's heart stopped beating. Zagel immediately performed CPR, which got his heart started again, but the beat was irregular and unsustained. So about forty-five minutes later, Zagel opened up the left side of Mace's chest to try and confirm that there had been no damage to the heart muscle itself. Then he gently took Mace's heart between the palms of his hands and tried to massage it back to life, a technique that rarely works, but is used when there are no other options. Not long after that, Brendan McCriskin, the flight surgeon who had helped get Mace out of Keating, and who had since been called away to a different firebase on yet another evacuation, landed back at Bostick and immediately dashed toward the aid station. Like everyone else, McCriskin had high hopes that the surgery had gone well. In fact, he was fully expecting to pick up Mace, get him back on board his Black Hawk, and transport him straight to Bagram for advanced post-op treatment. But as he pushed through the doors, McCriskin spotted an anguished and exhausted-looking Zaggle leaning in a doorway across the room. His face was streaked with tears. Choking with sorrow, Zaggle told McCriskin that Mace had coded during surgery, and that once they'd lost him, they couldn't get him back. According to his official medical report, Mace died from massive blood loss resulting from multiple ballistic injuries to his torso, bowel, and adrenal gland. But those of us who fought with him at Keating know that the truth is somewhat different. We know that Mace had willed himself to stay alive for so long, so much longer than any ordinary person ever could have, because he wanted to be with his friends. And we knew that when he finally left Keating, when he was no longer with us, but had been told that we were okay, that he had stopped fighting and decided it was time to let go. When Mace was pronounced dead at 10.35 that night, he brought the total number on our roster of the dead from seven to eight. That was the butcher's bill for the defense of combat outpost Keating. The rest of that day was pretty much a blur for all of us. As we awoke and took in the news about Mace, we found ourselves confronting a scene of devastation and ruin that mirrored similar feelings inside each of us. Everywhere we turned lay the wreckage and the detritus of battle, burned-out skeletons of armored vehicles, heaps of charred wood and rubble where our buildings had stood, trees that had been cut down by automatic gunfire, small curled piles of human turds and dark glutinous puddles of human blood. And in every direction, glittering layers of brass shell casings, interspersed with the bodies of dead Taliban soldiers. There were dozens of them, the Taliban dead. One was sprawled in the middle of the open area between the Shura building and the showers. Another was splayed out behind the latrines, and a third, who was wedged inside of a ditch just south of the mechanics bay, must have taken a direct hit with a grenade, judging by the way his legs had been folded up over his head. We felt no pity for these men whatsoever, 
and if we demonstrated any respect for them at all, it was only to take stock of how well-equipped they were. The ammo in their chest racks, the tennis shoes on their feet, and to acknowledge that what they had pulled off was impressive. To stage simultaneous attacks against two fortified outposts, each of them heavily defended with American firepower and backed up by American air power, required organization, planning, and boldness. They had clearly demonstrated all three, although they had also paid a tremendous price. The Army would later estimate that Black Knight Troop and the aircraft that supported us killed somewhere between 100 and 150 militants in the process of repulsing their assault, a casualty rate somewhere between 25 and 35 percent. On our side of the ledger, the toll was no less gruesome. Among the 50 Americans at Keating, 27 had been wounded and 8 were dead. That was bad, but when you took a closer look at the numbers, it was even worse, because only about 30 of our soldiers had actually been fighting. Among those who actively participated in the defense of the outpost, our casualty rate was directly comparable to what the Taliban had suffered. And then there were our Afghan allies. Eight of the 48 soldiers were wounded, three soldiers and two security guards were killed, and 15 soldiers had simply disappeared. We had no idea what befell those missing men, but the ones who remained inside the wire became the targets of our disgust and outright hatred. It was bad enough that most of these men had abandoned their posts and spent the entirety of the battle hiding from the fight. What made things even worse was a discovery that took place later that morning as the Afghans were preparing to board a series of helicopters that would take them to Bostik. When they were forced to empty out their bags because of weight restrictions, a trove of energy drinks, magazines, headphones, candy bars, and digital cameras came tumbling out. Recognizing that those items belonged to us, we realized that while we were busy defending the outpost, the Afghans had been looting our barracks and stealing our belongings. To say that we were glad to see them go would be an understatement. While the helicopters shuttled the Afghans to safety, we turned to the first order of business, which was to secure the village of Ermul. While I took a small team of guys from Red Platoon up to the switchbacks to find a spot where we could look down on the village and perform overwatch, a five-man squad from Blue Platoon headed out the front gate, across the bridge, and directly into Ermul. When they arrived, they encountered a level of devastation that rivaled the scene inside Keating. The place was a shambles. Most of the buildings had been completely destroyed, and those that remained standing were so pockmarked with holes that it seemed only a matter of days before they too came tumbling down. The patrol saw only four living people, a woman who was working in her field, and an old man with two young boys. But the dead were everywhere. From the evidence, it was clear that the tiny police station in the village had been attacked first off, and that the officers who survived the initial strike had been herded together and executed by the fighters who occupied the place. There were plenty of bodies clad in the brown robes of the Taliban, too, many of which lay where they had died. While the team picked through the wreckage, searching for anything that might offer useful intelligence, radios, photographs, written documents, 
a similar assessment was unfolding back inside Keating. There, Colonel Brown and Captain Portis were methodically pacing from one end of the outpost to the other in an effort to piece together what had happened, how our defenses had collapsed, where the enemy had breached the perimeter, how much damage there was, and whether anything that remained, supplies, ammunition, gear, or armor, could be hauled away and salvaged. As the two officers moved about camp making their assessment and debating whether what was left of the outpost should be destroyed or simply abandoned, they were shadowed by a delegation of women from the surrounding villages who had come to retrieve the bodies of the Taliban soldiers for burial. These women were clad in burqas, the indigo robes that covered the female figure from head to toe, and they seemed to float above the ground like blue ghosts, silent and wraith-like, as they went about the business of gathering up the dead. Meanwhile, the members of Black Knight Troop who were still in camp were conducting their own desultory effort to sift through the debris and pull out anything that seemed like it might be worth saving. It was sometime in the early afternoon when Ryan Schultz, the sergeant with HQ platoon, who was part of our intelligence unit, emerged from the wreckage of John Deere's Haji shop, holding several of the Afghan commando T-shirts that the Afghan army soldiers were so fond of. Hey, he said, walking up to Jones and offering him a shirt. Make sure that Mace gets this, okay? Clearly, word about what had happened had yet to spread through the entire camp. Mace isn't ever going to wear that shirt, Jones said, and walked away. And so it went for the rest of that afternoon, all through the next day, and well into the third, extracting things from the wreckage and packing up what we could for transport, until our superiors finally passed down word that it was time to get the fuck out of Keating. Fittingly, we left at night, and with every intention of blowing the place sky-high as we departed. By the evening of October 6th, a team of combat engineers that had been flown in from Bostik had packed the entire camp with explosives and wired everything together with detonation cord connected to a triggering device that could be operated from the front gate. By this point, we had salvaged whatever equipment we could and sent it out by helicopter. All that remained was us. The Chinooks were scheduled to arrive in waves, starting well after nightfall. Captain Sachs's relief force would be on the first flight out. Fifteen or twenty minutes later, the Chinooks would return to collect the members of Blue and Headquarters platoons, along with most of the medics. This would require several trips, and when it was done, the birds would come back one more time. As usual, Red would be the last to leave. The shuttles went like clockwork, each Chinook coming in, taking off for Bostick, and then coming back for its next load until the next-to-last flight ripped out and left about twenty of us standing together on the landing zone with just our weapons, radios, and a small supply of water. We had stacked ourselves in a crescent formation along the west side of the landing zone, which would enable us to collapse back toward our helicopter in an orderly formation. Now that everyone else was gone, there was nothing left for us to do but sit there in silence, staring out toward the dark river in front of us and the even darker ridge lines above, and wait for our ride. We waited for fifteen minutes, and then waited some more, as we slid past twenty. It was around the twenty-five-minute mark 
that the doubts we'd all been wrestling with started to take hold and form words. They're out there, exclaimed Justin Gregory, who, as always, was the most jittery guy in the platoon, and who was now convinced that he was seeing enemy movement in the distance. They're coming to get us, I know it. Dude, if you don't shut the hell up, I'm going to knock you out right now, said Avalos, who was right next to him. Let's just wait for the Chinook to get back and get on it, and then we'll be gone. Avalos was right. We all knew that. But we also knew that Gregory had given voice to fears that each man was wrestling with, all of which boiled down to a question. Are they not coming back for us? Finally, at well past the thirty-minute mark, we heard the sound of rotors and rose to our feet with weapons raised in case the Chinook started to take incoming fire. When the bird landed, our line began folding toward the ramp at the rear of the chopper. Nick Davidson boarded first, followed by Copus and everyone else. As the loading neared completion, Colonel Brown, who had remained behind with us, paused to activate the timing device which would trigger the explosive charges in twenty minutes. Then he stepped on deck. He was followed by First Sergeant Burton, who had been waiting for Brown to board so that he could claim bragging rights as the last to leave Keating. But Burton had failed to notice the two men who had been charged with rear security and who were still on the ground standing in the shadows at either side of the ramp. When Burton had boarded, Brad Larson and I locked eyes to make sure that we were in sync. And then, just as we had planned it, our boots left the ground at the exact same instant so that neither of us could claim the honor of being the last man out. We both had cigars in our pockets, which we now stuck in our mouths and chewed on. As the Chinook lurched into the air and started on its way toward Bostick, applause broke out, punctuated by a few yells of, then everyone turned to face the back hatch in the hopes of catching sight of the final explosions. But for whatever reason, either the timing device or the explosives had malfunctioned, the blast never came. Which, in a way, was kind of a symbolically perfect fuck you from Keating. We sort of had the last word anyhow. Later that same night, a B-1 bomber made a pass over Nuristan, opened up its doors, and dropped several tons of smart bombs on a dozen grid coordinates inside Keating. The following morning, for good measure, a second B-1 came by and dropped another load. Those airstrikes should have been enough to level the entire outpost. But the next day, when a Predator drone was sent over to survey the damage, the images revealed that several structures were still standing and that fourteen Taliban were strolling around the camp. So two more drones were dispatched, each of which loosed a pair of Hellfire missiles. According to army records that were later released, the insurgents who were obliterated in that final blast included Abdul Rahman Mustagni, the commander who had led the attack on Keating. Chapter 24 Trailing Fires our arrival at Bostick was a surreal experience, not only for us, but also for the soldiers who watched us emerge from the Chinook. Most of us were covered in dried blood, and aside from the weapons we toted and the clothes we wore, 
almost all of our possessions were gone. But each of us carried an odor on our skin and on our breath that was redolent of Keating and everything that place stood for, a stink that was composed in equal parts of rage and fear and death. By now, the battle for Keating had made national news back in the States, and it was widely reported that a bunch of us had been killed, so it was important to let our families know that we were alive. After the phone calls to our loved ones were complete, we spent the next couple of days trying to get ourselves squared away by requisitioning new uniforms and tending to our wounds. While we went about that business, we wrestled with the memories of the men whose bodies were being autopsied inside the Army's mortuary at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. And no one felt the burden of those memories more than our platoon leader, who was still convinced that he had somehow failed us. Needless to say, the rest of us didn't see things that way, and we did our best to drive home the message that if not for our lieutenant, it was almost certain that none of us would have made it through. With him, we'd lost eight men. Without him, we would have lost everyone. Despite our best efforts, none of this ever seemed to sink in to the level where Bunderman was willing to let himself off the hook. He simply didn't believe us. But when the army finally concluded its analysis of what had gone wrong and released the results during the first week of February 2010, the official report buttressed the message that we'd been trying to get across. The investigation into the assault on Keating was led by Army Major General Guy Swan, who conducted interviews with 140 American soldiers and Afghan nationals who were either at the outpost or had information about the attack. Swan's report offered conclusive proof that what had gone wrong at Keating had nothing to do with anyone who fought there that day. According to the report, after repeatedly attacking the outpost in order to gather intelligence on our battle drills, the enemy had analyzed our response patterns, then used this information to create a detailed assault plan that would exploit the weaknesses they were able to observe. They had started by targeting our generators, our mortar pit, and our gun trucks with large numbers of RPGs, and they did not begin their ground assault until they achieved decisive fire superiority. The insurgents had also positioned snipers and machine guns to cover the doors in buildings and living quarters where they had observed reinforcements exit during previous attacks. All of this, Swan's analysis made clear, was made possible by the fact that the Taliban occupied the high ground and could see everything we did. The investigation concluded that as the commander and senior officer at Keating from Black Knight's arrival until the September 20th change of command, Captain Melvin Porter bore the greatest responsibility for what went wrong. Among the faults for which Porter was cited, he had rejected recommendations from senior non-commissioned officers to execute additional protective measures, including the proposed emplacement of sniper teams and other small kill teams outside the perimeter to deny the enemy key terrain. In addition, Porter had also failed to adequately construct or reinforce defensive positions though excess lumber and sandbags left by the previous units were available, and he had repeatedly denied requests to check, reposition, or change out claymore mines that had been emplaced by the previous unit around the perimeter of the outpost. Finally, the report stated that Porter had neglected to close and secure a well-known gap in the perimeter at the ANA portion of the COP, 
an avenue of approach that was used by AAF forces to penetrate the cop on October 3rd. As we moved through the days that immediately followed the battle, each of us grappled with his private feelings of loss in his own way. But we were united by one thing. Like it or not, we still had the better part of a year left in our deployment, and our jobs would not afford us the luxury of dwelling on grief or mourning the men who were no longer with us. Aside from the handful of guys in Black Knight who were on their first deployment, we all knew the drill. Bottle your feelings inside, bury them deep, and if any of those emotions refuse to stay down, harness that energy and channel it into doing your job well until the deployment is complete and it's time to head home. Then, when you're back in the States, you can unlock the door to the room where all that pain has been stored and try to take stock of what it all means. Or not. We spent the next eight months providing security for the big military convoys that were responsible for pushing supplies north out of Jalalabad into the network of American outposts that were scattered through the valleys and ridgelines of Kunar province. We also spent a lot of our time meeting with local Afghans in nearby villages to help provide them with roads and bridges, schools and water projects, until we received word, late in the spring of 2010, that it was time to wrap things up. In the process of completing those duties, we suffered two more casualties. Kent Johnson, one of Red Platoon's replacement soldiers, was shot in the ass during a firefight that took place in December. Later the following spring, another replacement soldier in White Platoon was badly wounded when he was riding inside an armored vehicle that was hit by an IED. He would later wind up losing one of his legs. Other than those two incidents, everybody made it through safely until May, when we were finally sent home. In April of 2011, almost a year after arriving back in the States, I ended my military career, moved my family from Colorado to North Dakota, and tried to put the Army behind me by taking a job as a safety supervisor in the oil fields just outside the town of Minot. It was there, in the autumn of 2012, that I found myself sitting in the cab of a pickup truck next to an oil rig when a call arrived from a colonel who was stationed at the Pentagon. He was phoning to ask if I'd be willing to hop on a plane to D.C. and drop by his office. I had no idea what this might be about, but I'd already used up my vacation time for the year, so it was another month before I could comply with the request. When I was finally able to make the trip, I was brought into a conference room and invited to join a group of colonels and generals who were sitting at a long table. It was at this point that I requested an explanation for why I was there. You don't know? Someone asked. When I shook my head, they explained that after conducting an extensive review of my actions during the battle for Keating, I was slated to receive the Medal of Honor, the highest military award the country can bestow. It would be an understatement to say that I found this news confusing. In fact, it made no sense whatsoever. Singling me out for such a superlative commendation struck me as both inappropriate and wrong. In my view, nothing that I'd done that day was any different from what my comrades had accomplished. What's more, I could easily have picked half a dozen men, especially Gallegos, Kirk, Hart, Mace, and Griffin, 
who truly deserved selection because they had given their lives in an effort to save others. But me? No way. The idea seems to violate my sense of what was most important and what deserves to be commemorated about that day. Although I didn't know it at the time, it turns out that most Medal of Honor recipients feel exactly the same way. It also turns out that this fact has had little impact on the way that I feel about the honor that I was selected to receive and everything else that would later unfold from it. They picked the wrong guy. It was another seven months before the ceremony could be scheduled, and when it finally took place at the White House on the morning of February 11, 2013, the event served as a reunion of sorts. Larson was there, along with six other surviving members of Red Platoon, Bunderman, Raz, Copus, Jones, Avalos, and Knight. They all found the White House a strange experience. None among them felt comfortable greeting the president, so the rest of the guys forced Jonesy to go first. First in, last out, dude, said Copus, reminding Jones of his place in the hierarchy as he pushed him toward the podium. Nothing changes, Jones muttered, shaking his head. When the shit hits the fan, send in Jonesy. Having no idea how to address the president, Jones found himself at a loss for words as he shook hands with Barack Obama. But later that night, he'd returned to his normal state of volubility. The man had soft hands, he reported, which was apparently his main impression from his brief encounter with the commander-in-chief. I mean, real soft. In fact, I don't think there's any part of my body that's that soft. The other thing that struck Jones, along with a number of the other guys, was an unusual scent that was wafting off a woman in the audience. They all agreed that the aroma, which was heady and unmistakable, transported them directly back to Nuristan and the little Ziploc bag that once hung on the wall of Keating's aid station. When Corville approached the woman and politely inquired what type of perfume she was wearing, we finally learned that before Maria Kirilenko, the Russian tennis star, had mailed her panties off to Afghanistan, she'd misted them with a spritz of obsession. As for me, most of my memories from that event are a blur, except for the things that I found truly important. And there were really only two of those. First, I was overwhelmed by the chance to see the guys, men I hadn't connected with since we'd left Afghanistan. They are, all of them, the closest friends I will ever have. And because of that, the bond I share with them, and will always share, is bedrock, a thing that is as immutable as the Hindu Kush. In addition to that, I was deeply moved by a group of relatives who represented seven of the eight men we had lost that day at Keating. This was my first opportunity to meet these Gold Star families and bear witness to the pain they carry. A sentiment that was expressed with perhaps the greatest force and eloquence by Vanessa Adelson, Mace's mother, in a letter she had written to the president, from which he quoted just before he presented the medal. Mr. President, Obama said, reading from what she had written, you wrote me a letter telling me my son was a hero. I just wanted you to know what kind of a hero he was. My son was a great soldier, 
As far back as I can remember, Stefan wanted to serve his country. The letter, Obama explained, went on to speak of how deeply Mace had cared about us, his brothers in Black Knight Troop, how much we meant to him, how proud he was to serve alongside of us, and how he would do anything for us, including sacrificing his own life. That sacrifice, the president concluded, still quoting from the letter, was driven by pure love. Thirty minutes later, as the ceremony wrapped up, I worked my way down the line of representatives from the Gold Star families, greeting each and giving them all hugs. At the end of the line stood Gallegos's widow, Amanda, and his young son, Mac, who I scooped up in a huge embrace. He was just seven years old, and he and his mother had come all the way from Alaska. According to the official citation that was read that day, I was directly responsible for killing more than ten enemy fighters with my machine gun and the Dragunov sniper rifle that I'd plucked from the hands of the wounded Afghan soldier who was awaiting treatment in the aid station. The report also stated that I was indirectly responsible for the elimination of more than thirty Taliban who were killed by Apache gunships and fighter jets using coordinates that I provided during the battle, and that the men I'd led in retaking the base had killed, at minimum, another five enemy soldiers. I don't know about any of that. Such estimates are notoriously inaccurate, but the real reason I place little stock in them is that official accounts tend to possess a cleanness, a sense of order, that could not be more at odds with the reality of what unfolds during combat. In the end, only one set of numbers means anything to me. The lives that were lost and that might have been saved if we, if I, had acted differently. It's true that I did the best I could. What's also true is that I could have done more. In the space between those two facts reside eight graves, the memories of the men whose names are etched on the stones that mark those graves, and my own deeply mixed feelings about receiving the highest medal this country can bestow. As for the medal itself, when I got back home, a question arose for which I didn't really have an answer. What exactly do I do with this thing? I don't know what most of the other recipients do, although I've asked a handful of them. A few have ordered up replacements so that they have something to wear and to show folks when they ask to see it, while they store the original in a safe deposit box. Others keep the medal in a sock drawer or on their nightstand. As for me, I never bothered to get a duplicate, and I eventually took to carrying the original around in my front pocket. As a result, it's taken several accidental trips through the washing machine, so the gilded surface is a bit tarnished, and the blue ribbon has begun to fade. But that doesn't bother me a bit. In fact, I kind of like it that way. Perhaps, in part, because I don't truly regard it as mine. Like it or not, there are eight other guys with whom I served to whom that medal rightly belongs, because heroes, true heroes, the men whose spirit the medal embodies, don't ever come home. By that definition, I'm not a true hero. Instead, I'm a custodian and a caretaker. I hold the medal and everything it represents on behalf of those who are its rightful owners. That, more than anything, 
is the truth that now sustains me, along with one other thing too, which is a belief I hold in my heart. I know, without a shred of doubt, that I would instantly trade that metal and everything attached to it if it would bring back even one of my missing comrades in arms. Epilogue If there are soldiers who miss the fury of combat, who find themselves tortured by the desire to return to its flames, I cannot number myself in their company. I have no wish ever to return to Keating or to Afghanistan, and most of my men feel the same. However, the bond that kept us together as a unit, a team, is something I long for and continue to cherish. It is also something that is very much alive. Shortly after our return from Afghanistan, Zach Kopis transitioned out of the army, moved into the basement of the house in which Mace's mother lives, and put himself through college. He recently graduated and is hoping to get into local politics in Virginia. Chris Jones followed a similar path after he had left the army. Although he opted to pursue a hands-on trade and is intending to become a machinist, he prefers to keep his location under wraps, but we stay in touch. That's also the case with Tom Rasmussen, who remains one of my closest friends and companions. Upon entering civilian life, he found work in the oil fields along Colorado's Front Range, and he spends as much of his free time as possible working with a veterans outreach group that offers a waterfowl hunting program. He also moonlights as a duck hunting guide around our old stomping grounds outside of Fort Carson. Before leaving the Army, Andrew Bunderman was placed in charge of a military entrance processing station in Minneapolis, where he handled new recruits. He is currently living in the Twin Cities and working for a company that manufactures some of the bombs that were dropped on the Taliban during the Battle of Keating. As for Brad Larson, at the urging of Captain Stoney Portis, he was given a direct select opportunity by General Curtis Scaparotti to leapfrog over the normal vetting process and attend officer candidate school, an honor that is reserved for only the finest and most gifted rank-and-file soldiers. As a result, Larson has transitioned to the dark side on two counts. As a member of the aviation branch of the Nebraska National Guard, he is no longer an enlisted soldier, and his boots aren't on the ground anymore. Instead, First Lieutenant Larson is currently completing yet another overseas deployment as a pilot of a Chinook helicopter. Me and the rest of the guys worry about him staying safe, but we're even more concerned that he doesn't lose his perspective and forget where he came from, which is why we're toying with the notion of logging onto poopcenters.com and ordering a consignment of elephant dung to be delivered to the base where he is stationed. For the moment, we're holding off on placing that order, because the signals we've been getting from Larson are reassuring. Just before he deployed, he told me that he's refusing to follow the model of a West Point ring knocker. Instead, he wants to be a leader, just like Bunderman. As for the men of Black Knight, who served in blue and white platoons, they are a bit more distant, and I hear from most of them only occasionally, although much of the news is good. 
Eric Carter and Shane Corville are still in the Army and continued to serve. Jonathan Hill got out, but has been doing some tremendous work helping veterans deal with post-traumatic stress and integrate back into the workforce. And Daniel Rodriguez fulfilled a promise he had made to Kevin Thompson, his closest friend at Keating, that he would try his best to fulfill a dream he had of one day playing professional football. He made it to Clemson and then was drafted by the Redskins and eventually traded to the St. Louis Rams. And so it goes. We all do our best to stay in touch because we are welded together and will remain so for the rest of our lives. We are united by the memory of battle, but our lives are also joined and consecrated by the knowledge that the eight men who lost their lives are still with us because we carry them in our hearts. They will never leave us. In Memoriam Sergeant Justin Gallegos Team Leader Specialist Chris Griffin Scout Sergeant Josh Hart Team Leader Sergeant Josh Kirk Team Leader Specialist Stephen Mace Scout Sergeant Vernon Martin Chief Mechanic Specialist Michael Scusa Scout Private First Class Kevin Thompson Mortarman Notes on Sources At some point, long after the shooting is over, almost every soldier who has survived combat feels himself caught between two conflicting impulses. On the one hand, there is an instinct to remain silent. Language is an imperfect tool, and anyone who has been through combat understands that words are incapable of conveying the real horror of battle. This is why the deepest truths of war can never be spoken, only understood by men who have touched it and been touched by it. On the other hand, there remains an uneasy awareness that without language, without words, the experience of war and everything it entails, including the sacrifice made by both the living and the dead, can neither be preserved nor communicated to others. Somewhere between those two opposing truths lies a special zone, a kind of demilitarized zone in which soldiers do what we have always done. In the absence of anything better, we tell one another stories. And we do so with the knowledge that while our stories may not be perfect, they are the closest we will come to transmitting a sense and preserving the memory of what we endured. The Battle of Cop Keating was covered extensively by the American press, both in print and on television, in the days and weeks that followed the attack. Three years later, the journalist Jake Tapper published The Outpost, a book that investigated both the decision to establish Keating and the reasons why the Army continued to maintain the firebase in the face of such immense tactical and strategic challenges. Tapper's research was conducted with painstaking care, but the one thing he could not do was to produce a chronicle of what unfolded during the final battle, an hour-by-hour account of the actions of the living, as well as a roll call of the dead. 
In the words of someone who was there at the time and who participated directly in the fight, that is a thing that could only come from one of our own. And although I'm often described as a man of few words, this description is a thing whose importance and urgency has only seemed to grow with the passage of time. During the past two years, I conducted multiple trips across the United States in order to meet directly with key members of Black Knight Troop with whom I had served at Keating, record their recollections of the battle, and then juxtapose those recollections against my own notes and memories of what unfolded that day. I also combed through hundreds of pages of eyewitness testimony, radio transcripts, and other materials that were amassed by General Swan in his official report. This book is a result of that labor. While it is not intended to serve as an absolutely definitive account of the battle, I have done my best to accurately represent the events that I and the people I was closest to, the men of Red Platoon, either participated in or witnessed. I would like to make it clear that this is a work of nonfiction. Everything quoted was said to me or by me, is part of an official transcript, or was later recounted to me directly by the person who is quoted. In instances where a man's thoughts are laid out, those thoughts were shared with me by the soldier himself. Although I entered into this project with some reluctance and hesitation, my sense of conviction burgeoned with each passing month. Eventually I came to believe that telling this story, our story, was the only way to properly honor what we had done. Odd as it may sound, I also came to believe that this might enable me to fulfill the final part of my duty to those of my comrades from Keating who did not survive. It was the only way for me to bring them home. Acknowledgements I owe a debt of thanks that can never fully be repaid to each and every member of Red Platoon, as well as to the men with whom I fought most closely during the Battle of Cop Keating. Andrew Bunderman, Brad Larson, Shane Corville, Matthew Miller, Mark Delaney, Christopher Jones, Zachary Copas, and James Stanley. I am also deeply grateful to Armando Avalos, Damian Grisset, and Kellen Kahn, along with the rest of the men in Black Knight Troop, especially those who serve in blue, white, headquarters, and mortar platoons. To the helicopter pilots of the 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division, including Ross Llewellyn, Chad Bardwell, Randy Huff, and Chris Wright, and to the pilots of the fighter jets and other aircraft who supported Keating, especially Michael Polidor, Aaron Dove, and Justin Kulish. Those of us on the ground never even knew most of your names, but we are alive today because of your skills and your courage. Thank you. I am grateful to the men of Chosen Company, 132nd Infantry, who were led by Justin Sachs and who formed the quick reaction force that relieved Cop Keating. I would also like to thank our brigade's medical staff, including Chris Cordova, Cody Floyd, Jeffrey Hobbs, and the entire medical team at Bostick. During the course of putting this book together, 
Many people were kind enough to sit down for extensive interviews in which they shared their insights and memories. I appreciate everyone who was part of this group, including Vanessa Adelson, Jimmy Blackman, James Clark, Eric Carter, Brendan McCriskin, Jake Moraldi, and Stoney Portis. I would like to thank everyone at Dutton and Penguin Random House, especially Ben Seaver, Christine Ball, Amanda Walker, Carrie Swintonic, and Paul Dekerhoff. I am indebted to my agent, Jennifer Joel, as well as Madeline Osborne, Sharon Green, Josie Friedman, and the rest of the team at ICM. And I'm grateful to the writer, Kevin Fedarko, for helping me find a way to tell this story. Finally, I would like to express my deepest thanks and extend my most profound condolences to the families of Justin Gallegos, Chris Griffin, Josh Hart, Josh Kirk, Stephen Mace, Vernon Martin, Michael Scusa, and Kevin Thompson. You bear the heaviest burden of all. Clint Romache, Fargo, North Dakota, March 10th, 2016.
This is Will Dameron. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Red Platoon, A True Story of American Valor by Clinton Romache. This program was directed by Scott Cresswell and Kathy Thornburn. Executive producer, Juliana Wilson. Text copyright 2016 by Clint L. Romache, LLC. Red Platoon, Words and Music by Jim Kinsey, Michael Connors, Clint Romache, and Mike Hartnett. Copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Used by permission. Remember the Fallen, Words and Music by Michael Connors, Jim Kinsey, Billy Dawson, and Mike Hartnett. Copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Used by permission. Executive Producer, Nemo Arms. Production Copyright 2016, Penguin Random House, LLC. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.